30. Moon the Gund, PT2. Moon the Gund, Part 2. The door led straight into a residential section of the perimeter building. They walked through something like a mudroom where Alden was pretty sure he made a critical faux pas by neglecting to remove his sneakers and into a common area full of mismatched furniture. Toys were scattered on the floor and a couple of the adults hurried to pick them up while Alden was installed partially against his will on a chaise lounge. Facing a large screen he assumed was for television. Someone brought him wevy, and he drank it as fast as he could while trying not to scald his throat. The two children stared at him from behind a chair like they expected him to do something shocking at any moment. Alden wasn't sure if they were male or female. One appeared to be around nine and the other might have been a couple years younger. I wonder if I'm the first human they've ever seen? He sat up a little straighter and sipped his unwanted drink at a more polite pace, hoping he looked like a semi-decent species representative even if he had tracked dirt on their carpet. While the adults fussed around the room, seeming unsure about whether they were supposed to sit down with him or not, Alden tried to locate the woman with the pink eyes. She'd run off with the message orb. Fortunately, she returned before he tried to stumble his way through more sentences to ask after her whereabouts. She had what looked like a steel egg cup in her hand, and when she placed the message orb in it, Joe appeared on the screen. His image had that same unusual three-dimensional effect that Alden was used to from lessons at the consulate. Up close like this, it felt like the professor might reach through the screen and grab him. Several of the people in the room gave relieved sighs at the sight of Joe's face. Alden glanced around at them all, surprised. Maybe they were worried I was lying? Joe started speaking, and Alden followed the translation closely. Hello, my friends. I have some good news for you at last. If you're seeing this message, then it means the avowed I'm planning to send your way agreed to the arrangement and arrived safely. Please treat him with respect. You loyal few who refuse to sign with the usurpers will soon be able to rejoin me thanks to his efforts. There was a lot of excited chatter at this, and the uncomfortable stares Alden had been getting became uncomfortable in a brand new way. He wished Joe wouldn't set their expectations quite so high. Even if everything went perfectly, he could only carry one or two people at a time and he couldn't do back-to-back -back teleports to Moon the Gund because of the limitations placed on Joe's system usage. Apparently, every wizard had some kind of individual credit limit when it came to using the system for things, and Joe's had been reduced enough that a single round-trip teleport here was all he could authorize per day. Alden hadn't been surprised to learn that there were limits, but it was something he'd never really considered before. For some reason, he'd always imagined summoners doing whatever they liked when it came to zapping avowed around the universe and doling out magical rewards. But of course, even the seemingly all-powerful system couldn't be an infinite resource. There were 15 of the assistants here if he included the kids. He could double up a few times, but to rescue them all, he'd have to come back every single night. Now, the recording of Joe was giving them instructions. He was telling them more or less the same things he had Alden, 
though he gave the assistants a sunnier impression of the situation. He did say that the first teleport would be a trial run, but he didn't mention the fact that Alden could just choose not to come back again. As soon as the professor started listing supplies he wanted from the lab, several of the Artinans disappeared. I guess they'll fetch everything for me then? Alden thought. That was convenient, but he found himself a tiny bit disappointed that he wouldn't get to see the non-residential parts of the facility. It wasn't every day you got to tour a place that specialized in researching demonic energy. Joe finished off his speech by telling everyone the basics of how Alden's skill worked, which would save him the trouble of trying to say, Entrust yourself to me in Broken Artinan. He could think of about a dozen ways that could be misconstrued. He wondered if people could be entrusted to him by others. He doubted they could unless they were unconscious, since he couldn't steal something a person was holding. B.T. Iqul had been able to entrust the frog to him, but that was an animal, although it was actually the carnivorous flower she'd given him. Maybe he could take conscious people if they were bound or trapped in a container. Superpowers put you in some bizarre situations. He thought as he imagined someone handing him a duffel bag full of a struggling third party. When the professor had finished speaking, there was a discussion among all the assembled assistants about who should go first. Initially, they asked Alden who he wanted to take, but he refused to pick. He knew so little about the situation, really. If he'd wandered up onto this lab with no prior knowledge about it at all, he would have thought nobody here needed saving. It was isolated, but it seemed calm and comfortable yet they were obviously eager to leave. And it sounded like maybe some of the people who worked here, the ones who'd chosen to be employed by the usurpers, were already gone. If it was so dangerous in this place that Joe's assistants were willing to risk using an untested method to escape, then Alden thought they should maybe give him the kids first. But, in the end, they selected the elderly man. Alden hoped it wasn't because they expected him to fail and the old guy had already had a long life. With the decision made, the pink-eyed woman led them all through the residential section of the building. It reminded Alden of a long, curved hotel hallway. Assuming the doors all belonged to individual rooms, then Joe's original staff must have been at least three times its current size. They exited through another mudroom and stepped out into the main compound. A pair of gray, pentagon-shaped satellite dishes towered overhead. A woman wearing coveralls was sitting in the driver's seat of an armored vehicle with tires made out of interwoven metal links. Instead of a steering wheel, the thing had a few levers and a bunch of buttons that were identical except for the logograms on each of them. There were seats for three passengers and the driver, and it had an enclosed trailer that she unhitched with the press of a button. The trailer rolled itself back a few feet, its strange tires leaving only the faintest of impressions in the hard-packed dirt. The old man who would be Alden's first passenger went straight to a pair of plastic cases resting on one of the vehicle's seats. He unlatched them and started looking through them, asking the woman in coveralls questions about the contents. One case was full of foam padding and tubes full of innocent-looking clear liquid. 
The system here wasn't as stodgy as the one on Artona 3. It was happily translating absolutely everything everyone said for Alden. But either it wasn't great at the job or it just didn't have English words for alien scientific materials. He doubted the official name of the substance in the tubes sounded as absurd as the system's preferred translation, which was bad impact juice. And the second case had a piece of equipment in it that everyone was calling a mixer, even though it appeared to be a solid cube. They were all treating both cases with a lot of reverence, so Alden assumed the impact juice and the mixer were important. We'll have the other supplies ready when you come tomorrow, Honorable Alden, the woman with the pink eyes said. She pronounced his name with very distinct syllables so that it sounded like more than one word. One of us will meet you at Elepta at the scheduled time for transport. Yes. Alden really wished they had some kind of translator for his half of the conversation. They had so much tech here. Were the tablets with system access, like the one BTI Cool had used, not available to regular people? Yes, he said in Artanen. But two? Sometimes two people? I can't come fifteen? I probably sound like a caveman. The woman didn't seem to have trouble understanding what he was worried about at least. Distinguished Master Roden said you would come eleven times. Sometimes you will have to carry two passengers. That's right, said Alden, relieved. Then, just in case they had overly high expectations about his physical strength, he added, I can't two big people. Two little people better? Is the teleportation dangerous with more passengers, she asked worriedly. Most of us have never teleported anywhere. Right, because regular people couldn't even teleport on this planet. Alden rubbed the back of his neck, trying to think of how to say, I have no idea. I'm just worried about my ability to hold on to two full-grown adults. Finally, he pointed at himself. Rybeat, he said. Can't very big? She nodded as if that made sense. Probably it did. He assumed the assistants were knowledgeable people. Joe didn't seem to have the patience to work long-term with anyone who wasn't and they must have at least a basic grasp of avowed classes and other species, so they should know that a human rybeat wasn't a physical powerhouse. All of this is good, though, she asked, pointing at the old man and the cases. Do you want to try it here? Before you travel to the teleport site? Yes, Alden said eagerly. He'd been trying to figure out how to suggest it himself without making them worry about his competence. Yes. I want that. He deactivated his trait since he didn't want the extra momentum for this experiment. Come here, old dude. Let's figure out how this works. It turned out it worked okay. The elderly Artanen picked up a case in each hand. Alden targeted him and after gaining his verbal permission and eyeballing him for a minute, Alden just grabbed him around the waist and lifted. He'd like to know how to do a proper fireman's carry, but he didn't. So for now this would have to do. Alden was taller than most Artanans, and he had a few inches on the old man. The guy wasn't light, but he could walk with him well enough. The preservation worked. The skill drain was high. 
Alden didn't know if it was because of the man himself or the things in the cases. But it was nowhere near as severe as it had been with the shrieky bowl, and he'd only have to do this for two or three seconds anyway. The hardest part was the awkwardness of holding onto a whole petrified person. The man's clothes and limbs felt soft and yielding, but that was a false impression. Once he was lifted, Alden couldn't seem to reposition him for convenience. That's something I'd really like to learn how to do. Maybe if I level the skill. After around half a minute of experimentation, he realized he was getting some very shocked looks from the assembled aliens. So he set the man back down. The assistant came to life immediately, looking surprised to find that he'd moved from his original position. Are you good? Alden asked anxiously. Are you happy? Good and happy weren't the words he wanted at all but he couldn't figure out how else to ask if he'd accidentally hurt the guy somehow. Are all your body parts working? Is your brain okay? You're my first ever preserved person. I'm so relieved you're in one piece. Very interesting, Honorable Alden, said the fellow, patting Alden on the arm. I don't remember what happened to me at all. What an exciting experience. Alden let out a huge sigh. He felt himself grinning for the first time since he'd arrived on Moon the Gund. Awesome, he said in English. This isn't going to be a total disaster then. There were some tearful goodbyes before they could depart. Nobody was saying it, but Alden had the feeling the group was divided into those who trusted Joe absolutely and thought he could do no wrong and others, who were more cautious about the mode of travel their boss had chosen. The old guy had a great attitude and kept talking about the trip like it was a grand adventure, but Alden was pretty sure he was just trying to calm the other's fears. They finally boarded the armored vehicle and left. The driver pressed buttons, and they exited the compound by way of an underground ramp that went beneath the perimeter building. Alden and the old guy were in the back two seats, buckled in with harnesses that had automatically fitted themselves in place. Alden had been surprised at how thick the windows and doors were when they boarded, and as they left the facility, he was even more surprised when sigils of light started to appear here and there on the floor beneath his feet. A pudgy bald man had joined them. He was riding shotgun and staring with intense focus at a trio of display screens that showed a 360-degree view of the grassland around them. The three Artinans seemed more nervous now that they'd left the lab behind. They were all quiet for the most part, though after she'd put in coordinates for their destination, the driver turned back to look at Alden and told him admiringly that he was very brave for coming to get them on foot which made him feel pretty strange about the journey he'd just completed. Their anxiety was infectious, and he found himself gazing out the windows expecting to see monsters lurking in the grass. He didn't. The strange vehicle moved swiftly, leaving a trail of crushed vegetation in their wake. Their ETA to the farm was just fifteen minutes. Just how far out of pocket was this place? Joe had said half the moon was a protected zone. But they must not have been anywhere near there or these guys would have left the lab in this car thing to reach it, right? 
and the professor had indicated that ships were in short supply, but unless he was misunderstanding, someone had come to get the other assistants who'd chosen to change employers. Why didn't they just pick these people up, too? Alden had a ton of questions. But with the language limits, the best he could do was say, where did others go? Other what, Honorable Alden, the old man asked. Well, he couldn't just leave it hanging. And he'd already committed himself to sounding like a cave person, so he might as well lean into it. Other whirly Roden friends, he said. The other Artanans go before, but you are here. Why? Please don't think I'm stupid. I'm pretty sure I'm doing okay considering how small my vocabulary is. They understood the question, and the driver in particular seemed eager to badmouth her former co-workers. Over the next few minutes, Alden got an earful about the situation. Apparently when Joe had first been called to account for his crimes, which weren't crimes at all. Oh no, they were brilliant and extraordinary magical advancements. He and his many assistants had assumed he would brush off the charges as usual and return quickly. But he didn't, and they soon received word that the lab was being handed over to Yipal Corporation. Another wizard scientist would soon take charge, and Joe's employees were expected to transfer over. Only some of them didn't want to. Joe was, as Alden himself had experienced, good at obtaining people's service. The Yipal Corporation wouldn't pay as well as he had, and the assistants, who were mostly crazy science buffs themselves, didn't expect to have the same freedom to play around with the lab equipment that they'd enjoyed under Joe's leadership. But there was a lot of pressure to shift loyalties and a lot of doubt about what Joe could do for them now that he was out of favor, with higher powers. Eventually, most of the assistants gave in and signed on with the new owners, and only these few holdouts had refused. They assumed they would be shipped off to a safer, more populated area as soon as the new wizard arrived. Eventually, Joe would arrange for them to travel to the mother planet by spacecraft, and from there, they would be able to safely teleport and join him at the university. However, to everyone's surprise, it went the opposite way. The promised new wizard never appeared at all. The Chaos Index, whatever that was, rose rapidly for months. And when it finally hit some particular limit a few weeks ago, everyone at the lab requested evacuation. But the Yipalk employees were classified differently than the Joe loyalists. A ship came to pick them up along with some of the lab equipment, but the loyalists were told they had to remain behind, unless they were willing to quit Joe's service. It sounded to Alden like the assistant's skills and their knowledge about Joe's research were valuable to the new owners, so they were basically being held hostage until they agreed to switch sides. He was also interested to learn that the people who came to evacuate the other assistants were avowed. Apparently, they were a common enough sight on the Gund, just not here, on the wrong half of the moon. It was an uncomfortable thought. If I'd been given a quest by the corporation, I'd have been sent here to strong-arm a bunch of scientists by holding a possible rescue over their heads. He tried to think of anything in the human morality concessions of the contract that would prevent that, and he couldn't. 
Supposedly, he couldn't be used as an outright murderer of innocents, but of course he could be told not to help someone, or to prioritize one group over another. That would feel awful. He was still trying and failing to imagine his way out of such a scenario when they reached the farm. They approached from a different direction than Alden had left from, and it took a second for him to orient himself before he could direct them toward the packing warehouse. He had them stop a little shy of it so he could grab a handful of berries from one of the bushes and shove them into his pockets. As soon as he did, his quest updated and offered him an option to request a return teleport. He would have been automatically returned in less than an hour anyway, but there was no reason to hang around. He showed Joe's assistants the way into the warehouse and pointed at the teleportation alcove. They promised one or more of them would be here waiting for him at the appropriate time tomorrow. There would be no need for him to travel to the lab itself again. From here, his nightly teleportation trips should be swift and simple. The old man kissed the other two on the cheek, then took the cases full of supplies. I'm ready when you are, Honorable Alden. He looked a little afraid. Alden wished he knew how to say something comforting, but all he could do was smile and nod and act like all of this was business as usual. Go home happy, he said to the other two. It wasn't the right sentiment, but he didn't know how to say, travel safely. When everything seemed to be in order, he clicked the Request Teleport button. Request approved. Please enter the alcove. 67S. It would be so stupid if I botched the timing here at the end. He knew he wasn't likely to develop sudden clumsiness. But he couldn't help but think of the look on Joe's face if he showed up alone because he dropped the assistant or failed to keep his skill active. He ushered the elderly Artanen closer to the alcove and then watched the timer tick down. When there were only five seconds left, he picked the man up, felt him freeze, and stepped inside. He held the guy around the waist in a full bear hug, leaning back to make absolutely sure no part of his passenger was dragging the ground. It seemed to him that his skill usually faded between one and two seconds of no motion, so when the timer hit one, Alden hopped up and down. His calf muscles, burdened by the extra weight and still sore from his run to the lab, protested. Then, the teleport hit him and he couldn't feel them anymore. Just like before, everything went black and he became a disembodied awareness. But unlike before, he was aware of something beyond his own thoughts. There was an unwelcome sensation of pressure from every direction. And because he could feel it, here in this place where he had no body, he had faint sense of what it was that was actually being affected. Around him, cocooning him from the teleportation magic, was something that was uniquely his. He tried to understand it, tried to, to see it in a way that had nothing to do with sight. For an instant, he had an impression of a dense cobweb surrounding him. That's my magic, he thought. Maybe he was aware of it now, when he hadn't been on his last trip. Because it was under more pressure with the added burden of his passenger? His magic was being buffeted by the teleport, but not in a way that seemed overly dangerous. He was curious. He wanted to figure out what it meant. 
but almost as soon as he had the desire, he was back in his body, and his ability to see his magic was gone. His arms were clamped tightly around Joe's assistant. His legs were sore. He felt tired and dizzy. He dropped the man back onto his feet and stumbled a few steps away, trying to reorient himself. The light from the runes on the floor of the seminarium seemed to be stabbing through him in a way that he knew wasn't physically possible. A metal pan slid across the floor and stopped neatly in front of his shoes. Alden stared down at it then glanced up at Joe, who was beaming at the old man and patting him on the back enthusiastically while he tried to bow. What's the pan for? Alden asked. Joe turned to him. Aren't you going to throw up? Alden didn't feel totally solid, but he didn't think he was about to lose his lunch. In the past, he'd felt more nauseous during trips to Anisidora. I'm okay. The teleport was kind of long. And different. But I'm fine. Really? Joe looked him up and down. Aren't we the sturdy one? I guess so. Well, excellent work. Joe's voice echoed through the room. Wonderfully done. How does it feel to complete your first contract? The man Alden had brought along with him had finally managed to complete his bow. He was trembling, and Alden worried the journey might have affected him badly. But when he stood up, there was such profound gratitude on his face that it was almost painful to look at. Professor Alden hesitated. Now that he'd been to Moon the Gund, he realized he should have asked for a little more clarification about just how dangerous the place was. Joe had told him it was risky, but that he wasn't likely to run into trouble. And he hadn't. It had all gone so smoothly. But that oppressive silence and the total abandonment of a large facility like the lab painted a grimmer picture than he'd expected. Well, I'm only going to be there for a few minutes at a time from now on. Just straight to the farm and back. And with the old man looking at him that way, he couldn't quite bring himself to seriously consider not returning for the rest of them. 31. Manon Joe spent the next ten minutes exclaiming over the man Alden had rescued and the cases of supplies he'd brought. He divided his time pretty equally between them, so it was hard to tell which he was happier to have returned to him. Alden didn't want the professor to think up any additional errands, so as soon as it was possible, he made his escape and left the seminarium behind. He walked across the dark campus, enjoying the strange night sounds of another world and relishing in the first real freedom he'd had all day. The only thing left on his task list was his sleep curfew, and that was one assignment he was looking forward to completing. I don't even know where I'm supposed to sleep, though. At lunch, the other humans had mentioned dorms, but Alden had no idea where they were. System, can I get one of those carts? And a shower? And a bed? He wondered if it would just give him a map and tell him to walk there himself since he was no longer on duty. But he must have been authorized to use the carts in his free time, too because a couple of minutes after he made his request one of them rolled to a stop beside him. Alden collapsed into a seat gratefully. He had a lot he needed to think about and almost no energy left to do it with. There was a ton of stuff to unpack from the trip to Moon the Gund. 
he was sure he could come up with a few dozen questions just about that last teleportation cycle. If every day here is as long as this one has been, I'm going to be a wreck in no time. And that reminded him. He finally had time to call his friends and let them know he was alive. System, I want to place a video call to Bo Lupescu in Chicago, Illinois. Video, audio, and texting from here all cost the same absurdly high price, so why not? The connection fee was 500 Argold plus 3 every minute. Alden couldn't decide if it was fair or a total scam. On the one hand, he was instantaneously communicating across dimensions. On the other, holy crap, even if he only talked for a second, this call was going to cost more than a month's rent on the house. He accepted the price, marveling at the fact that he had enough money not to second-guess the decision, and around a minute later, Bo answered. Unlike the larger, circular image he'd gotten when he received a video call from Keiko Velra, the picture he had of Bo was a normal cell phone camera image. Bo was sitting up in bed. Behind him, a large gap in the blinds showed the half-lit windows of a neighboring building. Shit, I woke you up, said Alden. Do you mind talking right now? Bo rolled his eyes. Gee, no. I'm far too busy to accept a call from my friend who disappeared in his death lab coat hours ago and hasn't been heard from since. Try again later. Sorry, it's been crazy, but I should have called before this. It's fine. Bo climbed out of bed and walked over to flip the light switch by the door. You look like you're in one piece. I'm glad. Thanks, said Alden. And yeah, I'm okay. I'm on a university campus watching amateur wizards take exams. It's not too dangerous. I'm going to be here for 12 days, well, 11 now. His friend raised an eyebrow. That's a long assignment to get out of the blue. How do you want me to handle your aunt? I'd like to keep her in the dark, until I can talk to her in person. But you'll have to do more work to make her think we've just been missing each other in passing. He gave Bo an apologetic look. Do you mind occasionally stopping by my place and making it look like I'm still there? He knew his friend would say yes, but he felt a little guilty for asking. I can do it. If some of your stuff is missing when you get back, consider it my service fee. Alden nodded. And make sure Victor's bowl is full. Got it. Lie to your aunt. Feed your cat. Tell everyone at school you're seriously ill? Oh right, school, it was amazing how a few days could make school feel like a foreign concept. They might call Connie after a few unexplained absences. Bo had just grabbed Alden's own cell phone from the top of his dresser. Jeremy and I can figure something out. He's absolutely losing his mind, by the way. Like... It's bad enough that I'm texting him right now because there's no chance he's sleeping. He looked way more freaked out when I left than I was, said Alden, remembering the expression on Jeremy's face. And I was pretty freaked out. Yeah, he drove me and Gorgon insane today. Bo shook his head. I guess it felt like a game to him until you actually got summoned? Or, on some level I think he assumed all avowed were untouchable. And then he realized he could still knock your pitiful ass over with a single punch. 
Tell him that was because I was surprised by the way an outside impact affected my skill drain, not because I couldn't actually take it. Sure it was. It was. Sophie, that's my new Grivik co-worker, seems to think my magic senses are screwed up. Bo shoved his glass up on his nose. There was a lot to unpack in that last sentence. I have questions. I doubt I can answer them, Alden admitted. Why are you calling an alien combat machine by a girl's name? Sophie suits her kinda well, actually. Oh, well, okay. I thought your friendship with Gorgon was an isolated incident, but now I'm starting to worry there's a pattern. Don't be xenophobic. I'm not, but I do have a healthy respect for species that are literally known for their overactive prey drive. Have you ever seen video of a Grivik hunting? The way they kill things is nightmare fuel, and killing things is their number one favorite pastime. Sophie offered to let me burrow underground with her when I'm tired. Bo snorted. I'm pretty sure the Artanans will give you a nice bed in a nice room, maybe even with some nice human beings. Why don't you try that out first? Headed there now, said Alden, looking around. The cart seemed to be taking him to the outskirts of campus. Dark red lamps lit the pathway here, but there were fewer of them than there had been in more central areas. The other humans on this assignment are, I don't know. They're fine, but I'm not their favorite person, I guess. Have you heard of boaters? Like sailors? No. Like an anisiterin club of people who recommend each other for triplanet jobs and try to keep the best positions in group. While he explained the situation and the strange lunch conversation, Bo was typing on Alden's cell phone with his free hand. You're right, he said. That sounds odd. Rabbits are known for being rich. But I've never heard anyone suggest that they're expected to pay for other humans' personal expenses when they're working together. Yeah, I couldn't tell if they were hinting that I should or if it was just part of the Manon praise and worship. Let me remind you that even if they're making a fraction of the cash you are, it's most likely still more than your aunt's entire annual income. An easy, 12-day event that regularly hires a crew of low-rankers? That's sweet. They're not hurting for money. Do you think maybe Manon's just showing off for her friends? Bo was still staring at Alden's phone. Maybe. She seems successful enough on the island. What? I looked her up just now. Since you don't have Earth Internet, she's a decorator for the Upper Crust. Has her own website. Does events and interiors. She uses that C-rank rabbit skill that lets you rearrange furnishings to perfectly suit the owner. Tailor environment? It was one of the must-choose rabbit skills, popular enough that Alden had heard about it before he did any of his recent research into the class. Yeah, I'll see what else I can find. But don't make waves with the off-brand union, I guess. Good advice. Waves were bad when you were barely treading water to begin with. I had things to tell you, too, said Bo. Most of them can wait. You should give me contact permission, though, so I can call you whenever. On your dime, obviously. I was going to ask you about that. 
You're cool with talking to me this way, right? You're not worried about the system spying on you? Huh? Why would I be? A few days ago you were all paranoid about phone tapping, Alden pointed out. Yeah, by our own government. The system is obviously spying on all of us. There's no point in trying to avoid that. You should call me through it so that our fellow Earthlings can't butt in. The second phone in his hand rang. Speaking of Earthlings butting in, here's Jeremy. Please make your assignment sound like a fun vacation when you talk to him. I don't think he'll sleep for the next few days if you don't. Alden's talking to you right now. Jeremy's voice shouted from the phone. Are you serious? Why didn't he call me first? Can I talk to him? Let me talk to him. How badly did he get blown up? He can hear you. You're on speaker. Hey, Jeremy, said Alden, trying to think of the most light-hearted thing he could say about his day. I didn't get blown up at all. I'm at the alien equivalent of an Ivy League school, riding a golf cart around. Did you know they have a vegetable here that tastes like steak? Human accommodations were on the top floor of a narrow, three-story building with no signage. Alden took an exterior elevator up, and the door opened directly into a locker room. Surprised, he stepped out onto a mat and looked around. Most of the lockers were shut, with the user's name displayed on a small screen at the top. Alden took his time examining the setup. The first thing he noticed was that the room was air-conditioned, which immediately improved his mood. The second was that he was probably the last person to arrive. He counted 15 occupied lockers, and there had only been 14 humans total at the orientation meeting this morning, including himself. Someone named Thwarthog had two lockers, both of them decorated with travel-themed fridge magnets. Everyone else was using an ordinary-sounding name. Avowed could set a preferred public name with the system. Alden's was just Alden, no last name. He hadn't seen a reason to hide his identity since he intended to be above board as a superhuman. He was guessing, from the well-used look of Thwarthog's lockers and the obvious desire for anonymity, that the person wasn't affiliated with the boater. They were probably here on a separate long-term assignment, and there was a good chance that they were an unregistered avowed. Alden selected the locker nearest to the elevator. It was just a mini-closet, but since he didn't have anything other than his coat and shoes to store right now, it was more than enough space. When he shut the door, his name appeared on the display, and he received a system message telling him he would be informed if anyone tried to access his belongings. Well, that's nice. There were two curtained exits from the locker room. Judging by the sound of running showers, the one on the right must lead to the bathroom. He stepped through the curtain on the left instead and discovered the sleeping area. The accommodations were nearly identical to pictures he'd seen of capsule hotels. Everyone got their own pod of personal space, just a little larger than a double bed, with a panel that could be shut for privacy. The capsules were stacked two levels high. Several of them were occupied with the panels shut. A man in a bathrobe was climbing into one of the upper pods, and a woman was reading a mystery novel in one of the lower ones. One side of the long room was entirely capsules. 
The other was half-capsules at the far end, but the end closest to Alden had a narrow table and a cushioned bench. Several people in pajamas and loungewear were sitting there with tablets or computers plugged into the table's adapters. Manon, her damp gray and brown hair pulled back in a scrunchie, was going through an interior design magazine with a highlighter. Nobody looked up or spoke when Alden entered. Though he would have liked to keep it that way, he had no idea which capsules might have been claimed by the others. They didn't have names on them like the lockers. How popular would I be if I stole their friend's job, butted in on their private party, and took one of their beds? Hi, he said to the room in general. I'm just getting in. Which of the beds are free? And what's the shower situation? Everyone present cast a glance his way, and then they all went right back to what they'd been doing. Like he was so unimportant they couldn't be bothered to speak to him. Before Alden could process the pure weirdness of this behavior, Manon answered him. Alden, she said, setting aside her magazine. We've all been wondering where you were. Long day? So she's going to be friendly? He was disinclined to accept it at face value, but it was easier to respond to at least. Yep, he said. The professor wanted me to run some extra errands after the lab exams were over. Wow, you've got a lot on your plate for your first day here. You must be tired. Let me show you around. She stood with a smile and grabbed a large rectangular case from the seat beside her. It was made of cream-colored fabric, and a round leather tag hung from the zipper. This is yours. She stepped out from behind the table and held the case out to him. It was on the floor in the locker room when I arrived, and I didn't want it to get stomped. Lots of traffic in and out of the elevator. Alden took the fabric case and saw that his name was stamped on the tag. This must be the Human Necessities package B.T. Iqul had promised him right after he was summoned. Thanks, he said to Manon. I'm looking forward to having clean clothes. I'm sure, she said. I've been caught off-footed by a summons quite a few times over the years. Hazard of the rabbit lifestyle. When I wasn't much older than you, I ended up arriving at a posting with nothing but a swimsuit and a bottle of tanning oil. She laughed. It was only a table-arranging assignment. But it was still embarrassing to be walking around laying out candles and dinnerware in a bikini. She had a warm laugh and an easy smile. She was wearing bunny bedroom slippers. If Alden had met this woman before he met her friends, he would have felt at ease around her. Manon led him to the pods at the far end of the room. These four are unclaimed, she said, pointing. Then she leaned toward him and whispered, to be completely honest with you, it's because of the neighborhood. She gestured at the last sleeping capsules in the line. The bottom one was shut tight, and a sticker that said get off my lawn was pasted to the privacy panel. Thwart hog? Alden guessed. She's not too much trouble. The creases around Manon's dark eyes deepened in concern. She was here last year as well, so she must be a regular employee for one of the faculty. We've only spotted her a few times in the past, and she doesn't seem to want to interact. Thankfully. But if you feel uncomfortable around an unregistered, I could swap spots with you? 
Alden wondered if the offer was serious or if she just thought it was a polite thing to say. After all, what did it matter if he was here or a few capsules over? They were all sharing the same room. It's fine, he said. Well, if you see a woman walking around in a fencing mask, it's best to ignore her and let her ignore you. A fencing mask? It's similar to one at least. We can't see her face through it, she sighed. It's concerning, but what can we do? After that, Manon filled him in on shower etiquette, no more than 15 minutes per person in the evenings, 10 in the mornings, and left him to his own devices. Alden carried his goodie bag back to his locker and opened it, both curious and nervous to see what supplies he'd have to work with for the next several days. He was fairly horrified to discover a bunch of black turtlenecks and matching black pants. The pants had a stretchy waist and looked like overly voluminous joggers. They'd be comfortable if nothing else. But a turtleneck? I'll sweat to death. The fabric felt like cotton, but it had a sheen to it. Maybe it's cooler than it looks? There was a device in one corner of the locker room that vaguely resembled a washing machine. If the turtlenecks didn't work out, he guessed he could just do laundry every night. He'd also been given a brown garment that he thought was a bathrobe. Or maybe pajamas. He wasn't sure. It looked like a long pillowcase with holes cut out for his head and arms, and though it was a nice, soft pillowcase, he didn't think it was something he was supposed to wear to work. Totally normal human briefs had been provided. They were still in the plastic packaging, and at the sight of them, he felt love for his fellow man. He did wonder why the Artinans were willing to provide underwear from Earth but nothing else. A toothbrush would have been nice, but instead he got gum. And not even sticks of gum? But a single blue disc pressed into a little metal canister with a picture of an alien molar on the cap. The system helpfully translated the writing on the bottom, and Alden discovered that the gum was reusable, which reminded him of that one creepy kid in elementary school who would eat old pieces off the bottom of desks. For deodorant, there was a tube with a rollerball applicator full of some kind of cream, and there was a straight razor that looked like a miniature butcher knife with a sharp hook on the end. Alden didn't necessarily have to shave, and he decided that if the mood struck him, he'd only do it with the lab coat on. Maybe the extra dexterity would keep him from chopping his own nose off or accidentally piercing it with the awkwardly placed hook. The last thing in the case was a bottle of multivitamins. That was probably a good thing. He didn't know the nutritional content of the food here, but considering how much of his diet had been made up of unwanted fruit juice today, he doubted it was balanced. He took a pair of pants and his super stylish pillowcase robe with him to the bathroom. When he opened the curtain, he almost walked right into the stocky, angry guy from the medical team. Sorry, Alden said, stepping out of the way. He tensed up as the guy passed, but all he got was a grunt and a glare. Could have been worse. The bathroom was far less communal than he'd feared. Toilets were hidden away in their own individual closets, and though there were only four shower stalls, they were spacious and private. The showers were more of an adventure than he would have liked, though. 
They had a wash cycle, during which soapy water the temperature of the sun blasted him from every angle, followed by a cold water rinse cycle, and then a bonus moisturizer cycle, which was just odd. It misted him from head to toe with something herbal and oily before he realized what was happening and that he needed to escape. He managed to towel most of the stuff off, and it was good to be clean even if he did smell like alien body spray. By the time he was done, the bathroom was empty, and he could briefly pretend that he had the whole place to himself. He checked out the rest of the space, discovering that one of the toilet closets was actually a storage closet. Manon's cooler was there alongside cases of drinks and bags of snacks. There were also some cleaning supplies and an unloved webby dispenser gathering dust. Alden debated the morality of taking a granola bar from the boater and decided that they owed it to him for making his lunchtime unnecessarily hostile. It was a good granola bar, too. Lots of dark chocolate chips. With fifteen minutes remaining until the system sent him to his sleep capsule like a naughty toddler, he finally left the bathroom. He'd been hoping to be the last one up so that he wouldn't have to chat again, but Manon was still at the table. She'd set aside her magazine, and now she was filing her nails. Night, said Alden, striding past her with purpose. Just a sec, Han, said Manon. I wanted to talk to you without everyone listening in, and if you're going to be as busy as you were today, there won't be many opportunities. Alden glanced pointedly at the capsules. They weren't far away. Soundproof, said Manon, for a restful night's sleep. Of course, said Alden. Manon glanced up. I won't beat around the bush. Everyone was at their worst when you arrived. Carl in particular. Alden assumed Carl was the angry one. But that's no excuse, Manon continued, looking back down at her nails. You're just a kid. And it's always better to keep things friendly and professional on a job. So don't worry about it. I had a talk with everyone for you. They won't bother you anymore. Or ask you to chip in to cover Pineda's lost salary. It took Alden several long seconds to process what she'd said, and several more to reign in his surprise. Was that what all the talk about money was leading up to earlier? Did the members of the boater think that he should give them the money he was getting for being on the medical team? They hadn't actually gotten around to suggesting anything like that. And Alden didn't think he was so bad at picking up context clues that he would have missed strong hints in that direction. But maybe. I told them I'd cover Pineda, Manon added with a soft smile. It's my responsibility as the founding member of the boater anyway. Oh, said Alden, still off-footed. Okay. Maybe they usually split money from jobs with members who weren't summoned? Or something like that? So don't worry about it anymore, Manon said. And if anyone gives you a hard time, come straight to me, all right? She's so nice, thought Alden. But wasn't she a little too nice? No, he hated thinking that way. Some people were kind when they didn't need to be. He really did believe that. And it was a dick move to assume that someone's positive qualities were fake when you didn't have any proof. If something's off, I'll figure it out tomorrow, when I'm not so tired and paranoid. Thanks, he said. 
I'll do that. She grabbed her magazines and headed for her sleeping capsule. Good night, Alden, she said. See you bright and early. And help yourself to any of the snacks in the storage area if you want. They're for everyone. She climbed into a top bunk and disappeared. Alden went and fetched another granola bar for himself, then headed to his own capsule. The short ceiling was a little claustrophobic, but the bed was comfortable. There was a reading lamp that pulled out from the wall and a small shelf. The sleeping pills were in a little storage cubby. He didn't need one. Almost as soon as he settled under the crisp, clean sheets and put his head down, he was asleep. 32. Chaining Over the next few days, Alden grew more comfortable with his new routine. The sleeping capsule woke him up with a false sunrise each morning, and his interface gave him his task list for the day. He always had around an hour and a half of personal time before he had to be at the lab for the first exam session. He hid out in his pod until the last minute, taking advantage of the privacy and the temperature control. He ate whatever snack he'd stashed the night before, thought over the lesson he'd had with Joe the previous evening, and got in touch with his friends. Their time was out of sync, so for the past two mornings his call had reached them when they were in class. Only they never were in class. Somehow they always both managed to be standing out in the faculty parking lot when he called, even though he'd suggested that they just let him text them an update. He thought it was only half to assuage Jeremy's nerves. Bo just enjoyed seeing how often he could manipulate teachers into letting him do whatever he liked. Everything seemed to be going well at home. Aunt Connie wasn't wise to his absence. The school thought he had a severe case of mono, and his friends were busy planning out Alden's future for him. They were spending way too much time researching high schools and personal trainers on Anisadora considering the fact that they themselves would never be taking advantage of those things. He started to tell them not to do it. He was really looking forward to figuring it all out for himself as soon as he got home. But it wasn't like they were taking something away from him and they were having fun. Bo was particularly interested in finding ways to spend every single dime of Alden's money. He'd begun by suggesting fairly normal purchases, but now he'd moved on to more creative things. I'm not ready to try experimental gene editing on myself, thanks, said Alden on his fifth morning at Leafsong. They were using voice only today. While they talked, he was making an effort to stretch in the confined space of the capsule. Where's your sense of adventure? You could be a super superhuman if you just paid this guy to inject you with the stuff he made in his attic. Aha. Uh -huh. I like Jeremy's suggestion better this morning. Right, Jeremy said. It's almost a million per year, but you get customized meals, healer access, and a chauffeur. He was talking about the amenities at a fancy, all-inclusive apartment complex in F-City. He should cook for himself and walk on legs with genetically superior musculature. Alden laughed. I'm going to go broke just making these phone calls every day. You two go back to class. Talk to you again tomorrow. Wait a minute, said Bo. I have info about the sailor rabbit. 
It took Alden a second to realize he meant Manon. They hadn't spoken about the boater in a couple of days. Considering the fact that he lived with the other humans, he really didn't have that much contact with them. As Manon had promised, they were all decent in passing, and they didn't bother him during lunch breaks. Everyone seemed to want him to stay out of their way, and in return they stayed out of his. It wasn't what he'd expected or hoped for, but it was working. What is it? I think she might be one of the first people who ever selected the Taylor environment skill. It's a popular one for rabbits, though. Yeah, no. But thirty-something years ago when Manon first became an avowed it wasn't. I can't find anyone else from her generation that has it. It only became well known about fifteen years later. When a guy from India chose it and turned himself into a successful television personality with it. That's interesting, said Alden, but I don't really get why it matters. Well, you were saying the other day that you thought your own skill had a lot of unexplored depth to it, and that maybe, with practice, it could be developed into something more flexible. Right. Alden wasn't able to share the fact that he was learning from Joe or the details of their conversations, but he could give his friends a rough idea of the more obvious things they'd discussed by implying he'd come to the realizations on his own. I was just thinking that after spending three and a half decades with her skill, Manon can probably do more with it than rearrange furniture. I have no clue what, though. I followed all her social media accounts. She presents as all open and friendly to her followers, but I think it's bullshit. Why do you say that? The others have kind of been jerks, but Manon took care of it for me. She's cooler than I thought. Bo paused. Yeah, he asked. Yeah, said Alden. I was really suspicious about her, but she hasn't done anything wrong. And she helped me out with the Pineda thing. That's great. Jeremy spoke up in a chipper voice. You didn't like her at all the last time you mentioned her. I was probably paranoid for no reason. She's fine. She is? Bo's tone was strange. She's the one who told her little fan club that you had lots of money the second you arrived, remember? So isn't it her fault if they thought the clueless new kid could be bullied out of tens of thousands of dollars? Alden frowned up at the smooth white ceiling of the capsule. That was right. Manon had told them all about his overpriced lab coat the morning he arrived. He'd almost forgotten. I mean, I guess it's normal, he said. Like if someone walked up wearing a giant diamond necklace, I might comment on how much it costs. You're comparing a luxury good with a piece of functional equipment, but I see your point. Just don't be too forgiving. I think your first impression was right, and something's off about her. When people ask her what she can do with her power, she only talks about arranging throw pillows and organizing offices for her clients. But she did a meet-your-senior interview with her college newspaper years ago. Don't even ask me how long it took me to find that, and she made it sound like her skill was for something else. What? She was pretty cagey even then. I guess that's normal, especially for a C-rank. If you've got a good thing, you don't want other people catching on and competing with you. 
She wouldn't say what the skill was called, but she said it was ideal for working in human resources, which is an incredibly dull thing to want to do with your superpower on the surface, but I'm sure you see. Alden sat up straight. Text me the full skill description for Taylor Environment. Sure, said Bo, because that's way different than arranging furniture. Right? And she did have a couple of small jobs along those lines before her skill became a known quantity. Almost as soon as it started getting popular, she hard pivoted into interior decorating, and now she acts like it was always her dream career. Alden checked the time. He was suddenly way more interested in figuring this out, but he only had a few minutes to get dressed and head over to the lab. Thanks, Bo. I only spent so much time on it because I like digging up dirt on people. Have fun disposing of bombs. Ah, there's not so much of that lately. The gifted students were in the first sessions. These are the normal ones. They get less dangerous stuff to play with. Jeremy spoke for the first time in a couple of minutes. Why do you sound disappointed? I'm not. It's just boring. I only got to use my skill on one project yesterday. I spent the rest of the time cleaning up ordinary trash. Poor baby avowed, said Bo, living a life so lacking in drama. I want practice, not drama. Now let me go. I'm going to be late. As usual, by the time he emerged from his sleeping capsule Alden was the last person left in the dorm. He grabbed some clothes from his locker and used one of the empty showers to change. The turtlenecks weren't as bad as he had initially feared. They were warmer than he would have liked, but whatever fabric they were made of wicked moisture much better than his cotton t-shirt did. All right, he said quietly after he'd pulled one on over his head. It's time for your desensitization training. He felt a sudden tension in his mind, and he tried not to be bothered by the fact that he wasn't sure if it was his own. Was the gremlin a foreign passenger or just a foreign-feeling part of him? Either way, it was about to get its daily dose of medicine. After he finished dressing, he stood still with his eyes closed and carefully recited the requester's half of the word chain for peace of mind. It was the one he'd been learning at the consulate before he'd become a universe traveler, and he'd decided to make it step one of his new gremlin improvement regimen. Finalizing the contract with Joe had been eye-opening. On the one hand, Gorgon's gift was clearly valuable. The system had told Alden it was exerting a stabilizing effect on his existence, which sounded like a plus and Joe had said it was fussy about contract alignment. The professor had been sorting out inconsistencies and doing all the magical labor for the tattoo on his end of things. Alden thought maybe the reason he'd had so much trouble was because the gremlin was a perfectionist about the very part of such contracts. That would be the most dangerous to the weaker party misunderstandings created by misaligned intentions. Since Alden would most likely always be the weaker party when he was contracting with wizards, this was a wonderful feature. It would be especially useful if he could figure out how to understand what parts of such an agreement were causing the disconnect. The gremlin was a genius. In some ways, 
Unfortunately, in others, it seemed to be simple-minded. Word chains were the main example of the problem. Ranting about the unevenness of the Velras was one thing. Members of that family would always be getting a little more than they gave when it came to chains. It was one of the perks of their class. But the fact that the gremlin went around hissing about other people's imbalances so often was more concerning. A word chain had a natural time delay. In theory, you said the requester's half got whatever perk you'd asked for, and then paid it back in the near future by reciting the portion for sacrifice. Or, if you were irresponsible, you just waited for it to snap back on you on its own terms. The gremlin's whining served zero purpose if it was just detecting a state of karmic flux that would eventually be put to rights by the chain itself. And after its passionate freakout during the tattoo session, Alden had started to worry about what was going to happen if he dared to become uneven himself for a brief time. So, on his second day at the university, he'd given it a try. The first thing he'd realized was that he was awful at word chains. He'd been right to wonder about it after watching Lute Velra cast one on all those other musicians at Hannah's funeral. Chains were way more demanding than anyone had ever told him. Alden knew his pronunciation of the words was above average, and he'd thought he was at least semi-decent at focusing his mind. His hand signs looked like the ones he'd seen in video demonstrations. He'd worked hard. But when he cast a couple of the ones he was most familiar with, the gremlin had remained silent. And Alden highly doubted it was taking a nap. He'd kept at it, making tiny tweaks to the peace of mind chain, until after a few dozen tries, he'd finally hit on a combination that made the gremlin start grumbling at him. In the moment, he felt relieved to have finally gotten the word chain right. But when he thought about it now, he was just pissed off. The requirements for the chain were incredibly specific. Too much wrist motion with your hand gesture would turn it into a dud. And it apparently wasn't okay to modify some of the more difficult pronunciations even a little bit. To learn word chains efficiently, you wouldn't need a classroom setting or an instructional video, which was what he'd always had. You'd need a competent private tutor to stand over you correcting your form and smacking you on top of the head when your breath pauses were too long. Alden was now fairly sure that the word chain teacher at the consulate couldn't manage to cast them regularly herself. He wanted hours of his life back. The gremlin wasn't much of a tutor, but it did let him know when he got the chain right. By complaining. At first, it was only a little upset. Alden had been sitting in his capsule at the time, waiting for curfew, and when he finally hit the right combination, he felt a warning from it about his unevenness followed by a really enjoyable lack of concern for its opinion. So I am supposed to notice it when peace of mind kicks in, he thought. He'd always assumed the effects of low-level word chains were just too small to detect. Turns out I was never casting them in the first place. In his unnaturally peaceful state, he easily drifted off to sleep, only to be woken twenty minutes later by the gremlin's complaints. Still only mildly annoyed, he'd listened to it for a while, 
He'd even tried to soothe it by explaining out loud that he wouldn't remain a lopsided, peace-stealing wretch for long. I'll say the other half tomorrow night, he promised it, and then I'll be nice and even again. But for whatever reason, this new part of his brain expected near-instant gratification. Maybe it was a little dumb, or maybe it just didn't trust Alden. Whatever the case, it grew louder and more insistent over the next hour, finally busting through his pleasant mood. I'm not going to give up an entire category of magic because you don't understand how it works. Alden snapped at it. He hoped the sleeping pods really were completely soundproof. Uneven. I'm uneven because this is a process, you jerk. I'm supposed to be blissed out right now, and you're ruining it. Alden had the unique experience of feeling like his own brain was hissing at him. He endured until curfew, then took one of the sleeping pills. You can complain to me while I'm unconscious, he'd told the gremlin in a triumphant voice. Apparently it had done exactly that because when he woke up the next day, his jaw hurt from grinding his teeth all night long. But at least he didn't remember it. From the experiment, he learned about a couple of important things besides his own incompetence with word chains. One was that the gremlin didn't get tired. It was complaining just as loudly in the morning as it had been when he went to sleep. Another was that it could only bother him incessantly, not actually force him to correct the word chain. He'd worried it might be able to, since his eating restrictions were so ironclad. Finally, he discovered that it could learn, albeit at a snail's pace. Instead of enduring all day and using the sacrifice half of the chain at night like he'd planned, Alden went ahead and said it when he woke up that morning. As soon as he started trying to pay up, the gremlin fell silent, and after a disheartening number of attempts at the chain, Alden earned himself a quieter but more anxiety-ridden mind. The peace of mind provided by the minor word chain only lasted about three hours, so the blowback had the same time limit on it. By lunch, he'd equalized, and he gave the gremlin another dose. This time, it waited a little longer before it started complaining. So, in theory, if he just kept at it he would eventually teach this part of his mind not to have such a knee-jerk reaction to word chains. Now, four days later, he was seeing a marked improvement. Not that this is the best thing ever for my mental health, he admitted to himself as he finally cast the word chain. It had only taken him four tries this morning. A new record. He finished dressing and left the bathroom. Between his first attempt and today, he'd gone through ten cycles with the peace of mind chain. This morning, he expected to get at least a full hour of calm before things got noisy in his head. After I completely master this chain, I'll start on another. He was hoping the gremlin didn't have to be trained on everyone individually. He wondered if taking Shenner would have helped him or if the accumulated debt would have driven him mad. Probably the second one. But Gorgon would have warned him before he took it, right? Somehow. Maybe? Aliens were hard to figure out. Alden requested a cart through the system so that it would be waiting for him when he took the elevator down. Then, he stepped through the curtain into the locker room and stopped at the sight of a woman standing there. 
She appeared to be around 30. She was wearing cargo pants, a sport bra, and a helmet-slash-fencing mask that completely obscured her head. She was tightening the laces on a pair of combat boots. Hi, Thwarthog, said Alden. A second after he said it, he realized that he probably wouldn't have spoken at all under normal circumstances. Manon had suggested he avoid contact, and while his questions about the other rabbit were fresh in his mind again after the phone call, he knew her advice wasn't bad in this case. To make matters worse, a few more seconds passed before his sense of propriety broke through the word-chain-induced calm and reminded him to stop placidly examining the reclusive, masked woman while she finished getting dressed. He looked away. I'm just on my way out. Nice to meet you. Have a good day. He strode purposefully past her toward the elevator and jabbed the button. Normally, I wouldn't care, but you look like you're just a kid, Thwart Hogg had a raspy voice and an Australian accent. You're not having some kind of emotional breakdown, are you? Surprised, Alden glanced over his shoulder. No, I'm fine. Thwart Hogg opened one of her lockers and pulled out a heavy vest. You were hiding out in the bathroom, begging for mental fortitude over and over, so I thought someone ought to ask. Guess your mates should have your back, but they seem like wankers. Oh, I'm not with the boater, said Alden. Then he realized she might not know the term either if she didn't live on the island, so he clarified the wankers. And I'm all right. It was a peace of mind word chain, but I'm just practicing. I recently realized that I'm not very good at them. Don't chain myself, said Thwart Hogg, zipping up the vest and reaching for a jacket embossed with sigils. Glad you're not losing it. People do sometimes, even on easy jobs. Are you? Alden was about to ask her if she was really unregistered. But it was a dumb question considering her obvious desire for privacy, so he changed his mind halfway through the sentence. Are you a brute? She was buff as hell and dressing in something that looked like it might be armor, so it was a reasonable assumption. Though she could have just been a fitness nut with job-specific gear. Yep. Strength type. I'm personal security for one of the students here. Politician's kid. Looks flashy to have an avowed bodyguard. Cool, said Alden. She didn't offer her rank, and he didn't ask. As he stepped onto the elevator, he wondered if they'd have another chance to talk. It seemed more likely that they'd never see each other again, all things considered. And despite the mask, she didn't give off evil villain vibes. He rode the elevator all the way down, thinking. Then instead of getting off he went back up. Thwart Hogg was standing right there, apparently about to head out herself. Forget something? I wanted to ask you a question, Alden said. You don't have to answer. Didn't think I did, Thwart Hogg replied, stepping in beside him and pressing the button for the ground floor. Manon, that's the middle-aged woman with the brown hair, the rabbit, said you were here last year, too. So you must have seen a little more of the boater members than I have. Are they hard to get along with? Or is it just me? Anasiderans almost never get along with avowed who refuse to live on their fancy prison island with them. 
especially the ones who were born there and think it makes them special. They take it personally. Oh, I see, said Alden. I guess that's probably true. Thwarthog turned her mask to face him. If you've got a real question, you should ask it without circling around it. Do I look like I have lots of spare time? Or like I care what they think? She did not. Alden shoved his hands into his pockets. I'm sorry. I'd ask outright if I knew what to ask. They're just not what I expected when I came here. That's all. Unfriendly, aren't they, said Thwarthog. To everyone except each other. Been here off and on for around 18 months now. Seen plenty of people come and go. Don't usually enjoy the company, but I don't go out of my way to avoid it. As soon as this bunch arrives, I want to hide out. Yes, said Alden, relieved to have someone else put it into words. Thwarthog grunted. You've got an American accent, not an island kid. And I guess at your age you're probably wondering if all avowed are like these ones. That wasn't exactly the case, but he had started to wonder if Hannah and her friends were outliers. It's my first ever assignment. I affixed really recently. Technically, I'm not even registered yet. The woman's whole posture brightened. Don't, she said at once. You can't see the world if you're stuck on Anishitara. Alden held back a groan. He immediately knew he'd never be able to say Anisidora without thinking of this ever-so-memorable alternate name at the same time. I want to be a superhero, and I don't think I would like to live my whole life in hiding. They stepped out of the elevator. Think again, and try to want something easier. But to answer your curiosity, yeah, something's not right with this group. I don't know what. They creep me out and you shouldn't think they're standard. You'll get along fine with other avowed probably. Alden climbed into the cart that had just arrived for him. Thanks for talking it over with me. Stop word-chaining so hard in the showers, said Thwarthog. Makes people worry. Alden laughed. The promised text message from Bo had arrived while they were talking, and as the cart headed toward the examination building, Alden opened it. His friend had chosen to respect the expensive connection fee by fitting an essay into a single message. There were about 15 questions and twice as many theories there, but Alden focused in on the information he'd asked for. Manon's base skill description was only a few words. Taylor Environment, Level 1, you have a knack for arranging possessions so that they suit their owner. 33. Falling. You have a knack for arranging possessions so that they suit their owner. Alden reread the skill description. In his message, Bo had added that the level 2 version of the skill had the exact same description, but with knack replaced by strong knack. If anyone has leveled it past that, they haven't posted the details online, he'd written. The foundational supplements were in dexterity, processing, and strength and they were small, just like Alden's had been. Seeranks who chose the skill had three traits to choose from, all active only during skill use. One would increase the accuracy of their movements, another muffled sound in their immediate vicinity, and the third was Rose Rabbit, which Alden himself had been offered. 
it was the one that increased attention to detail. As he headed up the hillside toward his destination, his cart trundling along in a line behind others that were filled with examinees, Alden tried to add up everything he knew about skills, Manon, and the boater. It wasn't a lot, but it was enough for him to be more nervous than ever about the other rabbit. The skill was obviously intended for the use most people put it to. The traits would all help you beautifully arrange physical objects for their owner. The one that muffled sound was probably for those who wanted to maintain a quiet presence while they did their work. Having had a lot of experience watching students in the lab recently, Alden could even see Taylor environment being a valuable skill in that setting. The assistance the examinees brought with them seemed to spend half their time making sure supplies were prepared, organized, and close to hand for their junior wizard. Manon would be amazing at that. Alden could think of a dozen other uses for the skill as well. Bo had said she did event planning and weddings in addition to interior decorating, but she'd be able to streamline almost any busy setting. Having exactly the things you needed in exactly the place you needed them at the right moment would be fantastic. The skill even had obvious support hero applications. If Alden had been a C-rank, he might have chosen it himself. It was a very rabbity talent, and a versatile one, too. So it's a little dark that Manon said she wanted to use it for human resources in that interview. I mean I get it, if you're good at knowing where things fit, you could theoretically be great at placing people inside an organization, too. But when Alden read a skill description about arranging possessions for an owner, his first conclusion was definitely not that he should try it out on people. The morality of it would depend on how the skill worked on living things in the first place. If Manon just had a general sense for where people would be most useful to their employer, that was okay. She could take B.T. Eichwell's job and do it twice as well. But if her knack gave her insight into why people fit in certain places, then it was getting closer to mind reading than most humans would be comfortable with. And if the arranging was an active part of the skill, maybe at higher levels, and gave her some additional ability to directly manipulate the things she arranged. Would it apply to another person's thoughts or actions? Wouldn't that would make her a knockoff version of a sway? Alden grimaced. Knowing what he did now about how a person's perception influenced what they could do with their skill, he thought it was definitely possible that Manon was doing at least a little bit of freaky mind control stuff with her power and knowing that she'd quit her job and leaned hard into decorating like it was her dream career as soon as the skill started getting popular, made it seem even more likely. You could keep info about your skill private and spin it however you wanted when it was just yours. But when it became popular and lots of other people picked it up, somebody who cared more about their follower count than trade secrets was bound to start showing off all the little nuances you'd prefer to keep to yourself. Especially at C-rank, when your peers made up more than 30% of all avowed. Even a rare class like Rabbit had enough representatives for people to start figuring everything out. 
Manon had the advantage of being a full generation or more ahead of most of the skills users. She probably had several levels under her belt. And luck or natural talent might have played a role in her figuring out alternate uses for the skill when she was young. But one day, other people who were a little twisted were going to think, what if I could somehow use this thing on humans, too? And as soon as one of them was careless enough to let it slip, all the other users would suddenly be subjected to intense scrutiny. There was no reason for her to drop her old job like a hot potato if the skill didn't have something similar to a mind control element. I mean, unless she really did just discover a sudden love for tablescapes. For a while, Alden toyed with the idea that Leafsong had even hired Manon for the purpose of keeping their other employees in line. But then he dismissed it. The Artnans weren't allowed to use mind control on avowed humans unless they presented an immediate, life-threatening danger to themselves or their summoner. And if they were going to violate the contract, they would probably do it with a real, S-rank sway hidden in the shadows. Not a middling rabbit using her skill in her own personal off-label way. So she must be doing it for herself, right? But how? And how would she become an owner of other people? Even if she was a megalomaniac who imagined that others belonged to her, that probably wouldn't be enough. Not for controlling other avowed. Not with a skill that wasn't exactly designed for it. He stared at the carnivorous plants along the pathway without really seeing them. Authorities would clash during mind control, right? For the past two nights, under Joe's tutelage, Alden had been grappling with a concept the professor usually translated as authority, dominion, or influence. Though he assured Alden that none of those were ideal word choices. It seemed to have no perfect translation in human languages, but it was the ability to impress your own desires upon everything, the fundamental essence of magical power. According to Joe, Artanans could feel this ability from birth and train it like a muscle. Most other species couldn't. As an avowed, Alden had the ability, and he could use it. But as a human, he lacked a conceptual framework and possibly the actual anatomy. That would allow him to feel it in the same way Joe did. Even his subconscious kept misinterpreting it as willpower or a lack thereof. That flaw was fairly normal for humans. And it was also what Sophie had been getting at when she was trying to make him stop doing his ragdoll impression in front of the lab cabinets the other day. Alden had decided it was like trying to control your own internal organs. Yeah, they worked for you. But for the most part you couldn't will them to do things. As for how that applied to Manon, when one person's authority came into conflict with another's, the stronger party would win. That was how Alden had lost a fight with a tree he hadn't even known existed. Joe was surprisingly unwilling to discuss how avowed ranks worked, but he'd indicated that they were heavily correlated with authority, and it was well known that Sways had more difficulty mind controlling other avowed. Higher-ranking sways could usually suppress lower-ranking ones. It stood to reason that Manon, as a C-rank, couldn't truly mentally enslave more than a dozen other people, and she couldn't really own them without them somehow yielding themselves to her. 
Does it work like that? There was no way to know for sure. Probably it had something to do with all the gifts. She was in charge of the boater. She got most of them their jobs. She fed them treats and paid for their phone calls and volunteered to cover Pineda's entire salary out of the goodness of her heart. Yeah, there's something there. Maybe she didn't own them in the most obvious sense of the word, but she'd been taking care of them all in a really overboard way for years. They were used to it. They liked it. They hadn't been able to shut up about how wonderful she was that day at lunch. Is she working on me, too? Alden felt a chill. He didn't remember when he'd started feeling grateful for Manon's help. He hadn't the first day. He'd thought it was weird. Now, after having his friends remind him that he didn't like the other rabbit, it seemed obvious that she hadn't done anything for him at all. So let's go all in on assuming she arranges people as well as furniture. How much can she actually do? It wasn't like Alden or the boater members were zombies. Maybe she couldn't even give them specific thoughts. Maybe she just pressed little by little on their emotions and made suggestions they were predisposed to agree with because they were weak to her influence. More like a cult leader than a full-on sway. That would explain a lot actually. Wasn't separating your members from outsiders basic cult psychology? Alden had begun to feel more kindly toward Manon, but only her. He and the other members of the boater went out of their way to avoid each other. And Thwarthog said she felt like she should stay away from them, too. It had started that first day. They'd naturally been upset about the loss of some of their co-workers for this event. But it shouldn't have made all of them hostile to Alden. One or two people incorrectly assigning blame in such a simple situation might be normal. But fourteen of them? It was crazy to imagine a rabbit altering people's minds. But didn't it actually make more sense if all that unnecessary hostility was manufactured? It would have been so easy for Manon to just casually point out all the unlikable things about Alden. Isn't he too young? Isn't he unqualified? He's a higher rank than we are. Maybe he thinks he's better than us. He's rich. He got Pineda fired. He doesn't even need a job, and he got a double quest. Something like that. I would resent me, too. And if someone who'd had little hooks in your brain for years made those same suggestions, you ended up with an even more warped perspective. Alden wondered if Manon had actually wanted her cultists to hit him up for money so that she could save the day for everyone, or if she just pushed a little too hard and that was the direction they'd headed in on their own. Personally, if I was manipulating everyone I would have tried to lessen drama, not fan the fires. Maybe she'd panicked because he didn't fit into the arrangement. Maybe keeping the group together was a little like interior decorating, and Alden was a garish rug ruining the feng shui of Manon's carefully designed house. And she'd been overeager to keep him away from the others. That was comforting to some extent. It meant she wouldn't want to add him to the collective. But what am I supposed to do about her if I'm right about all of this? Nothing right now, obviously. He didn't want to tip Manon off, have her whip the cult into a frenzy and get murdered in his sleep. He'd have to wait until he was back home. He could call Clai Zhao and ask her to handle it.
Tell her he thought there was a rabbit using low-level mind control on other avowed. Let the actual sways snap Manon's influence like a twig and the mind healers try to clean up whatever mess she'd made of everybody's personality. His cart dropped him off at the building on top of the hill, and he followed a group of chattering Artanen teens inside. Calling Ms. Zhao is probably the right choice, but even that feels bad. It would be like dropping a bomb on all the other people with the Taylor environment skill, life ruining for many of them. The vast majority of them were probably innocent, but their friends and co-workers and spouses would all suddenly have to wonder, how could they not? Do I like you because I like you? Or did you make me do it? There was a reason so many sways only made friends with other sways. What a mess, Alden thought, glancing out a wall of windows to take in the expansive view of the jungle canopy. In the distance, a flock of lime-green birds rose into the air. He'd seen a few of their kind around campus. He liked them because even up close they looked like they might have come from Earth. Just ordinary birds that did ordinary bird things. He was starting to value every glimpse of home he got more and more. He was glad the peace of mind chain let him appreciate them now, even with this many anxiety-inducing thoughts rattling around in his head. The rebound from it was going to be a pain today. He stopped by the breakfast room to grab a water bottle for himself, and he noticed with fresh eyes how a woman from the boater scurried away from as soon as he entered, like she thought he had cooties. It's too much. I can't believe I wasn't even more suspicious. He took the stairs down to the basement level, and as he walked through the white corridor toward the lab he typed a message to Bo and Jeremy. Remind me every time we talk that Manon is dangerous, and she's not my friend. The lab exams that day were uneventful, though once Alden's peace of mind wore off and he performed the sacrifice half of the chain they felt eventful. He spent the early afternoon worrying about how to hide his suspicions from Manon and staring too hard at a klutzy examinee, who kept spilling chemicals all over the place. The poor guy only became progressively clumsier under the weight of Alden's nervous gaze. By the time the exam session was over, Acid had eaten away part of the examinee's table, and Joe told him he'd failed in an unnecessarily cheerful tone. You're too tense today, Sophie said later while they cleaned up the messes the students had left. You smell like prey. You sure know how to make a guy feel confident. Alden was scraping chunks of perpetually smoldering wood into a pail. He wasn't sure if he was supposed to wet them or smother them before he added them to the rest of the pile. They were collecting near the teleportation alcove, and Joe had left the lab to visit with one of the other professors. I'm fine, Alden added. I'm just practicing a word chain, and I'm on the worrywart end of it. He did wonder how well Sophie could actually smell him through her helmet, though. If I found you on my planet, I would hunt you. Would you really? Alden asked. He had been curious about it. Grivix were notorious for being culturally okay with murder in a wide number of circumstances. They weren't mindless killing machines, despite their reputation, but their take on the subject was unique to their species. I am being humorous. Obviously, 
It would be monstrous to slaughter you after giving you permission to contact me. Like that. A rule about not murdering people after giving them your phone number implied that if Sophie hadn't given him permission to send her private messages, slaughter would still be on the table. That's good. I like hanging out with you even if it is just for work. It would be a downer if we met again and you killed me. We are unlikely to meet in person again. You're too weak to handle the gravity on Shriek. And I would like to see Earth, but your planet does not allow Grivik tourists for some reason. I appreciate the sentiment, though. About twenty minutes later, Alden was finishing up the work while the Grivik kept him company. He was always the last one done, since many of the chores required fingers and Sophie didn't have them. So only the S ranks, I mean the topmost ranks, become RyBTS on your planet? How does that even work? Alden was tightening all the caps on the bottles in the mini fridges. Because apparently the examinees were a bunch of privileged ingrates who were incapable of doing it themselves. Sophie had been telling him about her planet's avowed, and it was blowing his understanding of the system out of the water. Her species had ended up with an entirely different class setup from humanity. They only had two of them, and they didn't even consider them to be classes. There were just bunches of avowed who got to pick from a menu of hardcore combat skills and physical buffs, and a few overpowered RyBTS who spent all their time trying to figure out how to turn their domestic helper skills into hardcore combat ones. Our ancestors made the agreement long ago. Nobody wished to deprive our gifted cubs of the chance to become great warriors, but the Artanans insisted we have RyBTS. At least, even if we refused all their other subclassifications of avowed. We compromised by agreeing that the number of us chosen for Rybeat would be kept to the bare minimum, and that they would be our most powerful members. That way their overall strength makes up for their other weaknesses in battle. Alden suddenly wondered if the Grivik felt sorry for him. Here he was, Mr. Tote's stuff around. The B-rank Rybeat who was currently coming down from a self-inflicted anxiety spiral while she was a rapid-regenerating organic tank. He cleared his throat. You know, Rabbit is a pretty popular class on Earth. Even if it's not the best for combat, lots of people want it. Humans are damaged. And I can do things you haven't seen yet. I can run pretty fast. Sophie tilted her helmet. Want to race? Oh, he'd walked right into that one. It wouldn't be appropriate indoors. You're an amusing. A piercing whistle sounded, and Alden clapped his hands to his ears. His vision brightened alarmingly as text filled it, and a voice spoke the words simultaneously. Emergency teleport authorized. Enter the nearest alcove immediately or brace for transport. Teleport in four. Alden was already on his feet and running for the alcove that they'd just used to dump all the garbage. His body was being driven more by adrenaline than thought. 3. What's going on? Minor medical emergency. Approved responders. 1. Prepare to follow. 2. Instructions from summoner on scene. Alden's heart was pounding. What was he about to be dropped into? 
Was he really going to be the only person responding? What if he screwed up? He slammed into the alcove, barely managing to avoid smacking his head. The space was hardly big enough for a person. Alden wasn't even sure it counted as a full-service teleportation device. Maybe it was just a direct connection to the dump and the system wouldn't even use it? Wait, what am I supposed to do in a medical emergency again? Follow instructions. Write the pills. I packed the bottle of emergency drugs this morning, didn't I? I think. The runes on the alcove lit up, and before Alden could finish his thought, he was outside in the humid air. And he was falling. 34. Fishing. There wasn't time to panic, though perhaps Alden should have. In his limited experience, teleports didn't usually land you 30 feet up in the air in the jungle, above a shallow-looking pool of water surrounded by screaming teenage artinans. Alden dropped like a stone while the system flashed the words assume diving posture at him like it thought he could just do that in an instant. Under these conditions, he fell feet first, his lab coat flapping around his elbows, and he barely had the presence of mind to hold his breath before he hit the water. It burned as it went up his nose, but Alden was too busy kicking furiously to care. The coat was not designed for swimming, nor were the jogger pants. He had to hold the elastic band in one hand to keep them from dropping down and tangling around his feet. His lungs were burning when he breached the surface. He drew in a huge breath. A tiny waterfall, just a trickle a few inches wide, spilled into the pool from a fern-covered rock face in front of him. Treading water, he turned away from it toward the shore, trying to find the emergency he was supposed to help with. There was an awful lot of shouting over there. It was a confusing spectacle of Artinan teens running back and forth, yelling hysterically and waving their arms at him. There were about ten of them. His targeting halo was glowing brightly over the only one who didn't seem to be panicking, though she was gesturing at him and calling something insistent. Isn't that the girl who made the macrame project out of animal skins on the first day? They'd met in the elevator, too. She was one of the ones Joe actually liked. Gel something. He started to swim toward her, but then the system translated what she was saying. Alden Rybeat. Get it. Get the beast behind you. Catch it. Alden spun in the water, heart racing, looking for the beast. He expected to see something on the verge of attacking him. Instead, he saw a dark brown shape swimming away from him at an angle. He only managed to spot it because the water was so crystal clear. It was lightning fast. He didn't have a sense of its size because he wasn't actually sure how far away it was. The pool was deeper than it appeared, and he couldn't really make out the animal's shape before it darted down behind a rock. It seemed to have tentacles. Was it some kind of alien squid? A squid having a medical emergency? A student that had accidentally turned themselves into a squid? If he didn't catch them in time, would they be unable to revert? Calm down, you lunatic. You're not making any sense. You need more information. What do you mean, catch it? He shouted back at Jell Girl. How am I supposed to do that? She had one of the system access tablets, and she waved it at him. 
Hurry. We can't let it digest too much. Alden felt like a digest was a very bad word in this context. Trying to keep his head, he asked, what did it eat? Please don't say a person. Please don't say a person. For different teens, including the girl, Jelnor. Right. That was her name, looked toward a boy lying on the shore. Alden hadn't even noticed him because he was being still and quiet. Really still and quiet. Alden almost thought he was unconscious, but then he made out the guy's lips moving furiously. He was either casting a spell, praying, or chaining for all he was worth. Then, a girl who'd been standing between them shifted a few steps, and Alden's mouth went dry. Oh shit, he whispered. Where is his foot? There was blood staining the leaf litter by the water's edge, but not quite as much as he would have expected. The Artanen boy was obviously doing a good job with his spell, but how long would that last? Jelnor read her tablet then gave Alden an exasperated look, as if his question was too stupid to answer. He stared at her. You want me to catch something that ate somebody's foot? It can be reattached, Jelnor called. Just get it back. I can't catch a freaking water monster. That's not what my skill does. Alden protested. You need to call one of the professors and get that guy to a hospital. Why the hell hadn't they already done that? You will catch the Mishnan first. Its digestion process is swift. If we don't obtain the foot quickly too much damage will be done to the tissues. Some of the other teens were looking between the two of them doubtfully and whispering now. Alden's mind raced. Was he just being a coward? It was hard to tell because he was, in fact, pretty freaked by the idea of chasing a mystery monster that apparently bit people hard enough to sever limbs. But he didn't think that was the only reason he was hesitating. Shouldn't he go pick up the wounded guy so that he could help him stave off blood loss? Ever since he got this assignment, Alden had tried to picture what he might do if a medical crisis did arise and none of his imaginings had involved chasing after a wild animal. He thought protecting the injured person from shock while they teleported to a medical facility made much more sense. But Jelnor was supposedly a genius, and she seemed really sure, and the system had let her do an emergency summons for this. I guess I have to at least try? All right, he said, fighting to remove his coat while keeping his head above water. Do I get a net or something? The Artanans all stared at him like he'd asked them for a pony. No net then, he muttered. Okay. When he'd finally rid himself of the coat and his shoes, Alden took the deepest breath he could and dove underwater. It had been a long time since Kitty swim class in Mrs. McGugall's backyard pool when he was six, and that was the closest thing he'd ever had to formal lessons. He'd been considering signing up for lifeguard training next summer, but that wouldn't do him much good now. He could hold his breath as well as an average human and swim in the right direction with noble intentions. That was about it. The water stung his eyes, but at least he could clearly see the rock the foot-eater had hidden itself behind. His only hope was to, what? Stick his hand behind the rock, offer it his own flesh, and hope that his skill activated when it bit down, like he was noodling for catfish? 
Jelnor had told him to get the animal. Maybe that was enough. But what if, if it was an intelligent beast that couldn't be entrusted against its will? Or what if no animal could be unless it was already captured? He hadn't had a chance to test that. And he hadn't asked Joe because it seemed like a waste of a question when his lesson time was limited. Crap. I don't know what to do. Alden had to surface for another gulp of air before he even made an attempt to catch the creature. He'd started to lose his pants again. They were in the way. Maybe he should take them off and try to use them as a lure somehow? He ignored the cries and questions from the shore and dove again. By the time he got down to the animal's hiding place, he was already hungry for air. But he kicked his legs free of the joggers and stuffed a rounded stone from the bottom of the pool into them. His enemy was nearly hidden under the sand. Alden could only make out a single patch of smooth, mottled brown skin. He still wasn't sure of the overall size of it either. Big enough to bite off a foot. This is a bad idea. Shit. Why is this my job? I can think of so many people who would be better than me. Heart pounding and lungs burning, Alden dropped his weighted pants on top of the mystery monster from a couple yards above and watched, ready to launch himself away at the first sign of attack. He already knew the thing was too fast in the water for him to catch. Since that was the case, he could only hope that it was dumb and stubborn. If it was the kind of animal that would bite down and hold on, maybe there was a faint chance he could drag it back to shore? But no, it wasn't that kind of animal. The second the pants touched it, the creature shot away in a swirling cloud of sand. Panicking at the sudden movement even though he'd been expecting it, Alden swam away as fast as he could, too. When he made it up for air again and gasped, the animal was still cutting through the pool in search of another hiding spot. It had almost crashed right into him when it made its escape, and he could see it well enough now. It was like a smooth-skinned crocodile thing with four thick flailing tentacles instead of a tail. Scary as heck. And about the size of a large dog if you didn't count the tentacles. So the pants idea was never going to work. Alden might win a tug-of-war game with it on land, but he'd drown if he tried it underwater. Jelnor was shouting orders. The system was translating them. But she could go on ordering him to be some Olympic swimming, gator-wrestling hybrid until she was blue in the face. It didn't mean Alden would suddenly become one. And he'd literally just made his best, spur-of-the-moment effort to fight the baby kraken for her. He was all out of creativity. He needed a tool, or a spell, or help. Alden looked back at the gathered teens to tell them that. One of the girls was on her knees beside the injured boy now, applying pressure to the bloody spot where his foot had been with her jacket. Where's the rest of the medical team? Did they not call them? Does the system not automatically summon everyone needed to handle an emergency? Well, it might not. It seemed like it made suggestions, and the summoners made final decisions. Plus, summoning wasn't entirely free, and it wasn't like the system itself cared if people lived or died. Probably there were all kinds of intricate rules, settings, and exchanges involved that Alden knew nothing about. But he really doubted Leafsong was skimping on emergency services. 
BTI Cool had complained that there were too many members of the medical team and they never had anything to do. Alden was positive a little local teleport wasn't too much of burden, considering they were regularly ordered up to dispose of trash in the lab. Does that mean the system recommended me and I'm sufficient for this task? He wanted to believe in himself, but it seemed like a stretch. He stared at the foot-eater. It was still swimming around in fast circles. Maybe, maybe I can do it? If I just get close enough to get a hand on it? He tried to rearrange his thinking. If he was here, there was something he could do. Perhaps this was a pivotal moment in his life as an avowed, and he was about to discover some exciting hidden facet of his power. Yeah, sure, that's likely. Then, he spotted something familiar trailing along with the monster's tentacles. It was Jelnor's finished project from the lab Alden was sure of it. The knotted pieces of skin she'd made had been woven into a sort of lasso with a matching bracelet after she'd returned for her second session. It would assist her with summoning something somehow, though Alden had never gotten a clear notion of what that would look like. I bet it looks like this, he thought. And I bet this isn't supposed to be happening out in the woods without an instructor around. System, I don't understand my current assignment. Please clarify it. It responded without hesitation. Assist with minor medical emergency. Nature of the medical emergency is a severed limb with one individual in need of stabilization and transport. Follow instructions from summoner on scene. Do you require further clarification? Alden treaded water. Jelnor and a couple of the others kept shouting at him, asking him why he wasn't capturing the crocosquid and ordering him to get to work. He didn't like this. He thought what was happening was that Jelnor and her friends had summoned and tried to control this thing when they weren't supposed to. It had gone wrong. The system must have authorized an emergency teleport because someone was seriously injured and Alden's skill could stabilize the victim. But instead of using him that way, the examinees were hoping he could catch their mistake. Maybe they think they can dispose of it and fix everything before the school finds out? That seemed overly ambitious. Did they plan to reattach the hurt guy's foot all by themselves? Even if they could do that, there's no way they can hide the fact that I was summoned for an emergency. I'm working for the university. They yanked me away from the lab when I was on duty there. There has to be some kind of notification for the head of the medical team at least. Possibly if the monster was gone and they could persuade Alden not to mention it. They thought they could say the accident had happened some other way? That sounded dumb. But maybe they were being dumb. Surely even genius junior wizards could be scared and stupid sometimes. A guy had lost a limb, so it clearly hadn't been a day for good decisions. Where does that leave me, though? Time is of the essence, Alden Rybeat, Jelnor shouted. You must catch it right away. If time was of the essence, then this task wasn't just unreasonable. It was impossible. The only chance they had was if the monster decided to attack Alden and his skill activated. Fortunately for him, the beast didn't seem interested in doing that. Alden swam toward shore. As soon as he started moving, the Artanans stopped yelling at him. 
Maybe they thought he had a plan. He did not. He knew he couldn't afford to piss off a bunch of wizards, even untrained ones who seemed to be around his own age. But someone here had to be logical. He climbed out of the water, and they all took a step back from him. Maybe he looked angry? He was only frustrated and nervous. And it wasn't like he could do anything to them anyway. Up close, he could see that the boy on the ground was gritting his teeth now. Someone had arranged colorful gemstones in a line on top of his chest, and the kneeling girl who was applying pressure to his wound was definitely casting something. Alden looked at Jelnor. He'd thought she wasn't panicking like the others when he first dropped in, but now he realized she was just holding it in a little better. Her hands were shaking. She was still wearing the macrame bracelet that matched her lasso around one wrist. I am not capable of catching that thing, he said, trying to keep his tone firm and calm. Not quickly. Maybe I could manage it eventually, if I had time to think up some kind of trap. But if you want to get your friend's foot back in a hurry, you have to summon someone else. She stared at a spot just over his shoulder. You, you must capture it, she said in a voice that trembled. I have summoned you here, and I command. The guy standing nearest her grabbed her by the arm. Don't. His voice was harsh. But we have to. If the task is truly impossible and you try to enforce it that way, he can request arbitration, he snapped. Being denied admission to Leafsong is not as serious as being charged with contract abuse. I agree, a girl added, glancing nervously at Alden. My family would disown me if I was involved in that kind of scandal. If you formally enforce after summoning under false pretenses, I'll report it myself. Cowards, someone else spat. Maybe you two don't need a scholarship to a good school, but I. Before long, half the group was screaming at each other, and Jelnor was crying while she held her tablet in a white-knuckled grip. Alden was so tense he couldn't unlock his jaw to speak. Not that he knew what to say anyway. These guys obviously need a grown-up. He was fairly sure he was right about the situation now at least. For some reason, they thought they could hide their crime if they banished Crocosquid and got the foot back. Alden stepped over to the injured person. When the girl casting the spell paused for breath, he leaned over the two of them and said nervously, Do you want me to hold him? It's what my skill's actually good for. She blinked up at him, a vague expression on her face as if she were trying to snap herself out of a trance. Surprisingly, it was the victim who answered. He'd bitten his lips until they bled, and he was panting. But his eyes snapped open and flicked to Alden. There were rings of golden metal around his irises. Alden had seen a few different artinans with those. He thought they were probably devices similar to Joe's smart monocle. I can endure, the boy said stiffly. I do not require treatment yet. This is merely a trial of suffering on the path to my future. Alden stared at him. Was this guy for real? He was missing a body part. Are you serious? An injury such as this is meaningless compared to my purpose. I don't expect a human to understand. We must, we must draw the Mishnan in. It has locked onto me. It will come if we bait it. 
The girl trying to heal him looked shocked, and it took Alden a second to realize what he meant. You mean bait it with yourself? Will that even work? I was just swimming with it, and it ran from me. Maybe it's not hungry after its last. He trailed off because it seemed rude to call his foot a meal. Why would it be attracted to you when we are so nearby? A Mishnan can only eat a few times in its life. It prioritizes quality. Alden thought this idiot might have just insulted him. Well, I'm here to help an injured person, he muttered. If you feel so good you want to go fishing, then send me back to the lab. It will work, an eager voice said. Alden turned to see Jelnor's face brightening. In the moment it attacks him, you can stop it with your skill. If you bring it onto land, I can kill it. We'll retrieve his foot and dispose of the beast while you take him to receive medical care. All will be well. Alden side-eyed her. I mean, I guess. But how were they going to explain the foot getting severed and partially digested in the first place? Well, that wasn't Alden's business. What was his business was worrying whether or not he could get in trouble for going along with this scheme. Dangling a bleeding person in a pond to lure Squidzilla was extreme. What if it went totally wrong, the guy died or lost another limb, and the assembled teenagers tried to pin the blame on Alden? Could they do that? Joe had said working under orders would protect him from repercussions. But this group seemed off the rails. Would the system back Alden up if they lied and said he'd misconstrued their instructions or just failed at them? He wasn't sure. He wanted to ask the system outright, but he didn't want them to hear him. And while they were all hyping each other up to go fishing for their monster, another, more chilling, thought suddenly occurred to Alden. What if they get me killed on purpose? There was a lot of desperation in the air. The one who wanted a scholarship seemed capable of it. Jelnor and the injured guy did, too. They weren't supposed to be able to outright murder him. But if they deliberately put one of their friend's lives in danger and then ordered him to protect them, that's kind of what they're doing with this bait plan anyway. Alden hated making a split-second decision under these circumstances. The last thing he wanted was to make a bunch of Artanans furious with him. But he was willing to admit he was in over his head. He punched a button on his interface and started typing. What are you doing? The victim gasped. Alden had to hand it to the guy. He was really sharp for someone who was slowly bleeding out. I'm looking for a spell that will help me catch the Mishnan, Alden said. I have one left to affix. The boy closed his eyes. That is a worthy thing for you to do, he said. And he actually sounded moved. One day, when I become a knight of the Mother Planet, I will summon you often and pay you well to thank you for your sacrifice. Alden smiled in spite of himself. This guy really was serious about something. Being a knight? He was also self-confident to the point of stupidity. I can't believe I just wondered if you would try to murder me, he muttered. You're kind of cool. In an insane way. I don't know what a knight of the mother planet is, but I'm sure you'll get there, man. Hopefully with both of your feet. Try not to hold this against me when you become an awesome wizard, okay? An answer to his message flashed across the screen, and he sighed with relief.
Good. I don't understand, the wannabe knight said. The girl who'd been healing him must have, though. Her eyes widened in alarm. Alden gave her an apologetic look. Then, loud enough to catch everyone's attention, he said, if it's any consolation. I called someone who might think you guys summoning a vicious creature you can't control is interesting and ambitious. I hope it works out for you all. About three seconds later, Joe teleported in. He arrived neatly on dry land beside the lake. I knew it wasn't normal for the system to drop me in the water, Alden thought. Had Jelnor been trying to land him directly on top of the monster to facilitate its capture? The professor was taking a bite out of one of the egg rolls Alden was so fond of, and he wore an expression of lively curiosity on his face as he examined the scene before him. Alden, you poor dear, he said. Where are the rest of your clothes? Did they get your coat wet? He glared at the assembled students. One of the girls burst into tears, and the boy who wanted the scholarship actually prostrated himself on the bloody leaves. Do you brats have any idea how much damage you could have done? What if my assistant couldn't swim? What if he'd been carrying a large quantity of alkali metal? What if I hadn't designed that beautiful coat of his to be waterproof? Um, Professor? Alden gestured at the guy on the ground. Whatever they'd been doing to seal his wound had obviously been forgotten in the shock of Joe's arrival. The shirt wrapped around his ankle was rapidly getting soaked with dark burgundy blood now. Oh, yes, Joe said in an unconcerned voice. It's him. I suppose you'd better haul him around while I deal with the rest of it. Just a moment. Let me. His eyes zipped around behind its smart lens, and a second later, Alden received a trio of messages. The first was a system notification letting him know that an official university representative was now on scene and should be obeyed. The targeting halo appeared over Joe's head. The second was a proper quest assignment to offer aid to the injured student. The third was a private message from Joe. I assume you're willing to keep your mouth shut about their little infraction, and you don't care how I handle the matter. Otherwise you would have called the head of the medical team instead of me. Is that right? Actually, Alden had made his choice mostly based on the belief that Joe wouldn't order him to fight a sea monster when he needed him alive, to complete his own dangerous quests every night. But it was a nice bonus that the professor might be inclined to help the students get away with their crimes. They'd all be able to summon Alden for whatever they wanted one day, and he didn't like the idea of them seeking vengeance against him ten years down the line. He made a zipper motion against his lips, which had Joe tilting his head in confusion, so he added an additional thumbs up. Wonderful, said Joe, rubbing his hands together and turning to admire the creature in the pool. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we will all be learning an important lesson. Mistakes have consequences. And having someone like me fix those consequences for you can be very expensive. 35. Stuart It took Joe around a minute and a half to handle the Mishnan. He pulled something that looked like a cigar case out of his pocket. Inside it were slender glass tubes full of different substances. 
he selected one filled with murky gray liquid, then took a pair of black rings from one of his fingers. When he slipped them onto the vial, they locked into a set of grooves that they'd clearly been designed for. The professor turned each ring carefully, obviously trying to align them with each other in a specific way. When he was satisfied, he clasped the vial between both hands and stared into the distance for a few seconds, murmuring something under his breath. After he'd finished, the liquid had turned several shades paler, and it had a pink sheen to it. He dumped it unceremoniously into the pool, and within moments, the clear water was roiling with the Mishnan's violent death throes. Until that moment, Alden had been busy trying to convince the wounded Artanen boy that his personal trial of suffering was over now, and there was no good reason for him to refuse Alden's help in favor of heroically bleeding all over the jungle. It was proving surprisingly difficult, so he took a short break to stare at the Mishnan's brief but agonizing end. He felt sorry for the creature, even if it did eat people. It had probably been swimming around on its own world minding its business until Jelnor and company had brought it here. Just before the Mishnan died, there was a shrill sound, and violet lightning crackled across the surface of the pool. Then everything went quiet. Joe tucked the empty tube back into its case, then looked around at the assembled teenagers. Well, he said in a harsh tone, go get it. None of them budged. Alden couldn't blame them. Whatever he'd poured into the pool didn't seem like something you should swim in. The last one in will be in charge of collecting and preserving the organ responsible for the light show just now. You won't enjoy the method required even a little bit. Jelnor rushed into the water, and the others were hot on her heels. I don't think he meant you, Alden said exasperatedly as the victim he was supposedly in charge of struggled to sit upright. Superior professor, the boy cried. You can't assign such a dangerous task to them for my sake. A prosthetic appendage will be enough. I do not mind. Why is the assignment I gave you still so vocal, Alden? I understand you may find him amusing, but... He won't entrust himself to me, said Alden, waving his arms to gesture at the injured boy. I tried to pick him up, but he just flails around and shouts a lot about how he can endure more pain. He'd never imagined helping someone with a serious injury would require so much begging on his part. Joe sighed. Normally, I would suggest waiting until he passed out, but I think he might not unless he wants to. He comes from a rare background, and he has no doubt received a number of uncommon body modifications by this age. He might be able to maintain control of his awareness until he actually dies. He marched over, clasped his hands behind his back, and looked down at the boy with a pleasant smile. Stuart H., he said, if you were anyone else. We would drug you or hit you on the head with a rock until you were sufficiently addled for this fine young avowed to give you aid. Alden here is trying to use his skill to alleviate your pain and prevent further damage to your body. Why won't you be a good lad and let him carry you? I cannot leave the battlefield until everyone else is out of danger. 
The boy replied with such wide-eyed seriousness that Alden had to wonder how he and Joe could be members of the same species. It's my privilege to serve the Triplanets with my every. This isn't a battlefield, Stuart H. This is a wildlife preserve. You didn't lose your foot to an enemy of the Triplanets. You lost it to an alien animal on the restricted summons list. One that can't emerge onto land, by the way, which means you must have gone into the water with it. Like a fool. I can't believe his name is Stuart, Alden thought. It was pronounced almost exactly the same. He looks like a Stuart. Joe bent lower to stare into Stuart's metal-ringed eyes. All of your companions are about to form nasty contracts with me in exchange for having their futures unruined. You have an unruinable future thanks to your lineage. Even I wouldn't dare presume to blackmail your father. Don't you think you should be ashamed of yourself for blathering about your honor when you're the only one here who won't face permanent consequences for your actions? Alden was fascinated that he was getting to hear all of this. Stuart's dad must have been one scary guy if Joe wasn't willing to cross him. But Stuart himself seemed to be having a hard time processing what Joe had said. You're not being honorable. You're being a prick, Alden offered. At this point, you're just making a difficult situation worse for everyone else. Joe gave him a startled look, but after a moment, he nodded. Yes, you are being selfish. For a moment, it seemed like even that wasn't going to get through, but finally, the boy nodded. He turned his pale face to Alden. I will submit myself to your care, Rybeet, he said. For the sake of my... For the sake of what, Alden didn't know. He'd already swooped down on Stuart and lifted him bridal style. Shit, he said, adjusting Stuart's weight and bringing him closer to his chest as he took a step. I noticed this when I tried to pick him up before, but I thought it was just because he was fighting me. This guy's heavy for an Artanan. It was weird. He looked skinny, and he was shorter than average. If the strain on your power is likely to be a problem, let me know right away. I'd rather get the foot and have it go to the healers with you. It's not that. The skill drain's not terrible. It's him. Has he got lead-lined clothes or something? Oh, said Joe. It's most likely his bones. They've probably been enhanced. Alden grunted. Is he like an Artanan super soldier or something? He said he was going to be a knight. Something like that, Joe said vaguely. Push yourself, but not to the point of exhaustion. It will take us a short while to prepare the appendage. Alden didn't understand why the severed foot might need to be prepared, but he nodded and kept slowly walking around, trying to find the easiest way to hold on to his passenger while he avoided tripping over tree roots and attempted to ignore the fact that he was walking around the jungle in nothing but a soggy turtleneck, his underwear, and a single sock that was on the verge of falling off. They don't tell you it will be like this when you get powers. It's not like I'm not happy to help someone, but I didn't think I'd be feeling quite this awkward while I did it. His arms were burning. He should have asked Stuart to climb onto his back before he activated the skill. That's what he'd been doing with the lab assistants lately. 
He almost set the boy down to do it, but then he saw the size of the blood pool on the ground and reconsidered. Just because Lancelot here seemed unnaturally hearty, it didn't mean there were no limits. What if Joe was right and the guy would go on acting more or less okay until the moment he keeled over dead? Alden gritted his teeth and kept going, comforted and energized by the knowledge that he wasn't the only one suffering. The examinees had finished dragging the Mishnan out of the pool, and Joe had started barking orders and passing out knives. He kept an alarming number of scalpels on his person. The smell when they sliced the creature open was ghastly. Alden's eyes watered even though he tried to get some distance from the disgusting project. He kept waiting for someone to pull out a recognizable foot from whatever part of the monster was its stomach. But all the students just kept dropping little chunks of meat onto the silvery fabric tarp Joe had magically produced from one of his pockets. Gradually, Alden came to the horrifying realization that the chunks were Stuart's foot. Apparently, the Mishnan's digestive system worked like a garbage disposal even on this guy's enhanced bones. How are they going to fix that? Surely there's not any point? Magic was magic, but this. He'd stopped walking for too long and Stuart suddenly said, Friends, thank you. He was finishing the same sentence he'd been in the middle of when the preservation had activated. Alden hastily took another step before the poor guy could see how gruesome the situation was. The chunks of flesh and bone were gathered into a pile, and Joe coated them with something from one of his vials. Then he started questioning the students about which of them could perform untranslatable. When none of them answered, he shouted at them, and Jelnor finally raised a hand covered in slime and blood. I thought as much. And it's appropriate, the professor said, since this is primarily your fault. Then he called out to Alden. Bring him over here, please. They had him lay Stuart down beside the horrid pile with the injured leg pressed against it. Alden tried not to look, and when the Artin and teen started struggling to sit up and see what was going on, Alden automatically pressed him back down onto the ground and slapped a hand over his eyes so hard that it probably qualified as an assault. Everyone who wasn't off in the bushes crying or being sick stared at him. Sorry, he said. He was still holding Stuart down with almost his full body weight, and his voice came out in almost a squeak. I didn't want him to panic. Are you sure you're not panicking? One of them muttered. I am a son of, Stuart began. Yes, we all know who you are, Joe said quickly. Being involved in an illicit summoning would bring great shame to you, I'm sure, and great bother to the rest of your family. So we're going to make it look like you were injured in a duel instead. I could not claim a false victory, Stuart's shocked voice was slightly muffled since Alden was crushing him. You lost a foot, said scholarship guy. Nobody's going to think you won the duel. Jelnor, said Joe, let me give you a few pointers. You'll need to. The translation suddenly cut out. Surprised, Alden looked up at Joe. He'd stood, and he was gesturing from Jelnor to the pile of foot. She asked a question, and he answered it animatedly. Alden recognized his teaching mode at once. You're real petty, you know that? He thought at the system. 
I'm going to learn to speak Artanen flawlessly and then laugh at you when you drop the subtitles. He wondered if the setting that kept it from translating things it considered to be official magic lessons was universal, or if it was a policy specific to the university. If he accidentally overheard something educational when he was off campus, would the same thing happen? Surely the Artanans had to know that having the system translate almost everything but school made them look absolutely awful? Huh, maybe they actually don't? They had some pretty strict traditions about classroom behavior even for their own people, after all. A minute later, Jelnor's lesson was over, and everyone drew back from her, Stuart, and the pile of foot. A few of them picked up the edges of the tarp and lifted them almost like they were trying to hide behind them. No, you stay there, Alden, Joe said. It's best if someone holds him down, and it seems like you've got a lot of enthusiasm for the job. I thought you'd broken his nose for a moment. What's happening? Stuart asked. He still had not a drop of fear in his voice. I have no clue, thought Alden. I'm sure it'll be fine, man, he said bracingly. And then we'll get you to a house of healing. Jelnor, be careful not to miss, the girl who'd been helping stabilize Stuart earlier whispered. Miss? I will not miss, Jelnor unwound a piece of gold thread from her dark hair. Keep still, Alden, said Joe from a concerningly large distance away. And keep him still. Stuart spoke up again. What spell are you? Then Jelnor started to chant, and Stuart stiffened up. For a second, Alden wondered if that was what the spell did, but Jelnor kept going. As she chanted, she wove the string like a cat's cradle with startling speed. Stuart's breath started to come in sharp gasps. His hands shook. You're totally fine, Alden said, though he had no idea if it was true. You're doing okay. This is fine. It only took the girl a few seconds to complete the spell from start to finish, but it was a very long few seconds. The beautiful string pattern Jelnor had woven flared white, and she aimed the center of it at Stuart's lower leg. The expression on her face was hard and focused. She dropped string from a few fingers, and the design tightened into a new shape. A sharp, shining X. The pile of ruined flesh and an additional three inches of Stuart's leg blasted apart before Alden's eyes. Blood went everywhere. It spattered against his face, his hands, his hair. A tiny, hard shard of bone hit his cheek and fell onto the Artanen boy's chest. Ogodagodamig. Someone pulled him off the boy, and Joe was shouting something about picking up all the pieces as quickly as possible. And then Alden was being shoved into the pond. For the first time since he had arrived on the scene, Stuart was screaming. Someone dunked Alden's head under the water. His mind cleared enough for him to have a coherent thought through his shock. These people are all insane. He sputtered to the surface and found himself eye to eye with Jelnor. She was the one who dunked him. And herself. They were both still covered in gore. You must wash it all off before you return to help him, she said in a tight voice. It would be difficult to explain why you were present for a duel. If you find any solid pieces, collect them and bring them to us. 
As an example, she plucked a tiny diamond-shaped piece of Stuart out of Alden's hair and showed it to him. Then she retreated from the water, and he watched her run off to join the others. Joe was leaning over Stuart now. The guy had finally fallen unconscious. Alden sank back down under the water. He gave himself permission to feel self-pity for a few seconds. I want to go home. I really, really want to go back home. But he couldn't. So he scrubbed the worst of the blood off, collected the pieces as he'd been told, and went back to pick up his charge. Who was injured worse than he had been when Alden arrived? This was not the way he'd seen his afternoon going. Several minutes later, Alden was teleported directly to the emergency department of a house of healing. He arrived in a large, fancy teleportation alcove. He was carrying Stuart, and a plastic baggie full of Stuart's foot was shoved into the boy's pocket so that it was being preserved as well, which seems virtually pointless considering it was eaten, blown apart, and scattered across the forest. But hey, Brightside, they wouldn't have bothered to go to this much trouble if the parts couldn't be put back together again, right? Alden's coat had been retrieved before he departed, but not his pants or his shoes. He'd lost his last sock. These things happened. The second he arrived in the emergency department, chaos surrounded him. Masked Artinans in dark-colored scrubs appeared with handheld equipment and a gurney. The one in charge ordered him to put the patient on the gurney, and then seconds later, apparently after getting some notice about what his skill did, ordered him to pick Stuart up again. That's an extraordinary talent, the woman said, her eyes rocketing around in two different directions behind her glasses. We might want you to hold him for a while so we can prepare for him without worrying about tissue degradation. Do you need a stimulant or an accessory to do that? So he'd be getting doped. That was fine. He'd forgotten to take his medical team pills anyway, because he'd been dropped in the water. I don't know what an accessory is. My skill is fine, but my muscles are getting tired. I don't think I can carry him well for more than a couple of minutes. It took her approximately a nanosecond to jab a tiny hypodermic into the side of his neck. It hit quick. The lights were all suddenly too bright, and Alden felt like he could fight a gorilla. Do you need something for your nerves? Nope, Alden said, pacing back and forth. All good on that front. I think my panic buttons got pressed too hard, too many times today, and now they're stuck in the off position. She looked confused, but then she scanned him with some kind of metal loop she wore around her neck and shrugged. They gave him his own empty room to pace in. It looked similar to the rooms in the House of Healing in Chicago, but there was a lot more equipment lining the walls. Alden took it all in. He wondered how things were going back in the jungle. I think Joe is about to give all of your friends a tattoo and make them pay up somehow in exchange for keeping quiet about this. Alden told Stuart's petrified body. It must be crazy important for you people to get into wizard school, huh? Alden understood how they were going to explain away the destroyed foot now that he'd seen the contents of the baggie. Whatever spell Jelnor had cast tore all the pieces into tiny, distinctly clean-cut diamond and triangle shapes. 
So the foot no longer looked roughly digested by the Mishnin, it looked like it had been tidily chipped up by a combat spell. Alden guessed maiming someone in a duel must not have the same consequences that summoning that thing did. Joe had come up with the idea awfully swiftly, hadn't he? Maybe he does this all the time. Maybe it's his go-to, hide the evidence spell. About ten minutes later, someone came back for him. He didn't feel even a little tired. They led him to the doors of an operating theater that was absolutely glowing with runes. He placed Stuart on another gurney, and the Artinan boy was whisked inside. Before the doors closed again, Alden saw an odd mix of people in scrubs and wizard's clothes. One of them was holding a pair of giant yellow candles. Let's see, the woman who'd led him to the operating room said, scrolling through a tablet. We should dip into my office. I think before we send you back to your assigned post, I should reverse the effects of the drug you were given. My colleague might have been a little generous with the dosage, given who the injured party was. Come this way. She collected supplies from a cabinet embedded in a wall and took Alden to a surprisingly normal-looking office. It was cramped and full of books, papers, and miscellaneous junk. Alden took a seat in an uncomfortable swivel chair. Several minutes, and a shocking twelve needle sticks later, he felt absolutely horrible. Like someone had stretched all of his muscles a little too far and sucked out all of his energy with a vacuum. That should cover it. You need to supplement B12, by the way. Keep an eye on that. And you can pick a gift or two from the bowl if you want. The doctor spun one of her rings to deactivate whatever hand sanitizing feature it had on it and gestured to a glass dish, full of things wrapped in brightly colored paper. Alden stared at it. Do human teenagers not get gifts when they go to healers? I'm a pediatrician, so I offered more out of habit than anything else. Alden's temporarily exhausted emotions suddenly made themselves known again. His eyes stung. My mom was a nurse in a house of healing, he blurted out. We used to wrap the gifts for the gift bowl together. Then you should take a few of them, shouldn't you, the woman said gently. My secretary wraps them. She always puts the best ones in the red paper. 36. Bone The hospital teleported Alden back to the seminarium, where he was met by the head of the medical team and Joe. The woman in charge of the campus medics was oddly friendly and casual. Considering the one and only other time she'd spoken to Alden, she'd basically told him he was useless and just to do as he was told. She complimented him on his performance, gave him an actual paper certificate of merit for exceptional service, and ordered him to take 26 hours off for his mental health. Finally, Joe cleared his throat pointedly, and she left the room beaming. Did she have a personality transplant while I was gone? Alden asked, staring down at the certificate and trying to decipher the words. Ha! Huh. I haven't heard that phrase before, said the professor. And yes, she did. It came in the form of a generous bribe from Jelnor's parents encouraging her to look away from some anomalies with the girl's use of one of the school's emergency responders. He paused. I mean you. Alden resisted the impulse to roll his eyes. I know you mean me. 
I was there. Good. We need to talk. But first put on clean clothes. If I walk around campus with you in that state, everyone will think I'm a bully. Joe gestured toward a pile on the floor, and Alden was surprised to see his own t-shirt, jeans, and a pair of the one-size-fits-most sandals that were available in the locker room back at the dorms. His clothes had been in the launderer when he left this morning. Joe must have had someone fetch them. Alden felt much more like himself once he ducked into a storage room and changed. He was surprised when he emerged and found the professor standing by the massive exit doors, gesturing for him to follow. Shouldn't we just go ahead and send me to pick berries since we're already here? I'd love to, but your mental health break is already logged with the system. Since Leafsong is your primary summoner, I can't assign you quests when they've put you on mandatory leave. We can't say I want to teleport to Moon the Gund for a vacation? Unless you've secretly changed species and gained an Artona I passport, then no. Alden immediately felt relieved. He was tired and sore. Moon the Gund was eerie. But this means I'll have to do more doubles later. And the assistants will be freaked when I don't show. They had a good routine in place, and someone was always waiting for their ride right on schedule. Whoever it was today would have to sleep in the fruit packing facility, waiting for tomorrow. I'll try to get word to my assistants. It's kind of you to worry about them, but it's wasted emotion in this case. They're mature scientists who are aware that circumstances sometimes change. They won't panic because of a single day's delay. The man with the kids might. He already had once. On the third night, Alden was supposed to take both of the children, but their father had refused to let him at the last second, despite the driver who'd brought them to the farm arguing with him at length. Alden had ended up leaving with the bald guy who'd ridden shotgun in the vehicle instead. He'll come to believe in your reliability as you successfully collect more and more of his fellows. Or he won't. There's no need to tranquilize him just yet, but it remains an option. Tranquilize? They exited the building, and Joe strolled in the direction of the human dorms. Aren't you calling a cart? I did, but it's the end of the day and there's a wait. We might as well walk while one catches up with us. Also, you get a free lesson today. Isn't that nice of me? Alden sped up to walk beside him. I do? What about the triangle of secrecy? It's a different kind of lesson. Normally, I would want the comfort of a new contract to cover all of today's events. But I could squirm out of this amount of trouble if I needed to. And you're a pain to haggle with. He smiled at Alden. Also, I just formed nine contracts back-to-back -back with those shiny students you gifted me. The amount of weeping. I'm sure I wasn't that pathetic the first time I made a little mistake and had to swallow bad terms with another wizard to cover it up. Alden envisioned the scene he'd left behind in the jungle, mission and guts and Stuart's blood everywhere. Aspiring teen wizards puking in the bushes, Joe grinning like a maniac. The idea of all of them tattooing themselves together didn't make the picture brighter. You know I didn't actually realize you would blackmail them all into contracting with you? 
I didn't even realize wizards made contracts with other wizards. He wanted to ask what the terms of the contracts were, but maybe it was better not to know. Of course we do. It's nearly the oldest form of magic there is. And don't worry. Most of them will be free of me by the end of the week, their debts paid for them by their loving families. When it's all over, their place at this school will be secured with no official scratches on their record, and I will be considerably closer to overturning my own sentence. He chortled to himself. Which brings me to the first part of today's lesson. Several of those young people who gave you such difficulty today are important. One of them is very important. It's not me you'll have to deal with if you go blabbing about them. It's their parents. Don't do it. Joe bent over suddenly to examine a plant growing in a sidewalk crack, and then shook his head in obvious disappointment at it before continuing on. Alden stepped carefully over the plant just in case it was more than a simple weed. I didn't plan to gossip about them. Good. Moving on, you did well today, Joe said. In fact, I could hardly imagine a more perfect way for you to have handled the situation. But unless I've misjudged your personality, I think it was an accident on your part. Why did you call me? Alden briefly wondered how honest he should be, but he couldn't see much reason to lie. I thought everybody was in over their heads. And Stuart was going to lose his foot. Permanently, I mean. And I was worried they were going to end up feeding me to the crocosquid to cover up their crimes. It seemed like enough reason to call for help. Joe's brows lifted. Ah, so it did occur to you that they might intentionally arrange for you to die? He said it in a conversational tone that somehow made it more chilling. I mean, not all of them, Alden said hastily. Some of them seemed ready to get help from the school and accept the consequences. But I thought Jelnor might, and the one who kept shouting about his scholarship. You're actually much more suspicious than I thought. That's good. I was worried you were going to get yourself killed before you reached your full potential. Joe walked blithely toward an oncoming cart full of examinees, forcing it to dodge them. Alden gave the passengers an apologetic smile as they passed. I've observed that human avowed tend to be more wary of me now that I'm conspicuously powerful and accomplished. The professor gestured at his own tattooed face. Earlier in my career, when I had just earned the right to summon avowed, they regarded me with less fear. I guess it's natural to be more afraid of someone who's powerful, Alden said. Is it? I think that mindset is very species and culture dependent. At any rate, humans are, in my opinion, poor judges of the threat younger summoners represent. You are much more likely to come to harm when you're summoned by a beginner than a more advanced wizard. He paused. Obviously, I'm not including combat assignments in that equation. Those are universally dangerous. Alden was surprised that he seemed to be getting a how-to-stay-safe-from-your-summoner lecture. He had pegged Joe as someone who would throw people in the deep end and tell them they'd better figure out how to swim for themselves. That metaphor hits a little too close to the day's events, doesn't it? I guess it's because amateur wizards are less experienced? Alden suggested. Less experienced. 
less aware of their own limits and the limits of various species and classes of avowed, less able to see the line between a reasonable use of their helper's talents and an unreasonable one. Joe smiled. Contract-facilitated summons are a luxury reserved for the elite among the elite. Avowed servants are a convenient but limited magical resource, and there's a certain cachet to using them. So access is restricted to the upper echelon of wizards. One big mistake is generally enough to see someone barred for life. But it takes time to weed out the fools who are prone to making that kind of error. By big mistake you mean? I mean getting an avowed killed on an off-contract assignment. A death on an off-the-books mission is the ultimate oops for a summoner. Wait, why are you telling me this? Alden said, going to pick up your assistance from Moon the Gund every night is off-contract, right? You're only allowed to use me for things related to your university work because of your punishment. Just don't die. And if you're going to, do it at the farm with some berries in your pocket and not off in the grasslands. That will keep me in a comfortably gray area. Since the system is still allowing me to assign official quests at Elepta, nobody can argue that the location was too dangerous for an avowed of your rank. Alden tried to refrain from rolling his eyes. I'll do my best to get killed in a manner that's convenient for you, then. The students' so-called plan to have you catch the Mishnan for them was full of far more unforgivable holes, so many that even you noticed them right away. I shall drink in honor of their desperation tonight, and I'll have nightmares about it. Joe grinned at him. If it's any consolation, wizards this immature could only call for your assistance at all because it was an emergency, and the university has made you available for those. When she earns admission here, Jelnor will have several years of school before she gains provisional access to the contract for her personal use. And then, if she achieves a certain level of competence and the necessary recommendations by graduation, she'll be able to summon low-ranking avowed without oversight. That's a relief, Alden said. Maybe by then she won't be angry I tattled on her and her friends. Which brings me around to the main point of the lesson and an important question for you to consider. What would you have done today if I wasn't available to clean up the mess? It was only possible because I'm a faculty member here. I won't teleport around the universe to rescue you from other summoners under ordinary circumstances. I won't even be able to. I didn't think you would, Alden muttered. I guess I could call for arbitration? Someone had suggested he might do that earlier. He wasn't clear on what would happen if he did, but it must have been an option. MMMM, that's only possible under specific and usually unpleasant conditions. And it's leaving your fate up to chance. The results would depend a lot on your summoner's respect for authority at the moment and the mood of the arbitrator. And time is also a factor. An arbitrator might not answer instantly, in which case you'd be at the mercy of an angry summoner until they did. I don't recommend it as a first resort. What do you recommend then? I just shut up and chase dangerous monsters around a lake even though that's not what I was summoned for and I can't possibly catch them. 
Joe blinked at him. It's a problem for you, I admit. I suggest feigning stupidity. What? Yes, like that. That was good. Alden groaned. Actually, it would be best if you could feign stupidity and hysteria at the same time, Joe said, wandering over to examine another weed sprouting up among the carnivorous flowers. But that might be a tall order. Play dumb? That's your advice for if some Artanen tries to force me into doing an impossible job? A wizard who is able to summon an avowed is almost always talented, excessively educated, and proud of it. I include myself in that description. We also tend to have an inflated sense of our own superiority over other species. Jelnor would never have believed your skill was incapable of petrifying the Mishnan, not when she'd staked her reputation and her future on it working in the way she imagined. But she might have been persuaded to believe you yourself were too dim-witted to use it in the correct way. Would it have frozen the Mishnan? I doubt it. Even if you managed to use your preservation on it, it was wearing the leash she crafted during her exam session. The burden would have been immense. Why didn't she just shoot it with her spell? You know, Alden gestured like he was playing with an imaginary cat's cradle. Oh, it could have repelled that kind of attack. They're not intelligent, but they have a number of fascinating qualities. It's why Mishnan parts are so valuable and also why they're endangered. You have to sit on a waiting list for years to get permission to summon one legally. They're very susceptible to poison, though, which is why I chose that method. By the way, what would you like for supper? Are you planning to poison me? Ha! Huh. No. You gave me a dead Mishnan and a means of ingratiating myself with all kinds of interesting people. In exchange, you get supper delivered. There's even a place that supposedly delivers earth food to campus, though I have my doubts about its authenticity. Do you humans eat cheese fondue all that often? I wish I did. Alden's stomach growled. He thought he shouldn't be hungry, considering what he'd seen this afternoon, but he was famished. I'll take anything that's not made of animals or by animals. I like those egg roll things, you were eating one when you arrived at the pond earlier. Those are good. Joe fell silent for a minute, eye zipping behind his lens, then announced, food is on its way. Enough for your human friends as well, so that they won't be jealous. I haven't got any human friends here. You're pitiful, aren't you? In that case, I'll double the order so that you can try to make some. Alden sighed. He wondered if he would be a traitor to his species if he just asked Joe outright about Manon possibly using mind control on people. A moment later, their cart finally arrived for them, and Joe started making small talk about the pros and cons of melted cheese. There are only pros, Alden said. Cheese has no cons. How do I get more refusals? That was a quick turn in the discussion. I was thinking that having a ton of refusals stacked would help me avoid crazy summoners. It was relevant to the earlier conversation, not the fondue one. It was also going to be necessary if he ever wanted to get work as a hero. If he was one of those rabbits who got summoned frequently, 
and considering how busy he'd been over the past few days it seemed likely that he was. He would need enough refusals to reassure anyone he might work with that he wouldn't be a liability. Having a ton of refusals stacked would indeed help you with that. But I'm afraid the best way to get them is the obvious one. Hope you are summoned often and save them up. There's seriously not a way to get bonus ones? Joe squinted in thought. Few that would actually feel like bonuses to the recipient. Unless you like the idea of unusually traumatizing quest assignments. I don't. Perhaps some people can award them. I personally never had the option. If you're just hoping for a more predictable life, then long-term assignment is a good choice. If you can obtain one, you'll know who you're working for, and you'll earn a lot of rest days. You can postpone a portion of them. It's not the same as a refusal, but it allows you to carve out time for yourself. You mean the downtime you earn after a certain number of days of being summoned? That can be postponed? You didn't know? Alden shook his head. He'd been aware that such downtime existed, but he hadn't realized it could be used at his convenience. The system should let you bank time off once you have some, which you can then use to guarantee yourself a break when it's most convenient for you. So it's like saving up for a vacation. It wasn't as flexible as a refusal. You would have to use the bank time without ever knowing if you were choosing moments when you might not have been summoned anyway. But that would be great for his purposes if he got enough of it. If he was helping out with a critical situation on Earth, he could spend a few of his saved hours to guarantee he stayed there instead of getting zapped to another world. And then, ideally, his refusals could be reserved for getting out of terrible or dangerous quests. The cart dropped him off at the dorm, and Joe eyed the building critically. It looks depressing, he said. Why did they make it depressing? It's pretty okay. Windows would be good, and private rooms would be nicer. But there's air conditioning on the human floor, so I'm not going to complain. The first and second floors were for Tmithens and Lorch. When the interior elevator door opened on floor one, it felt like a dry sauna. And the Lorch floor was pitch black and full of clicking noises. Alden had no desire to visit the neighbors in their preferred environments, and they probably felt the same. He said goodbye to Joe and took the elevator up. He was delighted to realize he was the only person present. He headed straight for the showers. His last bath had been a hasty dip in a rainforest pool full of poison, blood, and probably Mishnan pee. He would soak himself in rubbing alcohol if he knew where to get some. He searched the stalls, hoping one of the boater members had left body wash lying around. Most of them kept their personal items in their lockers, but today he was rewarded with a bottle of expensive-looking shampoo. Alden said a silent apology to the owner and resisted the urge to use the whole thing. While the too-hot water blasted him, he scrubbed until he thought every last bit of the bizarro day must have gone down the drain. Then he dug his fingers into his hair, washing it for the second time, and felt something odd. Blinking away water as the rinse cycle started, Alden stared at the tiny, diamond-shaped shard between his thumb and forefinger. 
It was a bone fragment smaller than his pinky fingernail. It was still stained with blood. His mind immediately went to the strange operating-slash-magic ritual room at the House of Healing. Stuart was probably there still, having his foot reassembled, regrown. I hope this wasn't a critical piece, he thought. He was past the point of being queasy. Or maybe it was just that a single bone shard in isolation wasn't as freaky as a whole pile of bloody meat and bone chunks had been. I don't have to return it, right? What do I do with this? He guessed the logical thing was just to wash it down the drain. But what if it got stuck there, and years from now, some Artanan plumber found it, and they traced it back to its owner using magic? And Stuart's very important family got mad that the bone hadn't been treated with proper respect or something. It sounded ridiculous, but not quite ridiculous enough for him to ignore the possibility. I'll take it to Joe tomorrow. Maybe he can drop it in a vat of acid. Or his eels can eat it. Then, as if it was a perfectly sane follow-up idea to have, he idly thought, I can eat it. Gah! What the shit, brain! Alden staggered back against the wall of the shower only to realize there wasn't much point in trying to escape from himself. He held the piece of bone at arm's length and examined his own mind in horror. It was exactly the same matter-of-fact feeling he always had about potential food now. Not really the intrusive voice of the gremlin, though he tended to equate the two, but something that felt more fully united with his person. A buffet of things he would have liked to consume were off-limits. But this gross random fragment of an alien guy named Stuart? Totally eatable. New, Alden groaned, pressing his forehead to the pale green shower tiles. Ugh, why? And as soon as he thought it, he discovered he knew why just like he had that first day after donating some of his blood to Gorgon, which was maybe the worst idea ever if this was the result. I couldn't drink hot chocolate because the cow didn't offer me the milk, but I can eat Stuart's bones like some kind of horrible ghoul because he entrusted himself to me. Damn it, Gorgon. What kind of creepy things do your people get up to for this to be a part of your makeup? Why couldn't this power-slash-curse-slash-thing distinguish between chicken nuggets and people? And why didn't it care that Stuart had definitely not been inviting Alden to dinner when he consented to the skill's use? The gremlin had made a major nuisance of itself, trying to make sure the contract between Alden and Joe was all perfectly consensual and balanced. Is the this-is-food detector separate from it? Is it confused because my skill was directly involved? Is it just hungry for Artanen and looking for an excuse? Also, did this mean Alden could eat anyone who had entrusted themselves to him? It was a dark question, but it had to be asked, and... Yes, indeed. A moment's thought gave him the answer. Joe's rescued assistants were on the menu. Oh my god, he whispered. It's like I'm designed to be a cannibal. Bo would probably remind him that technically cannibals ate their own species, and technically anybody could be a cannibal. In fact, Alden was less likely to become a cannibal than most people since he would have to get people to entrust themselves to him first. That made him feel a little better. A little. How did I get myself in this mess? 
He was curious about what would happen if he ate the bone, but not nearly curious enough to ever do it. Even if he set aside the ick factor and the evil factor, he could still get some kind of lethal alien virus. Or maybe artinin bones were an allergen to humans. Wonder why they never covered that one in culture class. He was so distracted he accidentally let the shower get halfway through its unpleasant oil-spraying cycle before he noticed. He turned it off. He didn't toss the piece of bone down the drain. He still wasn't sure what he planned to do with it. Maybe he'd give it to Joe to dispose of. He could respectfully bury it. Or maybe he'd take it back home to Gorgon and see if Gorgon could eat it, too. If it belonged to Alden now, and Alden offered it to him, would that count? Here, buddy. Got you a souvenir. He snorted at himself. He definitely wasn't going to do that one. Stuart seemed pretty okay. Kind of hard to understand, but definitely not a guy who deserved to wake up one morning with a strange voice in his head. A meat ban, and no idea how it had happened to him. Can I tip you? Alden asked the delivery person a few minutes later. Is that all right? He was standing outside the dorm, hair still damp from the shower. Signing a tablet to acknowledge his receipt of an obscene amount of takeout that had just arrived in a mini helicopter with an artinan in a professional-looking gray uniform. Why would you tip me again, they asked in a confused voice, setting yet another container of food on the pathway. It is not necessary to begin with, and you already did it when you ordered the food. Oh, okay. Apparently Joe was a tipper. Not long after that, he watched the helicopter leave. Its blades were completely silent in defiance of common sense. Joe really goes all out when he's saying thanks, he thought, staring around at the stacks of takeout covering the sidewalk. The containers reminded him of high-tech tiffins. Judging by the different colors and designs on each, they'd come from multiple restaurants. Several of them were whistling and steaming like kettles. One had smoke curling out of the sides, and another was covered in an exciting layer of frost. If that's anything remotely like ice cream, I'm going to swim in it. Alden wanted to eat inside, but considering the close quarters, it might not be the best idea. Some of the food was giving off strong smells. He moved the containers off the path into the short clover-like plants that the campus used as ground cover everywhere. Then, satisfied that he was out of the way of any foot traffic, he started opening everything. It was a beautiful experience. Every container had utensils included, so Alden took a two-pronged fork from one of them and started stabbing. The vegetables that looked like small, whole potatoes tasted like hot vanilla cake. The squares that looked like cake were savory and herby. There were not meatballs that were kind of peanutty, and there was a pasta dish that would be a fine substitute for fettuccine Alfredo as soon as he picked out all the hateful pieces of fishy-tasting lettuce. He had more than one kind of grain bowl covered in greens and sauce to choose from, and they were all decent. A bright yellow container was entirely full of the egg rolls he'd requested, and he shoved one in his mouth while he tried to decide if he was brave enough to take a bite from a bowl of soup so spicy that the steam wafting off it was making his eyes water. There were some surprisingly awesome salads, 
and the container with the smoke pouring off it turned out to be a functional mini grill. It came with a second container full of food on skewers and a bunch of loose leaves that were obviously some kind of seasoning, though Alden wasn't sure if he was supposed to put them on the food directly or add them to the smoldering burner. Altogether, it was enough food for an army. I should share. The standard supper offerings would be available in the avowed dining area soon. It was always fine, but this was much better. And it wasn't the boater member's fault they were hard to get along with. Or at least he didn't think it was completely their fault. Manon was probably nudging them toward disliking and excluding him for her own purposes. Before he made his decision, he carefully pried open the lid on the frosty container. To his delight, it was frozen dessert. It was packed in, filling the container to the brim, and the flavors were in stripes like Neapolitan ice cream. The texture was halfway between sorbet and shaved ice, and one of the flavors was definitely wavy. But it was close enough. System, can I voice call Naya? The human avowed who lives at the dorm with me? Naya was the younger woman with the bright red streaks in her hair. He didn't know anybody's last name, but he doubted the system couldn't figure out who he meant. And a local call should be cheap. It took a couple of minutes, but she answered. What do you need? She sounded annoyed. Alden gritted his teeth. He almost said, nothing. Wrong number. He could always trash the leftovers or drop them off on the Tmithan floor. But he didn't want to be part of the problem. Hey, sorry to bother you. There's a ton of extra food at the dorm. The professor in charge of the labs had it delivered. I'm having a picnic. You guys are mostly done with work, right? You should come. Oh, Naya said, surprised. Is it enough food for everyone? Yeah, we're loaded. No meat. It's all vegetarian. But it's pretty awesome. Plus, there's ice creamish stuff. How ice creamish are we talking? She asked with a laugh. Fifty percent. But it is frozen. Say no more, she said seriously. I'll be there in twenty. That went surprisingly well. After the call ended, Alden selected one of the containers that seemed to be designed to seal completely. He filled it with all his favorite things, then he hurried it up to the third floor and stuck it in Thwart Hogg's sleeping capsule. A few minutes after he made it back down, the other humans started arriving. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Manon was the first to appear. She was wearing her black rabbit uniform, and her hair was up in a bun. Wow, she said, examining the ridiculous spread. Do you mind if I... She gestured at the containers. Go ahead. Alden tried not to freak out and overanalyze his own emotions. She wasn't a sway, and he was a rank above her. Whatever she did, it wasn't going to be that serious. The effect of a single dose of her skill was probably milder than the peace of mind word chains he'd been using so often lately. I just have to stay alert and aware. This is for all of us, right? She asked, examining the spicy soup. Members of the boater can have it? Yes, Alden said. Hadn't he just covered that? You can have it. Great. He expected her to grab a fork or a spoon and dig in. 
but instead she started arranging the containers. Oh, he realized. Those questions were so she could establish stronger ownership over the food, so that she could arrange it to suit the boater members better, or just herself. It was unexpectedly mesmerizing to watch her work. How much of a difference could arranging things make? A lot, as it turned out. Even the more garishly colored containers somehow looked more appealing in the locations Manon chose for them. She flipped lids off selected ones seemingly at random, but Alden soon realized those were the foods he'd thought were a little too hot. Did she know that they needed cooling? Or did she just know that they would suit humans better if the lids were off? She even picked the fishy lettuce out of the pasta and stuck it into the soup. She didn't taste either dish. There was no way for her to know what anything tasted like. It had to be some entirely different method. How does it work? Alden asked. Your skill? Was there a small hitch in Manon's motions? The briefest of pauses? Or was it his imagination? What? She said. Sorry, I was so focused. I just mean what does it look like to you? Alden clarified. I didn't want trade secrets or anything. Does the food glow if it's in the wrong spot or something? Oh, what an interesting question. No, it doesn't glow for me. I guess some part of your own skill must? Alden had been thinking of the targeting halo. He nodded. I see empty spaces, she said. Like the world is made up of layers and layers of unfinished jigsaw puzzles. I pick the right puzzle for the occasion and I try to fill in all the empty spaces as best I can with the objects I have available. Alden couldn't picture that well at all. Were there a bunch of lettuce-shaped holes in the soup, he asked, perplexed. Yes. It really is like jigsaw puzzles, I guess. Just before the others started to arrive, she took a knife and carved the cake-tasting potatoes into roses. She placed each one in a different container, in the perfect spot to somehow make it look like the feast of miscellaneous parts all went together flawlessly. Alden didn't understand how it worked, but it did. And in a way, it answered a question he hadn't wanted to ask. If Manon didn't have a piece that naturally fit into her puzzle, she could always shape one herself. Soon, there was something that felt like a party underway on the clover lawn in front of the dorm. Everyone was excited. They wanted to hear about Alden's day and the emergency, and they didn't seem to care that he could only give them the foggiest of details about what had happened. A couple of them even started giving him advice about life on Anisadora and the medical team guy who always wore nice suits. Chris mentioned that he should reach out to the main hospital on the island and ask about volunteering. Then, at some point Alden couldn't pinpoint no matter how hard he tried, it began to shift. Conversations became just a little more awkward than they should have been when he joined in. He caught the occasional annoyed sigh or glare direct his way. The angry guy made a snide comment about some people having all the luck. Alden carefully avoided looking at Manon, and when it became too uncomfortable, he just bowed out. It would look strange if he stayed when he'd always gone out of his way to maintain his distance before. As he climbed into his capsule, more than willing to take advantage of the private space even if he wasn't sleepy yet, 
he wondered what kind of puzzle piece he was. Had she just slotted him into place where she wanted him? Or was he only a spare she had brushed off the table? Either way is fine for now, I guess. I just need to get back home and away from her while I decide what to do. He opened a small panel in the wall of the sleeping pod. There was a narrow shelf for personal items there. It was empty. Alden took the gifts he'd gotten from the treat bowl in the doctor's office and lined them up. There was a lump of glittery black modeling putty, a whistle that produced a different random note every time you blew on it, and small stuffed toy in the shape of a bright blue rye beet. It was little kid stuff, but it made the capsule look less sterile. The rye beet's tail and wings had wires in them so that they could be repositioned. Alden entertained himself by making the small reptilish animal look like it was poised to take flight. Then a thought occurred to him, and he took the bone shard he'd been wondering what to do with and stuck it into the modeling putty. He rolled it into a perfect ball and set it back on the shelf. Just an ordinary collection of knickknacks for an ordinary guy, he said to himself. He took a sleeping pill that night and as he lay staring up at the ceiling of the capsule, gradually growing more and more groggy, he kept telling himself that it was only seven more days. One week, just one, and he could sleep in his own bed, in his own house, with his aunt making too much noise in the middle of the night and his friends just a short stops away by bus or train. Maybe I'll go back to school instead of trying to think of a way out of it, he thought. It sounds so easy right now. Just sit in class. Raise your hand every now and then. He yawned. It would be nice. 37 Days Day 6 This is a scam, isn't it? Alden said, rubbing the spot on his forehead where a rubber ball had just bounced off. You just want to throw stuff at me. Joe smiled at him. Yes, this is an ideal use of my time. I can't imagine anything better to do with the evening. They were standing in Joe's office with the furniture all shoved aside so that they could play catch. The professor had brought an entire box full of balls so that they wouldn't waste time chasing after strays, but even though Joe wasn't much of a pitcher, Alden had only let a couple escape him so far. Dexterity, agility, and speed were great stats for this game. Unfortunately, he wasn't being tested on his ability to grab wildly thrown balls. The professor threw another. Alden caught it, and his skill activated. He held it flat in his palm and waited for the skill to deactivate. The ball rested there. Joe sighed. Again, you're catching and then activating the skill. That instant makes a difference. You need to be able to control it. I'm sorry, Alden groaned tossing the ball back into the box with the others. I get that. Everything you said made sense. And I'm not doing it on purpose. His skill activated instantly when he picked up stationary objects. He had picked up a couple of burning things in the lab without injury. But with thrown items, he caught them, and then let me take your luggage activated. Fast, but not fast enough. Lesson 24 Wait, they're still numbered? Don't let yourself develop bad habits. They're much harder to break than they are to avoid from the outset.
That sounded more like a life lesson than a skill use lesson, but Alden didn't complain. Joe was still in a good mood after yesterday's mission incident, and he had already spent more time on their private tutoring session this evening than he was required to. Well, I suppose I'm being a little unfair, the professor added. It's not a bad habit. It's just a habit. You can hardly avoid having them. If you defaulted to truly instant skill activation in all circumstances, that would have its own drawbacks. Yep, a very good mood, Alden thought. But that additional moment you're taking to bring the ball firmly under your physical control, or whatever notion of the process it is you have, is robbing you of flexibility. Your skill should be able to do this in more than one way if you frame the thought right. The goal was to preserve the thrown ball's momentum. Joe said it should be possible. Alden thought it should, too. But for some reason he always stopped the item's motion and then the skill activated. He hadn't even realized he was doing it. Is it because I can't really conceive of myself carrying something while it's moving? Don't over-intellectualize things or you'll lose the flexibility you're going for in the first place. You want to be able to preserve momentum or not as the situation demands it, not just switch over to being able to do one instead of the other. Far be it from me to tell you to think less, but in this case, think less. Train more. It needs to be automatic. Maybe I should use one hand for the first and the other for the second? Alden couldn't think of another way to instill two completely different mental habits related to the same action into himself. Right hand could be catch than preserve. Left hand could be instant preserve. It's more limiting than what I would try for, but if you like. What would you try for then? Joe had fallen silent, and his mouth was twisted in an expression Alden had come to recognize. It was his, the human is too stupid to handle this concept, face. Oh no, come on, please just tell me. Sharing some ideas is detrimental to you. We don't have the same brains or the same abilities. If I tell you exactly what I would work on and you focus on it to the exclusion of finding your own way through a problem, you may miss something that suits you much better. Perhaps my solution is uniquely Artanen in this case. Maybe it relies too much on my capacity for multitasking, which is something that humans tend to do poorly. I can multitask. Can you, though? Joe asked. His left eye pointed up at the ceiling suddenly, and his right eye pointed down at the floor. Can you do this? And process two separate images simultaneously? I'm sure some humans can, maybe. That was just an example. Don't start playing around with your vision. My point was that it's more helpful to you in the long run if I suggest places for improvement rather than methods. He paused. I must, after all, do my sincere best. Alden sighed. And you must do your sincere best, too. It's time for us to head over to the seminarium. Alden had begun trying to think of his teleportation to and from Moon the Gund as a lesson in and of itself. It was the only time he ever managed to see that nebulous something that seemed to be his own power stabilizing him and his passengers in transit. 
Now that he knew to look for it, he could reliably detect it on the return journey when he had someone with him. And sometimes he could catch glimpses of it on the way over as well. So his magic was somehow mitigating the pressures of the trip in both cases. When he'd asked Joe about it, the professor had only shrugged and said, of course it was. How else would you remain you during a magical teleportation cycle? Remain me? What about before I was avowed? Alden had asked. I didn't become unme every time I traveled. Local teleports on stable worlds using high-quality equipment are safe even for infants. Moon the Gund is different. He'd looked Alden up and down. You know, I worried when we started that you would only last for a few trips before I had to call off our agreement. Wear and tear from this should accumulate quite a bit more on a B-rank avowed. You're becoming intriguing. Alden wanted answers himself, but he had no way of getting them. For now, he was just glad that when he popped into existence at Elepta Farm, he was perfectly safe and sound. The fruit-packing warehouse looked the same as it had the last time he'd been here. The assistants had moved some supplies in after the first trip, a table and chairs, some heavy-looking bags, and a quartet of devices that they said would make a magical barrier in an emergency. The devices were taller than Alden, and they looked like bubble wands. He'd never seen them in action, but they were set up in a half-circle around the teleportation alcove. Today, there was far more tension than usual from the waiting Artanans. And there was an unexpected guest. The woman with pink eyes who served as their leader had come along for the first time. Alden had learned on a past trip that she would be the last to depart, so she must have come today just to see the others off and reassure everyone left back at the lab that all was well after the skipped arrival. Joe had managed to get a message through, he said, but no doubt they were nervous. I apologize for my absence, Alden said in Artanen. I was assisting a wizard who had a medical emergency. Everything is well now, and our schedule shouldn't be interrupted again. He'd expended considerable effort this morning to translate these few sentences, and Joe had confirmed they were fine with an amused look. The professor kept saying he'd get Alden a translation device so that he didn't have to spend so much time pointing and gesturing to make himself understood, but either good non-system English translators were hard to come by or Joe though Alden's broken Artanen was funny. Well, it doesn't really seem to matter. The scientists were all smart enough to figure out what he was getting at and patient enough to make the effort. You'll carry both of these men today, the woman said, in a tone that was a little too insistent to be a request. It would have been easier to carry one of them and her, since she was very petite even for an Artanen, but he would manage. Yes, I can carry two. More like one of them would piggyback on the other. Who would cling to Alden awkwardly before he activated his skill so that they both became locked around him for the trip? If they timed it right, he would only have to take a couple of arduous steps. It was the most uncomfortable backpack ever, but it had worked last time. Interestingly, this setup only worked if Alden targeted the standing man, not the rider. He gave the men in coveralls his most confident smile as he ran through the remaining passengers in his head.
After these two were gone, there would still be eight people left. The woman who always drove, pink eyes, the father, the children, and three more assistants. Ideally, he'd double up every night from now on, and if they had one more mishap that caused a delay, they'd still be okay. His passengers had their pockets stuffed with whatever lab supplies they decided Joe needed today, and they'd already collected the Marlek berries for Alden. It was a bag full despite the fact that he'd tried to tell the driver on previous trips that he only needed a few. Pink Eyes talked everyone through the drill, even though they'd probably gone over it a hundred times before he arrived. And Alden took the berries. The official quest triggered as complete, and Alden requested teleportation back to Artona 3. Request yes. Please enter the alcove. 91S. Yes, thought Alden, startled. What's this about? Always before, the Moon the Goon system had said request approved. Is yes even a word? Maybe it's trying to be cute? Could systems even do that? He was nervous about the anomaly. But less than two minutes later, he was in the seminarium again, with his back aching and his head spinning just a little. He hoped this was the heaviest load he'd have. He let the preservation drop on both of the assistants. One of them dropped off immediately, staggered a step, and then recovered the other clung to Alden's back like a koala, his grip inexplicably tightening as he took in their surroundings. Maybe all the glowing symbols were scary? Dude, we're here, Alden muttered, trying to pry the man's arms away from his lab coat. My friends, Joe cried. At last we are reunited. It's so good to see you safe and well. He said something similar every time. And every time, the assistants bowed. At least the koala man let go of Alden at the sound of Joe's voice. When Alden left, the two assistants were emptying their pockets proudly to show Joe matching sets of particularly evil-looking tongs. Day 7 It's not true mind control, said Thwart Hog, leaning against the lockers with her muscular arms crossed over chest after listening to Alden's explanation that morning. She's not a sway. I know, but it's something. Since it's about arranging, maybe she pulls a thought you already have forward at just the right moment? I don't really get it, but I thought you might want to be careful. It only seemed right to warn her since she was living with Manon, too. But Thwart Hog didn't seem particularly concerned. You a low rank, she asked. B. Hey, me too. So we don't need to worry for ourselves. Now that you've told me to look out, it's fine. A rank sway, we wouldn't even be having this conversation because you'd never have caught her at it. C rank rabbit manipulating the same dozen people for years like she's playing with dolls? Not nice, but no reason to sweat. Alden must have looked skeptical. Look, I won't deny that she could probably have her minions set you up for some kind of major screw-up especially since you're working lab and medical. But she seems savvy and emotionally stable, so she's not likely to throw something serious at you here. Just don't poke the situation. Leave it alone. Do nothing. Thwart Hog turned and grabbed her boots from her locker. That's what I was planning to do for now, said Alden. But I think it's wrong what she's doing to them. 
she's managing their whole lives. You got a hero complex? I don't. Yeah, you do. Thwarthog yanked the laces on her boots tight. Tons of new avowed are that way. My advice is that you grow out of it fast. You found a problem. Doesn't mean you need to fix it right this very second at any cost. I just said I was going to do nothing for now. Alden was annoyed. You wouldn't still be going on about it if you didn't have doubts about that course. Stop doubting. Jabbing at the problem here and now is the worst thing you could do. The locker closed with a bang. Slaughter her, said Sophie, kicking a lab cabinet shut gently with one of her back feet. It's the fastest way to solve the problem. Somehow I knew you were going to say that. I've designed an experiment. Joe announced the second they'd finished renewing their daily contract. What is it? Alden asked, pulling his hand away from the tattoo on his chest and dropping his shirt. The mark always felt strangely warm for a few seconds after he'd placed his fingers on it and verbally agreed to the terms again. Put your exceptionally gorgeous coat back on. Alden did. The professor bent, almost disappearing behind his desk. Am I targeted? Of course. Then catch. Joe sprang back up and flung one of the rubber balls at him. Only this time it was on fire. What the hell, shouted Alden. But they were standing close together, and he was so used to catching things Joe threw at him. The ball was already in his hand. The fact that your skill was designed to allow for visual effects is amusing. Joe made an adjustment to his smart lens and peered at the tail of motionless flames trailing off the ball. But I suppose it must serve the same function as your tactile sense of the preserved item. It helps you to manage the thing. Better move if you don't want burned hands. Alden hastily took a few steps. You threw a fireball at me. He wondered if Joe knew how supremely wizardy he'd looked in that moment. I thought if you had to catch something visibly dangerous, and if you didn't have time to overthink it, you'd naturally perform the trick we were attempting last night. And see, I was right. So I do a true insta-freeze on flying things if I know they're hazardous, Alden said, staring down at the ball. That's better than nothing. He didn't ask what Joe would have done if it hadn't worked. And we're thinking I should be able to redirect the momentum, right, he added, excitement building as he paced. Since he could reposition his grip on things it should work. Where can I put this safely? This is a weapons lab. You're the least fireproof thing in here other than the ball itself. Alden rotated the ball so that it should, in theory, be moving away from him when his skill stopped. Then he dropped it and took a quick step back in the same motion. The ball shot away from him, trailing smoke and flames, and smashed into the window that looked down on the inner laboratory. It worked, he shouted. It actually worked. Thinking it would work and seeing it in action were two different things. Yes, but you still can't do it intentionally. Now go put that out. The building may not catch on fire, but there's no need to let it fill with smoke. Day 8 One of the girls on the track team is actually sick with mono, Jeremy reported. So rumor has it you're dating now. 
Alden sat in his capsule bed, tossing his ball of modeling putty from hand to hand. That sounds like the kind of rumor you two could easily correct, he said in an annoyed tone. It does, doesn't it? Bo chimed in. Alden sighed and slapped the putty down on the shelf. Why are you groaning and moaning like my grandpa this morning? Jeremy asked. Twelve Artona three days is an eternity, said Alden. I feel like I'm never going to make it back home. Tell me again how much money you've made so far? So much that I don't even want it anymore. I want Earth. Poor dear. I know, I think the sleep cycle is catching up to me. I'm ready for an organic circadian rhythm instead of an alien drug-induced one. I'll make an effort to be less irritable tomorrow. Nah, don't bother, said Jeremy. Bo doesn't hold back his nasty moods, so why should you? Oh, you hit like a little old lady. Yeah, then why'd you say oh? Alden laughed. Bye, guys. I've gotta go. Lab exams. Lunch. More lab exams. Lessons with Joe. Moon the Gund. Take pills. Sleep, Alden thought to himself. Chewing on the last bites of one of the fibrous cookies they served with the daily breakfast spread as he wove through the crowd of students and assistants waiting to be allowed in for the first exam. It's a weird schedule, but I guess it's mine. The peace of mind word chain was working on him. It had only taken him two tries this morning, and the gremlin was waiting an hour and a half now before its complaints kicked in. Slow progress, but steady. Rye beat, someone shouted. Alden turned toward the speaker not because he was already used to being addressed that way, but because the Artanans, coming for their exams, didn't do much shouting. They usually just hovered around the lab doors, nervous and silent. A quintet of abnormally brutal-looking Artanans in matching green uniforms moved aside, and he saw a very familiar face. Hi, Stuart, Alden said. Someone whispered behind him, and they were quickly shushed by one of the others. Alden took in the boy's appearance with surprise. He'd assumed Stuart would be out of commission for a lot longer than a couple of days. But here he was, gold-ringed eyes sharp and his skin a shade of pale puce that was probably healthier for an Artanen than the gray complexion he'd had the last time Alden had seen him. One side of his head had been shaved, and the rest of his brownish hair had been pulled back in a very short French braid. It made for a strange look. As for Stuart's foot, it was presumably reattached. He was standing upright, at least, and on the side where his foot had been missing he wore a knee-high boot made of opaque white gel. Alden waited for the guy to say something. He'd shouted after all, and he'd been pretty talkative for a terribly wounded person the other day but he only focused on Alden's face with an unblinking gaze. I hope you're feeling better, Alden suggested after a moment. He wasn't sure what else was safe to say. He knew he wasn't supposed to mention what had really happened, but was the cover story about the guy losing his limb in a duel with Jelnor something he should bring up? Maybe it was wasn't widely known, or maybe it was an insult to talk about someone losing a duel, and the university has a rule about not hanging out with examinees outside of work, Alden remembered. So it's not like I should encourage conversation. Good luck on your exams, he said.
Then, just to be absolutely fair, he added, good luck to everyone here. Before he could push open the doors, Stuart finally figured out what it was he wanted to say. I'm sorry my actions have led us both to tarnish our honor. This is a sad hour in my life. Alden felt his face freeze in a polite smile while he tried to decide what the guy meant. Was it because they were lying about what had really happened? Or maybe because they hadn't fought the Mishnan to the death personally? I have no idea. Then he realized with shock that Stuart had spoken really solid English. He hadn't been doing that the other day, and it wasn't like he could have learned it all of the sudden. Probably. He must have worked out how to say that specific line. Our honor must be seriously tarnished if he wanted to apologize in my native language. Alden didn't get it at all. But he didn't want to disrespect it, so he tried to come up with an appropriate response. My honor is my own, he said finally. Bo would die if he heard me. So, don't worry. About me. I'm okay. Um, heal well, and let's both do our best moving forward. Stuart looked relieved. He took a limping step forward on his gel boot and nodded at Alden. That's good. My father wants to speak to you. There was more than one whisper at that announcement. Who was this guy's dad, anyway? Well, I'm a rabbit, said Alden, so I'm sure it will be easy for him to find me. Forty-eight seconds notice, and I'm there. Before Stuart could add anything, he hurriedly pushed open one of the doors and went into the lab Joe was leaning against the wall nearby, one fist pressed against his mouth in an uncharacteristically tense gesture. Did I handle that all right? Alden murmured. There was no good way to handle that, Joe hissed, dropping his fist and letting it smack into the wall behind him. I've almost had my guts ripped out by entities that were subtler than that, boy. His parents should have used his recovery as an excuse to keep him out of the exams. It doesn't matter how it looks. Passing automatically is practically his birthright. He didn't really say anything too bad, though. It would have been fine to talk about tarnishing his own honor. Everyone would just think he was being oversensitive about losing his duel. But it's hard to imagine a scenario in which a wizard's duel would have led to your honor being tarnished. Maybe he laughed with joyful abandon at the sight of all the blood Sophie suggested from where she was prowling between tables, disregarding his duties in the gore lust. How do you even know there was gore? Alden asked. You weren't there. What kind of duel doesn't have gore? Day 9. I have to carry the kids today. Alden was surprised to wake up in his dark capsule with that thought at the forefront of his mind. He always had nerves as the evening trip to Moon the Gund approached, but they had never started first thing in the morning before. It's no different, he told himself. It'll be easier because they're little. There won't even be equipment to take. It was one of the ways the frightened father had been appeased. The woman with the pink eyes had promised him that Alden would have no burdens to protect except for the children. What time is it anyway? Alden usually woke with the false sunrise lights playing across the ceiling. But that hadn't happened yet. He asked the system and discovered he'd woken nearly an hour earlier than he should have. Morning the lost sleep, 
he unlatched the door on his pod and slid it open. The room was dim and quiet. All of the capsules were closed. But someone must have been awake because Alden could smell the instant coffee some of the others drank every morning. He went to the bathroom, washed his face, chewed his tooth gum, and spat it back into its tin. Despite his doubts about how sanitary it was, the stuff worked great. When he caught a glimpse of himself in one of the mirrors, his teeth looked like he'd had them professionally whitened. Acne's totally gone now, too. He hadn't had much of a problem, but what he did have had been visibly fading all week. And now it was like it had never existed. It was probably the point in appeal finally showing off its full potential. It is a big deal, a shrill voice said, interrupting his thoughts. I got along so well with the professor at the party last year, and this was a chance to make another impression. I can't miss the... S-H-H-H-H, you'll wake up everyone. Don't worry. Alden glanced toward the toilet closet the sound had come from. He'd noticed two people whispering in there when he first entered, but he'd ignored them. Living in close quarters demanded a certain amount of willful ignorance, in his opinion. They sound upset. He couldn't tell who it was since they'd been talking quietly up until now, but the upset one was definitely a woman. I should have asked Chris to look at it last night. I knew I should. But I suddenly felt so embarrassed. I was about to and then I just, I don't know why. I gave up on him ages ago, and he's always so helpful. He could have come up with a brace if he had the night. Is someone hurt? Chris was the guy on the medical team who wore suits every day. D-Rank Wright who specialized in body enhancement equipment. He was on the medical team because plenty of Artinans had magitech stuff plugged into themselves. Alden strained his hearing to catch the reply. Let's get him to try something this morning. What good is that, Manon? I'm on duty soon. They'll put me on medical leave as soon as they see this. Nope, 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 thought Alden, grabbing his tin of tooth gum and striding out of the bathroom. Not getting involved. We're almost home. I can think about sketchy rabbits then. He'd committed himself to it, and he was going to stick to it. He made it back into his bed and had the panel closed in moments. See, thwart hog, he thought. I don't have a hero complex. Alden followed his usual schedule for the rest of the morning, but by lunchtime the boater drama caught up with him. He was sitting in an armchair in the corner, eating a sandwich he'd made out of a hunk of bread and the stuffed mushrooms that were offered every other day. He was ignoring the other humans as well as he could, which was not very, since they were all talking loudly about Laura, the woman who liked to wear a frilled apron over her skirt. She'd gotten injured by a piece of alien gym equipment yesterday evening when she was working. Apparently she'd hurt her knee. It was a bizarre occurrence since Laura was a brute. And the injury was serious enough that she hadn't been able to hide her limp. She'd been sent off to spend the day waiting around for a healer, and since her injury wasn't life-threatening, she might be gone for ages. She'd probably be sent straight home when she got back, too, if the others were right in their guesses. Tonight of all nights, Naya said, frowning down at her plate. Chris could have done something for her, couldn't he? 
a little mechanical help plus a good pain pill, something. She was sure she was this close to getting a long-term offer from that professor who thinks a security maid is the coolest thing ever. At the party, with the usual atmosphere making everyone a little looser, it could have happened. You hardly ever hear of a D-rank getting a chance like that. There was a party on the schedule for tonight that many of the human avowed worked. It wasn't on Alden's radar since he wasn't on the guest list. But apparently it was the best opportunity Laura would have to show off for this professor, who was interested in hiring a low-ranking brute for aesthetic reasons. Bet they got the idea from watching Thwarthog follow her employer around campus. Having conspicuous protective services you didn't even need was an odd flex. But it was far from the weirdest thing going on around here. I'm not sure, Manon said. I was in the gym when it happened last night, advising on the arrangement of some of the training rooms. Her leg got wedged. It looked terrible. I should have insisted that she ask Chris straight away, but she thought she could power through. Why would she think that? Naya said, looking flabbergasted. Her leg was purple, Manon. It really didn't look that bad last night. Nothing to do with me, Alden told himself, chewing his sandwich with unnecessary force. A few minutes later, as he was in the elevator on his way down to the lab, he received a message. Evening quest for Superior Professor Worley Roden cancelled. New quest assignment for Leafsong University. You will be waitstaff at the Achievement Society Gala for faculty, student prospects, and families. Arrive two hours before the event for uniform fitting and training. As soon as he reached the lab, Alden looked around for Joe. He spotted him in the back of the room by the irradiators. Sophie was nowhere to be seen. This is ridiculous. Alden protested as he hurried over. Can they just cancel my actually important quest with you to make me serve canapes at a cocktail party? The important berry-picking quest? Joe said in a neutral tone, adjusting one of the knobs on the giant oven. Yes, the important berry-picking quest. They can have one of the other avowed hand people tiny snacks. Humans are popular at parties. And I believe you were selected additionally for the practicality of your skill. I was a little surprised you weren't already on the books for this. I think BTI Cool only resisted the urge until now because you have no social events record, and she'll have to alter her dream budget to outfit you for it. The other human attendants would have had uniforms from previous years. Can't you get me out of it? The university is your primary summoner. They have precedence. If I complain, I will only draw attention to the oddity of the number and type of quests I've been assigning you in what would otherwise be your free hours. An idea flashed through his mind. What if I'm a terrible waiter? Joe's eyebrows shot up. Are you asking me to comfort you about your skills as a food server? I'm sure you'll be fine. No. I mean that thing you suggested. What if I just pretend to suck? I could throw a martini in someone's face, or... The professor burst out laughing. I'm being serious. No, no. Don't do that. It's unnecessary. 
We'll have time for you to pick all the berries without you sacrificing any chance you might have of ever getting a high society job. Noble Rabbit. Alden frowned. As long as nothing else happens. Yes, as long as nothing else happens. Would you mind pulling the Argax powder from the refrigeration units for this session? The red stuff, right? The red stuff, Joe agreed. Alden worked in silence, dragging pouches of the powder from the back of the fridges and tossing them into one of the lunch baskets that Joe seemed to be collecting as the days wore on. I was supposed to be picking up the kids today. It's the second time their trip off Moon the Gund has gotten messed up. He wasn't superstitious, but it still felt bad. He was surprised when a shadow fell across him, and he looked up to see Joe leaning over him, a frown pulling at his tattooed features. It occurs to me that I should clarify something, just in case particularly absurd notions are flitting through your mind, he said. Even if you do toss food at guests, I still won't be able to assign you a quest tonight. It would seem like I had encouraged you to sabotage the event to spite certain people I don't get along with very well. Okay, said Alden. I won't. Take this. Joe held out his hand, and a ring fell onto the lab table with a clatter. It's a loan, since I doubt they'll let you wear your stunning coat. You're giving me a magic ring? Alden said, his eyes widening as he stared at the dark silver band. Do you know what the word loan means? What does it do? Alden asked eagerly, reaching for it. It will do something similar to heightening your dexterity. Significantly, it's very good for not flinging appetizers at people and party tricks. Oh wow, that's really cool. Thank you so much. Loan, said Joe. Loner, am I not saying this right? It's a loan. Alden held the ring up to the light to admire it. It was simple, but very heavy, and it was covered in etched geometric patterns. I'll take good care of it, he said, and give it back. Yes, of course. 38. Hedonistic. 38. Hedonistic. Alden was supposed to meet B.T. Eichul in a specific room of a building that looked like a concrete beehive. But she met his cart on the path before it even arrived at the door and practically yanked him out of it, shouting, finally. I'm half an hour early, Alden protested, jogging so that she wouldn't actually be dragging him along behind her. There is no time, she babbled. None at all. People are injuring themselves for no reason. The designer sent an assistant instead of coming himself. I had to order a new singer. One of the professors is disappointed in the Tmithans I chose for him. Alden decided to keep his mouth shut. The alien personnel manager looked like she was on the edge of either tears or violence. And since he was already committed for this event, he might as well try for a smooth experience. You must be exceptionally careful tonight, Alden Rybeat. You have no social recommendations, and this is a difficult event. I'm a waiter, right? Like I'll be carrying food to people? As long as I don't drop it. No, she said, looking aghast. You are an avowed waiter. You are there to create an impression. There are always 13 avowed waiters at this event. 
People expect to see them at Leafsong. It's a tradition. If it's that important, maybe one of the others. BTI Cool's nostrils flared. I have planned it thoroughly. The kitchen is already preparing things that take advantage of your preservation skill. As long as you use your skill correctly and do not distract the other avowed from their performance, that will be enough. She whisked him into the beehive. It was a natural history museum. Colorful lanterns, tables, and sprays of green and black plant life were artfully mixed in among the exhibits. And Alden stared up in awe at an enormous, magically suspended skeleton overhead. Alien whale? The charcoal gray bones moved silently, swimming without ever going anywhere. And the sharp spines that must have protruded from the creature's sides in life were tipped with shining points that caught the light. They wove through a jungle of potted plants, around glass cases full of fossils and alien animal models that moved so smoothly Alden wasn't really sure they were models. Then she led him through a hidden door, and they took a large elevator down a level to the place where all the work seemed to be getting done. People were racing around with carts full of decorations and padded boxes full of museum pieces. B.T.I. Cool buelled her way through the chaos, telling everyone that her business was urgent and earning quite a few withering looks from Artinans who were clearly engaged in their own urgent business. A minute later, Alden found himself in a room that looked like a hastily assembled hair salon. When it said to arrive early for a uniform, I wasn't expecting a full makeover. He'd thought he would be taken to a closet full of spare shirts so that he could try them on, or something similar. Of course, he'd also thought that being waitstaff meant being waitstaff, and apparently that wasn't quite right. He was stuffed into a chair by a tiny old woman with dark purple-brown skin and a lot of beaded necklaces. She gave him wevy in a wooden bowl and started examining him through a pair of glasses with square rims. Nice, she said, pinching his cheek lightly. At his startled look, she stood on her tiptoes and peered deeply into his eyes. Pretty. Thanks. Good strong back, she asked. Hard worker? Is that important, he replied after a moment's hesitation. What are the arms like, she muttered to herself, squeezing one of Alden's through his shirt and making a disappointed sound. I think a four-foot-tall centenarian is disappointed in my upper body strength. The only thing keeping his feelings from being a little hurt was his confusion. She was doing his hair or something, right? Not hiring him to tend the oxen on her family's farm. As if she'd read his mind, she dug all of her fingers into his hair. Lots of this, she said. A vivid image of Stuart's half-bald, half-French-braided look popped into Alden's mind, and he shuddered. He was so busy trying to think of ways to convince her not to try that particular style out on him, that it took him a while to notice the old lady's mirror was measuring him while he sat there. A network of red lines had appeared on top of his reflection, and there were Artinan numbers out to the side. Why would anyone need to know the length of my nose? B.T.I. Cool was standing by the mirror, examining one of the three inset screens. Alden couldn't see around her to the one she was looking at. 
but the others showed what appeared to be designs for armor and prosthetic add-ons for his face. Alden suddenly realized that he would be wearing an elaborate costume tonight. Unexpectedly, the idea brightened his mood a little. It was stressful to be doing a social event at all, and he was still frustrated and worried to be here at a party instead of on Moon the Gund where he was actually needed instead of some convenient piece to complete the special magic number of avowed BTI cool had in mind. But judging by the designs, it looked like his costumer was planning to put him in a set of green scale armor. That was kind of cool. A decent costume would give him a starting point for conversations at least, and... This is no good, B.T.I. Cool said, her tone dismissive as she swiped away whatever was on the screen she'd been peering at. I have decided that his entertainment for the night will be his skill. The kitchen has already been informed that they have to make use of it with the food. A costume like this will draw attention to him instead of whatever he's carrying. Make it simpler. The green rye beet is popular, the old woman said absently. Costume changes color throughout the night to represent the journey from youth to adulthood. Very appropriate for a young human. I spent all afternoon designing the effect. It's nice. I just said it's no good, BTI Cool argued. The joint claws are carved from bone and the scales are coated with powdered. I don't care how you cobbled it together. I don't want him to be the focus of attention, BTI Cool argued. He's just going to be a backdrop for the culinary special effects. Make it subtle. Maybe a beige rye beet to match the museum walls. And tuck the wings. I'm an artist, not a technician. You're just a fill-in-the-costume company sent, BTI Cool said dismissively. Have you ever even costumed an alien? Make it beige. You have a short while to redesign it while I go through the rules of service with him. The old lady made an angry noise and stomped over to her screens. Alden gave her an apologetic look in the mirror. BTI Cool had whipped out her tablet and now she was talking rapidly about what he'd be doing. She had an annoying habit of micromanaging the assignment so that every single step of the evening became a part of the quest. Timers were popping up in front of his eyes for every little thing. There were even an allotted number of minutes for his bathroom breaks. This is incredibly obnoxious, he thought. Watching the timers minimize themselves into a string of green lights in his peripheral vision. The system here on Artona 3 did a good job of presenting him with information when he needed it and keeping it out of his way. When he didn't, but he much preferred Joe's method of giving a broad assignment and then offering advice on how to complete it rather than a bunch of official quest steps. Alden would naturally have been polite to guests who spoke to him at the party. Being ordered to do it, complete with a reminder that would flash over people's heads, made him want to act like a barbarian to spite BTI Cool. He distracted himself by shoving his hand into his pocket and swapping Joe's magic ring from finger to finger. It was capable of resizing itself, but not infinitely. It was too loose on his pinkies. He'd spent the whole of the afternoon lab session playing with its magic by subtly manipulating the bottle full of pills he had neglected to take during his emergency teleport. 
Joe had said the ring would make up for the lost dexterity stat from the coat, and that had led Alden to believe it would work similarly. It was a completely different effect, though. It was like anything he held in the hand with the ring on it didn't want him to let go of it. Everything clung to his fingers for just a fraction of a second after he dropped it. Heavy or light, the weight of object didn't seem to matter much. Alden had tried it out on some of the lab equipment after the students left, and he'd almost broken a beaker trying to show Sophie how he could splay all his fingers and it would hang for an instant, pressed against his palm like it had been glued there. To his disappointment, the sticky effect didn't work on items he was currently preserving. If his skill was active, it was like the ring wasn't there at all. But at least it would keep him from dropping the items when they weren't in the preservation state. By the time BTI Cool left, there were a couple of humans from the boater and a lorch present. They were getting dressed in their own costumes with help from an Artinen man. One of the boater members had arrived with her makeup already done. So they clearly knew the drill from previous years or had been prepped for it over the course of the week. She had a river of purple paint running in a line down the center of her face. One of the lorch was in a leather costume absolutely bristling with short blades. Maybe he's a meister of knives? Since Alden was going to be a rye beat it seemed reasonable to assume the other avowed would have class-specific outfits. Chris from the boater was taking an elaborate headdress covered in gears out of a box, and he was a right so it seemed like a good guess. The old woman waited until B.T.I. Cool had been gone for a long while before she started speaking again. She was flinging makeup brushes around with a lot of force and breathing rather loudly for such a small person. I'm an artist. She told Alden as she swiped away the image of the beige and brown robe and wing set B.T. Eichul had approved with a wrinkled hand. I, she's probably just really stressed out, he said placatingly. He didn't know if the woman had a translator or not because she kept right on steaming as she started opening drawers and slapping packets and bottles onto the table beside her. Have you ever costumed an alien? She said in a mocking whine. I used to own this company. I've costumed species that look like amorphous blobs, and they looked fabulous when I was through with them. I came in today as a favor because they called at the last minute and my grandson's team has another event. She's definitely going to shave my head, he thought, staring as she approached with a slightly larger version of the hooked razor he'd been given in his care package. You know I don't care a ton about my hair, he said, but I do like having some of it. Even if it's really short, that would be better than nothing. In case you were wondering. Some little sprout of a wizard who isn't even out of school thinks she can tell me what to do. She grabbed the razor. I'll show her. While Alden froze in place, she started grabbing locks of hair and whacking at them. At least she didn't seem to want him completely bald. She was cutting off apparently random amounts from each lock, but not so much that it couldn't be repaired by a human barber. I wonder if I get a bonus for this. It feels like the kind of thing I should get a bonus for. In the mirror, he couldn't tell what was happening to his own appearance yet, 
but Chris had started covering his own arms and legs in body paint behind a sheet of plastic. He was a skinny guy, and the off-white paint made him look like a ghost in need of a good meal. But over the next half hour he was transformed into something quite a bit more alien. He had knee-length white robes and the headdress made of moving gears. Something attached to his back teeth made his mouth glow a poisonous green when he opened it. He seemed to be reciting lines. I am Lunarvik. Behold my metal. Is there supposed to be some kind of theatrical component to this? Alden asked. He hoped he wasn't included in it. He'd been a raccoon in an elementary school play once, and he'd forgotten which piece of trash he was supposed to steal from a pile of it on the stage, which was his one and only job. He'd frozen there, agonizing over the horrors of stealing the wrong crumpled chip bag and had to be rescued by another raccoon. Blunervik, famous avowed right from over a century ago, the old woman said while she worked slender orange wires into Alden's freshly chopped hair. Popular historical figure. He died trying to repair an untranslatable ship on untranslatable, silly line to make drunk people laugh. Tasteless. So she can understand me. She had a habit of talking to herself instead of him, so he hadn't been sure. She must have had a translator in her glasses. What kind of ship? Alden asked. Untranslatable ship, she said. The word wasn't untranslatable. It was something like escape or evacuation. Alden knew because he'd heard Joe's assistants use it to describe his role in coming to pick them up on Moon the Gund. Lunarvik couldn't have been human since he would have died before Earth even met the Artanans. But if the grey-white paint and the eerie green mouthlight were meant to make Chris look like a member of another species, Alden couldn't pinpoint which one it was. No stupid words for you, she said sternly. It will ruin my costume. Instead, lots of glaring. She chuckled as if she'd said something very funny. B.T. Iqul said I had to smile. Smile like you hope they all choke to death. Um, this lady would get along well with Sophie. It goes with the theme. Didn't B.T. Iqul say beige rye B.T.S. were known for their shyness? She seemed to have a vision that involved Alden blending in with the environment and being a discovered by hungry partygoers before he disappeared again, like a game of hide-and-seek with special effects appetizers for a reward. Alden wasn't entirely opposed to it. Standing off in a corner sneaking bites of food for most of the party was easier than real mingling. Beige spat the costumer. Tuck the wings. Make the boy match the walls. Subtle rye beat that won't distract from food. She was gelling Alden's wire-laced hair into a pointy halo that was probably going to be a nod to a male Rybeet's skull spikes. Behind her, notices kept popping up in the mirror. Are there other people working on the costume somewhere? He asked. How else were they going to finish in time? I brought my own fabricator. Top of the line. It's working in another room. Not enough ventilation down here. She stepped back and admired her handiwork. The wires in Alden's hair were glowing orange. Now paint, she said enthusiastically. Alden examined the paint bottles on the table. Not a single one of them was beige. 
The old woman didn't finish Alden's costume until there was a timer blinking in his vision reminding him he had to be upstairs. In a few minutes, it had far less to do with the complexity of the outfit, which had been delivered to them fully made almost an hour before, and more to do with the fact that she seemed intent on making absolutely sure BTI cool would be unable to alter anything about the design. Alden examined himself in the mirror. He didn't always get artinans, and he knew next to nothing about their fashion, and even less about what they wanted from avowed at their parties. But a loud enough screw you was universally recognizable. He was dressed in pitch black formal wizard's clothes. There was no mistaking it. The harem pants, the wide-sleeved coat, and the shockingly comfy boots made him look like Joe's cousin from the dark side. The coat was even embroidered with sigils. There were a set of large ribeat wings attached to Alden's back with a nearly invisible harness, and he did have the glowing orange wires in his hair. But the costumer hadn't even gone for much makeup. He had a simple pair of black and orange bands painted across his eyes in a nod to a mask. He was very recognizable as himself, unlike most of the other avowed he'd caught glimpses of in their costumes. It looked really cool, and like it was probably a political statement. One loud enough that he'd actually considered asking the old woman not to do it. But it had occurred to him that this might actually get him out of the party without any damage to his own reputation or Joe's. So he just let it all happen. BTI Cool was so controlling, Alden was absolutely sure she would want to look him over before the event started. She'd have no choice but to send him away after she saw him. The trip to rescue the kids could be salvaged, and all he had to do was act like he was too dumb to know he should have called BTI Cool when the costume first appeared. Smile, the woman encouraged him. Practice the smile. Oh right, like I want people to choke. It was easier than it should have been to get the expression right. The fake fangs she'd given him pulled a lot of weight, turning any half-hearted smile faintly sinister. Apparently the variety of rye beat he was representing was known for its rebellious nature. The costumer cackled joyfully and patted Alden's arm. Good work. I'll sign it. He didn't understand what she meant until she literally pulled out a silver marker and grabbed the edge of a wing to sign her name on it. Metusa? Alden asked, trying to pronounce it right. Yes, my masterpiece. Those dressed by Metusa do not blend in with walls. He finally left the dressing room and maneuvered his way through the hall, careful not to bash his wings against the carts full of tableware and covered platters that were lined up by the elevators. Metusa followed after him, chortling to herself at every shocked stare they earned from the workers. She seemed absolutely delighted to be making a scene. Alden pressed his palm to the elevator panel. Part of him expected BTI Cool to bust out and tackle him to the ground the second the doors opened, but instead he came face to face with Manon, who was a pastel pink rye beat in a jumpsuit patterned with rhinestones, and the lorch with all the knives. That's a bad idea, the lorch hissed, brow ridges crinkling as they stared at Alden. That's a very bad idea. Manon looked a little shocked, then she smiled as well as she could around her snout. Don't worry, 
I'm sure it's fine. We should call the manager, said the lorch. She couldn't have approved this. Oh, BT Eichel is so busy, though. We humans have given her a hard time today. First there was Laura's accident, and now Farhan is having an allergic reaction to one of the floral sprays. She shook her head. In fact, let me head upstairs with you, Alden. BT Eichel was supposed to be there to talk us through everything one last time, but she's going to miss her chance at this rate. I've done this so many times I can cover it myself. Her lips had been painted to match her face, and she had costume contacts in. When she smiled, she really did look like a snake. I was so paranoid about her arranging my thoughts, but I'm almost positive she hasn't done anything to me lately. And she seems shocked by the costume. Yet here we all are. It wasn't like he had proof. But this felt an awful lot like someone had been pulling strings to create a perfect disaster for BTI Cool. Thwart hogs wrong about Manon and her dolls not being a big deal. If you manage the lives of a dozen people, there's a ripple effect. Even bystanders get pulled into it in unexpected ways. Maybe Manon didn't know what the real-world effects of her rearrangements would be. She was just aiming for a finished puzzle that suited her. Or one that didn't suit BTI cool. Alden was too high-ranking to control, so she hadn't wanted him near her boater. But break the correct doll's knee, and Alden or someone else like him would just fall into place with the rest of the puzzle. Make another doll stand next to a hay fever bouquet, and all of the sudden, the personnel manager was busy at just the wrong moment to notice Alden, Manon, and a beaming Metusa stepping off the elevator into the museum. Well, something this dramatic probably didn't happen every time the rabbit shoved puzzle pieces around. B.T. Eichel had done more than her fair share of the work. She'd been abrasive to so many people this week, she was bound to butt heads with someone who was willing to butt back eventually. But this was going to completely ruin Alden's escape plan. If nobody in charge saw him, how was he going to get out before the party started? And how mad are the people in charge going to be when they look like jokes in front of all the guests? I need to pee, he said suddenly. Where's the bathroom? Oh, we've only got a few minutes before the doors open. Manon gave him a reproachful look. We have to line up for the welcome of the incoming guests. Then I'll pee fast. System, where's the bathroom? Manon made a sound of protest, but it was hard to seriously argue with someone who claimed they urgently needed the toilet. Alden dashed toward the restroom. Metusa chased after him at a shuffle, calling out warnings every time she thought the giant black wings might crash into one of the displays. The second he was in the restroom, he texted BTI Cool and promptly got a notice saying she'd listed him as a low-priority contact and he'd be added to her queue. Next he called Joe. He'd requested video, but Joe set it to audio. Hello? Do you miss me that much after only a few hours, Alden? You're getting very dependent, you know. You're coming to the party tonight, aren't you? Alden said in a rush. Are you at the museum already? Maybe if he threw himself in front of Joe, the professor would have an excuse to complain to someone and get him thrown out. 
I'm on my way there in a cart full of some very charming friends. Then, via text, he added, I'm only talking to you at all right now because this group should think you and I have an unusually close bond. I can't do this at the party, so get whatever it is off your chest quickly. He must be with the students from the Mishnan incident, Alden realized. Or their parents? They would probably be relieved to think that Alden was one of Joe's private contractees. It made it less likely that he would go around blabbing about their mistakes. How much trouble would I be in if I wore the wrong outfit to the party? Alden asked. I'm flattered that you love the lab coat so much, but it's really not formal enough. You should wear what you're given. I am wearing what I was given. B.T. Ikul was incredibly condescending to the costumer, and wait, is there a way to, system, send Joe a selfie? Like a picture of me in my costume? Can you do that? Joe sighed. I'm embarrassed for you in this moment, he said, his face appearing to float in front of Alden with no background whatsoever. What's so awful about? He trailed off, looking speechless for a couple of seconds. You can see me? Alden gestured at himself. Do I need to fake a stomach virus and hide out in here until someone comes to fire me or something? Alden, I'm stunned. You make such a stylish wizard. With embroidery indicating you're quite accomplished in the transmogrification field, which explains the wings. You must instruct me, master, for I am but a lowly. Joe, please, said Alden. Well, it's definitely a statement. A controversial one. I figured that out, but are people going to throw spells at me or just ask me to leave the party? Nobody's going to throw spells at you in public, silly. How did this happen to you again? And why didn't you just call the personnel manager when it started happening? B.T. Ikul made this ancient lady named Metusa really angry. And I was pretty annoyed with her, too. And I know that's not a good excuse, but I figured nobody could blame you or me for it and I could maybe go pick berries tonight. Only now B.T. Ikul's not even around to send me back to the dorms. And I'm going to have to actually wear this in front of everyone. Joe's face turned sideways as he spoke to the people in the cart with him. The system didn't translate, but it seemed like a lively conversation. Joe laughed several times before he looked back at Alden. The consensus is that it's funny, said Joe. Wear it. Funny. Too outlandish to be offensive to anyone who's not absurdly sensitive. Embarrassing for the honors student and, by extension, the school. But someone says your costume designer used to be a fairly well-known local artist. They all thought she was dead by now. The story's only going to get more hilarious after everyone's had a few drinks. You'll need to be pleasant and agreeable all night long, though. Or you really might offend the wrong person. I think I have a stomach virus after all. Don't be a baby. It's just a party. You can enjoy the peace and quiet on Moon the Goon tomorrow night. With only the dubious comfort of Joe's new friends finding his predicament funny, Alden marched out of the bathroom. Metusa was there to make sure he hadn't hurt the wings at all. He wondered if she was planning to stick to him until she was thrown out. Maybe she was just waiting for B.T. Ikul to arrive and see what she'd done? 
Alden joined the other avowed by the doors. Everyone gaped at him except for Manon, who was beaming. Drinks, she said, and an Artanen waiter who'd been standing off to the side brought Alden a tray of fizzing blue liquid in shot glasses to hold. He targeted the man and took it, assuming there was no reason not to use preservation on the drinks. Everyone else had trays of the same beverage. They stood in two evenly spaced lines by the door, except for Chris, who was struggling with a giant metal launcher that couldn't possibly be as deadly as it looked. Alden, did BTI Cool have time to introduce you to your helpers? She didn't, said Alden, but she mentioned them. Manon pointed out four of the real waiters, non-wizard Artanans who would keep him supplied with whatever he was supposed to be serving, and take over his zones of the museum whenever he was otherwise engaged. Alden wondered if they'd all looked this incredibly nervous before he arrived. Maybe they did, he thought hopefully. Maybe it has nothing to do with me. The overhead lights went off. The ceiling behind the flying whale bones turned into a field of stars. The museum was suddenly a dark forest of greenery and colorful pools of light from the lanterns. The display cases and ornaments on the walls were lit at random with gold spotlights that faded in for a couple of minutes, and then out again as other objects took their turn. Alden stepped from side to side to keep his tray of drinks cold. At precisely the right time, the doors swung open, and a group of wizards Alden assumed were in charge of the school walked in, chatting with a crowd of well-dressed people. Prospective students and parents flooded in after them. Alden held out his drinks. He was trying to smile, but he was afraid his fangs were making it look like a glower. A man dressed in a rainbow-colored coat stopped in front of him and stared. He had so much embroidery on him that he looked like a tapestry. Oh my God, Joe was wrong. I'm going to get turned into a frog. I bet this guy can do that. I bet he can turn me into one of those alien frogs with the turtle shells. It's karma for letting BT Iquil kill that one on my first day here. The man turned to a woman in a similarly embroidered outfit behind him. Well, this is new, he said with a laugh. He took one of the drinks from Alden's tray, thank goodness. He'd been frozen in place for long enough for them to no longer be preserved and lifted it in a toast to the crowd behind him. To the souls of those who no longer celebrate, he shouted. Everyone who poured through the doors was grabbing a glass and lifting it. All of the sudden there was a thunderous roar and streamers of light and glittering sparks showered all of the guests. Chris looked relieved to have finally got his launcher to work. I am Lunarvik, he cried, the gears on his headdress spinning madly. Behold my medal. The party was underway. Alden didn't know how much trouble B.T. Ikul was in. For the entire first hour of the event, he was too busy to focus on anything but his immediate surroundings. He'd have been completely lost without the team of waiters making sure he was in the right spot doing the right thing at the right time. They prepped his trays and explained what he was supposed to do with each of them in meticulous detail. After the first round of drinks, everything Alden carried had some kind of special effect. 
The food and snacks were assembled off to the side by a chef dressed in beige to match the walls and then delivered to him smoking, steaming, or in the middle of a color change. He would carry them into a crowd of people with his skill active, and when it deactivated the effect would finish off in grand fashion. His favorite involved marshmallow-looking things that would jump off the tray like popcorn. If he got the timing right, the party guests caught most of them with their plates. If he got it wrong or got held up on his way to his audience, they all ended up in the floor. To his surprise, the floor being covered in food didn't bother anybody. Many of the guests were going out of their way to be sloppy. It was almost like having food on the floor or your person was proof that it was a party and not an everyday event. Half of the things he carried were designed to be messy. Drinks tended to be filled to the absolute rim of the glass so that the slightest jostle would make them spill, and once, he almost ran into Manon delivering a tray of rolled meat slices that had oil overflowing down the sides onto her hands. She was leaving a trail of it behind her. Hedonistic, isn't it? She texted him without ever breaking stride. This is a much more rabbit-like assignment than working in the labs must be. Look behind you. He couldn't reply since mental texting was beyond him. But he turned to check behind him and saw one of the small children at the party tagging along in his wake. There weren't many of them here, but a few of the faculty members had brought their families. Alden hadn't had a chance to interact with one of the mini-Artinans yet. They were some of the only partygoers who weren't constantly staring at him and remarking on his outfit. To them, his wizard clothes were boring compared to the other Avoud's costumes. After all, they saw wizards all the time. I guess they were bound to get around to me after they finished with everyone else, though. He'd caught enough glimpses of the others interacting with the children to know the drill. They thought the avowed in fancy clothes were like characters at theme parks. They expected a meet and greet. One of the ever-vigilant waiters appeared to take Alden's tray of appetizers as the child approached. He crouched down as well as he could with the wings, and the kid blinked at him. Are you from Earth? they asked. I am, he said. Anasidora Earth or Sahara Earth? Oh, are those the only two places on Earth they know about? Fair enough. It was hard to learn one planet's geography, and Artinan kids had all of the triplanets to study. Plus their people had famously made first contact by setting up camp in the Tenera and asking if world leaders wanted to be teleported, in for a cup of wevy and a discussion about the future of their species. America Earth, he said, but I'll be living on Anisidora soon. Can I have a picture? Sure. The kid brushed aside some crumbs and set a small tablet on the floor. It balanced miraculously on its narrow edge and somehow took their picture from multiple angles without moving. Alden's wings still looked fantastic. After that kid, there were a couple more. Then more trays. Alden wanted to sneak a bite of something, but he was never alone. At some point, Metusa had disappeared. He was worried she'd been carted off to be punished, but she eventually returned arm-in-arm arm with the museum's curator. Some mysterious negotiations had gone down while Alden was feeding people and having his picture taken, 
and a few of Metus's old theatrical pieces were being teleported in from storage at another institution so that they could be displayed during the second half of the party. Joe finally made his way over, and after the briefest of smiles and not ten words to Alden, he left with an entire tray of tarts stuffed in his pockets. As the night wore on, Alden started to feel ragged. The wings were making his back hurt, and the guests were getting clingy. His waiters had betrayed his trust and left him to the attentions of various drunk teenagers and even drunker professors, who wanted pictures. Isn't this an Achievement Society gala? It sounded like it should be a stodgy event where everyone worried a lot about what impression they were making on their betters. But some of these guys were wasted. There was a hookah set up on one table, and Manon had sent out a group text telling all the humans not to go anywhere near it. Artinans partied hard. Alden's bedtime was apparently not as regimented as he'd been led to believe because it came and went, and the system didn't make so much as a peep. Traitor. He accused it in his mind while he told what felt like the thousandth person that his costume was definitely just a wry beat. Any resemblance to a wizard was purely coincidental. Saying this struck drunk Artinans as hysterical. Alden didn't know why, but he kept repeating it because it kept working, and he didn't have any other jokes. He finally managed to escape from the latest group. He'd made it all the way across the museum to the edge of the party. Success. And it had only taken a full hour and a half of trying. Now if he could just hide behind a plant or a taxidermied dinosaur and wait this thing out. Excuse me, Rybeet, said a voice from behind the giant potted fern Alden had just been thinking of as his future protector. Could you come here for a moment? No, I don't wanna. He'd practiced smiling so much tonight that his cheeks ached. He stepped around the fern and was surprised to find a table and two chairs sandwiched between it and the wall. There was no way that had been part of the original floor plan for the party. The pair of wizards sitting there appeared to be sober, which was probably a good thing since the woman was visibly pregnant. The man had long straight hair such a pale shade of purple that it was nearly white, and he didn't look up from the book he was reading as Alden approached. Actual leather-bound book, Alden noted. He brought it to the party instead of just reading one in secret on a tablet. That was refusal to socialize on an advanced level. He could admire it. Do you need anything? Alden asked. Something to eat, maybe? No, she said, smiling. Would you just stand there for a while? Alden stood, wondering if she was about to take his picture but she made no move at all to do so. She looked at him for a while and then turned to stare off into space and ignore him. Wait, am I dismissed or not? He kept standing. They'd tell him to go away if he was supposed to, wouldn't they? With nothing else to do, he stared at them. Their formal clothes were a little odd. It was like they'd been based on the traditional wizard's garb that Alden was currently making a mockery of but someone had wanted to be sure they couldn't really be mistaken for the same thing. They had elbow-length sleeves instead of long ones, tighter pants, patterns of small metal studs instead of embroidery. Neither of them had a tablet or visible lens of any kind. 
not even the metal rings around their iris. Alden stood there for a very long time before the woman finally said, Brother, if you need him to step closer, just say so. He's wearing a noteworthy costume. Someone will spot him over here eventually. Or one of your spouses will get bored of the festivities and come to find us. I do not need him to do anything, the man said irritably, still not looking up from his book. I was managing fine before you called him over. Alden, isn't it? Alden nodded. His name had been going around the party for ages, so of course she'd heard it. Alden, would you mind stepping a bit closer and giving him your hands? Her brother slapped his book shut and gave her an annoyed look. That is completely unnecessary. But it will be faster. I'm tired. The babies are stomping on my bladder. I want to go home. Then go. If I go, your pride won't allow you to get anything done. And then you'll lurk around the house worrying over questions that have perfectly obtainable answers. Alden watched the argument devolve with wide eyes. What kind of disagreement was this? Hold Alden's hands. I don't want to hold his hands. They didn't even sound like adults at this point. Maybe they were drunk? I'll hold his hands first if you like. What would be the point of that? Fine. Come here, Rybeet, and let me hold your hands. Per Joe's advice, Alden had done a great job of being agreeable tonight. But this was a little too much. What are you going to do to them? He asked, clasping his hands safely behind his back. Stop glaring at him like you planned to chop him in half, the woman said to her brother in an appalled voice. You're scaring the poor child, you lout. He's younger than Stuart H. How is this my fault, he protested, leaning back in his chair and sighing. It isn't even my idea. Stuart, Alden hadn't seen him all night. He didn't seem to be at the party. One of these two must be his parent? Alden stared at the man. Is this the super important father that even Joe was afraid of making mad? He was hiding in the corner behind a plant, reading a book with his sister. He didn't scream, scary alien wizard king, which was how Alden had been picturing Stuart's father despite the lack of monarchies on the modern triplanets. He just wanted to gain your measure, the sister explained. It will be much faster if he does it by holding your hands and asking you a couple of questions. Otherwise he'll have to spy on you from behind the bushes some more, and it's very tedious. Gain my measure? Was this some kind of lie detector test? Oh, maybe they just want to be sure I'm not going to tell on Stuart? That was fine. He didn't plan to. Easier to go along with the request than act all cagey. He had one really serious secret to keep from the Artenans. And he highly doubted someone he'd just met was going to ask him out of the blue if he'd ever fed his blood to the prisoner. In the Chicago Consulate. Alden stepped closer and unclasped his hands, offering them to the guy. The Artanen studied him for a moment without taking them. Is the ring yours? Or does it belong to Whirly Roden? It's a loan, Alden said sadly. He'd been playing around with it all night. Since nobody cared if he spilled drinks, he could do some neat tricks with the glasses. Take it off, please. It will interfere. 
Whatever kind of lie detection he was going to use must have been pretty weak if the ring would interfere. Alden tucked the ring into one of the pockets of his wizard outfit. The man took his hands firmly in his own. He had calluses, Alden noted. It was kind of unexpected for a bookworm or a wizard. The man stared up at the starry sky beyond the whale skeleton. What is your name? he asked. No need for him to ask. It was available to him through the system. Maybe he was establishing a baseline for the lie detection? Alden. Samuel Alden Thorne. What is your purpose? Alden stared at him. Like in life? That's kind of deep. I don't know. What do you love? This guy didn't really go for the softball questions, did he? My aunt. My friends. My... He hesitated. It was only for a second, and it was only because he had the thought that maybe he shouldn't say it. Because they were gone. But in that instant of hesitation, he suddenly sensed something surprising, the cobwebby cocoon of his own magic. It was here, all around him just like during the teleports to and from Moon the Gund. Only this time, around the cocoon of his magic there was another one, far more massive. It wasn't pushing against him, but he knew at once that if it did he'd be. Not even crushed. I'd just disappear. Like I'd been written out of existence. It wasn't a guess. He knew it for a fact. Alden's heart was pounding. The Artanen was still staring up at the fake stars. Are you afraid? Yes. Lying was unthinkable. Is this the most afraid you've ever been? No, lying was impossible. The man smiled faintly. Ah, that's unusual. What's scarier than me? When I was ten, I found a photograph online of the guy who was responsible for my parents dying. Of what his body looked like after he'd been dealt with by an S-class brute. I have no idea where it came from. He was on a metal table. I guess maybe the investigators took it, and it leaked. He'd seen it in real life, but his emotions had been dampened then. A few years later, it didn't bother me. It didn't bother you. It made me satisfied. It made me feel like the world was fairer. I looked at it every night, and I slept like a baby. And that made you afraid? When it disappeared from the web, and I realized what I'd been doing, that was when I was afraid. A complex emotion. He looked down and met Alden's eyes. His own were pink, like the lead assistants at the lab. I apologize for the intrusion, he said, dropping Alden's hands. And you don't have to be afraid of me. I don't hurt people. Alden clutched at his chest, gasping for air he didn't even need. Am I having a panic attack? I would appreciate it if you didn't mention my son's participation in the recent stupidity. But that's a selfish request I make for my own convenience. You're under no obligation to follow it. Alden could barely hear him. His ears hadn't rung this loudly in years. We'll see each other again. Someday. You're too untranslatable to go unused, I'm afraid, he trailed off. That's annoying. Authorized translations. I have no interest in working around your management. As I was saying, you're too whole for us to avoid one another over the long run. Try to grow up well and live fully before then.
Maybe you should teleport him out of here, the sister suggested. I think he might faint. I'll have Roden fetch him. It's funny to watch that one skulk around me. No, I'm fine, Alden gasped. Can I just go? Of course, said the man. By the way, I'm the primary. Have a good night. 39. Lesson 1 Don't talk so loud, Alden groaned, smashing his pillow to his face in an attempt to hide from the lights in his capsule. What? Are you hungover? Bo asked. Oh, are you? Isn't it illegal for a vowed to drink? Jeremy said, loudly. Not on the triplanets, said Bo. I guess they might still have age restrictions of some kind, though. I'm not hungover, Alden said into the pillow. I'm probably the only person on campus who isn't. How can there still be an exam this morning? I was promised sleep. There was a whole speech about sleep. There are pills just for it, and then they took it away when I wanted it most. They're torturing me. It's pretty mild as far as torture goes, said Jeremy. Go wash your face in cold water. Drink coffee. I'd have to ask the boater to share theirs, and I hate them. I hate everyone this morning. Ouch. Harsh. Except for you guys, Alden amended. He ran his tongue over his teeth. The costume fangs were still in place. It was a wonder he hadn't swallowed one of them in the night. After meeting Stuart's father and having the scariest ever hand-holding session with the strange wizard, he'd fled back to the dorms. He'd collapsed into his bed with his ears still ringing and that dark, shameful memory boiling closer to the surface of his mind than it had in years. What the heck is the primary? It sounded like a title, an important one, but Alden had never heard it before. Sounds like an awesome party, said Jeremy. Alden had only told them about the normalish parts, not the night's conclusion. I guess it was for the guests. For me it was stressful, and exhausting, and a little demeaning, and hot. Why is it perpetually hot on this stupid planet? He paused. I did get so many tips, though. So many. I don't even know what for. About halfway through, when all the faculty and parents got plastered, random argold amounts just started popping up on my interface every few minutes, and some of the students slipped things in my pockets. They're either sticks of chewing gum or some kind of party drug or a magic thing that does who knows what. Yeah, you should definitely throw those out, said Bo. Obviously, I wasn't going to eat them without asking someone what they were, said Alden. Anyway, it lasted forever. I'm gross. I need to shower, but the boater people are hogging them. I did get to play with a magic ring, though. You should steal it, Jeremy said brightly. What's wrong with you? You were worried he was going to his death a week and a half ago, and now you're encouraging him to rob a wizard? Alden's morning timer flashed once to catch his attention. He had 45 minutes. If he didn't get out of bed soon, it would grow more insistent. He sighed and tossed his pillow away. There was a smear of black and orange paint across it. Good morning, Alden dear, Joe said with a revolting amount of cheerfulness as soon as he entered the lab. The professor was going through his usual drill of removing select items from every table. Aha! Uh -huh. 
I can't believe he's still alive. The last time Alden had seen him, Joe had been modifying the hookah with potions from his little case full of vials. Apparently he kept the party potions right beside the mission and killing ones. Ah, you've kept your fangs. Making a statement? Sophie padded over and tipped her helmet in interest. A definite improvement, she said. Do claws next. Alden smiled at her then turned to Joe. Actually, I can't get them out. Like, at all. I tried everything short of bashing them with a hammer this morning. I had to quit when my gums started to bleed. The artist didn't actually cement them to my teeth, did she? If he didn't figure it out soon, it was going to be difficult to explain the fangs to a dentist when he got back to Earth. Yes, I put these on myself. No, I don't know what I used. Crazy how that happened, right? Please, make them go away. How should I know, said Joe, sniffing a jar of pickled mice. I can look at them for you when we finish setting up. Maybe it's some kind of dissolvable glue. Not wanting to miss out on that offer, given the lack of alternative solutions. Alden did his best to perk up and help with the work. Let's take away these gold boxes, he suggested. Joe blinked at him in surprise. The E.T. lore compressors, he asked. I'm fascinated by the suggestion. Why would we deprive the students of those? Only a couple of people use them in each session, and they make a really annoying sound. Like nails on a chalkboard in a cave. I'm so used to them I never noticed. They sound like prey, said Sophie. They're horrible screechy boxes, and you always fail the people who use them, Alden said blithely, carrying one away from its table. I'm doing the students a favor. What happened to him last night, Sophie hissed to Joe. Is he going feral? It seems he's not a party person. A pity. He was a very big hit. Alden felt much better after placing all 75 E.T. lore compressors in the corner of shame where they belonged. When he was done, he helped Joe finish the fridges, and then held his mouth open while the professor examined his fangs through his smart lens. She did use some type of glue on them, he said. I have several things that will dissolve it, but just keep them for now. I'll figure it out over lunch. I know absolutely nothing about human tooth enamel, and I imagine you'd rather I not learn through trial and error. I can use Artinan tooth cleaning gum, Alden reported. And since he was thinking of it, he pulled one of the strange flat sticks out of his pocket and held it out to Joe. It was wrapped in folded waxy paper. By the way, is this gum? Or is it drugs? Or is it like a chewable magic potion? Maybe it wasn't for eating at all, but it looked like it was. And it smelled like one of the herbs that was popular in food here. Joe stared at the stick and snorted. Someone gave you one of those last night? That's a little, anyway, yes. It is. It is what? Those three things you said. Alden stared at him. It's a gumdrug potion? Joe was shaking his head in amusement. Yes. They're easy to make if you have the funds for the ingredients. So they're perennially popular with wealthy young people. What does it do? You chew it, and then you pass it off to someone else to chew it. Well, that sounds disgusting. 
and a mild sensory link is created between the two or more of you for a few minutes. Alden stared down at the stick in his hand. It's telepathy gum? Sensory. You don't share thoughts, only senses. Taste, smell, touch, etc. That was even better. Alden had been immensely frustrated and a bit jealous about the fact that Artinans felt and managed their authority as an actual sixth sense. If this was sensory gum, could I use this stuff to feel my magic like Artinans do? He asked excitedly. Joe looked baffled. How would I know? It's not for humans, and it's not usually used in that. That would be awesome. Oh, but I'd have to chew it with someone who had that sense. Alden was turning the gum over in his hand thoughtfully, helped along by Joe's unreturned ring. Plus it could be good for combat training, maybe? If you could feel what someone who was more of an expert than you did when they moved. And it would be amazing if you could see your surroundings and someone else's at once. I guess that might make you really dizzy though. It's got to have lots of practical applications. How long did you say it lasted? A quality stick should last around 11 minutes, said Joe. But it's not designed with humans in mind, so if you're determined to put it in your mouth, at least wait until there's a qualified healer nearby. Do you think I could buy more of these? Alden said seriously. For your combat training, as a ribeat. Just for whatever I might think of later. I've never heard of this stuff before. Do you think it's very hard to find on Earth? Joe sighed. I neither know nor care. And no, you can't buy more of it here on the Triplanets legally. Pharmacies aren't going to sell you something that's not designed for your species. Just be happy with the piece some young fool gave you and don't accidentally poison yourself. Alden nodded. I've got fourteen anyway. That should be enough for now. You got fourteen? Yeah, I counted when I was pulling them out of my pockets last night. Joe shook his head. I think I went to the wrong parties in my youth, he muttered. Jelnor even gave me one. And then she stared at me really hard while she ate a plate of those little cube-shaped burgers. You should remember which piece was hers if you can. Why? Because it will either definitely kill you or definitely be safe for you to consume. Most likely the second since she was trying to imply you should eat the burgers together while you were under the influence of the gum. A sort of bribe or peace offering, I imagine. In either case, she would have researched the chemistry of it before giving it to you. Noted. He really didn't think he wanted to make peace with her, though. More like avoid her at all costs. Alas, said Joe, looking toward the doors, where the quiet sounds of anxious students could be heard. We have to let them in yet again. No matter how many I test, they just keep coming. You could fail them immediately, Sophie suggested. Do you know several people told me last night that I was unacceptably difficult and cruel to their children? Joe said. Nobody appreciates my exacting standards. Maybe because the previous day had been so weird and long, the return to the ordinary routine made the hours fly by. Alden was in a good mood by lunchtime. 
even though he had to spend the last 20 minutes of his break biting into a nasty-tasting square of gel Joe had made for him. Success, he shouted when he finally unlocked his jaws and saw the fangs stuck in the gel. I'm me again. You look awful. Alden bared his teeth at Sophie. Put them back. He laughed. I have this friend named Bo at home. You two would get along. His name is almost the same as the professor's. Alden blinked. Yeah, it is. But somehow I don't think they would get along. The accumulated intellectual superiority and snark would be unbearable for everyone around them, too. There was only a single lab exam on the final day of his time at Leafsong. So from this moment, there were only four more total before he could go home. For lab sessions, two nights sleep, three trips to Moon the Gund. He was supposed to leave just after noon on the last day, but Joe had gotten permission to keep him a few hours longer. As soon as he arrived back at the seminarium after the last trip, though, he'd be teleported back to Earth. I can't wait to breathe the air in Chicago. The finish line for this insane first summoning was in sight, and with any luck, he wouldn't have another for weeks. He'd be plenty busy without it. His to-do list was a mile long, and the first thing on it is just calm down and think. He'd been summoned a few hours after affixing his skill, and for a job this long, it was ridiculous. He was going to sleep for an entire day when he got back and then wake up the next morning and sit on the sofa by himself, with a bowl of popcorn and a notebook and try to figure out how to get started on the rest of his life. No biggie. Today, let's just focus on today. The guy whose table he was standing beside was mixing the green and purple goo together. Something always went wrong when you mix the green and purple goo together. Alden knew that, and he didn't even have a clue what the goos were. Trash rabbit on duty, he thought, smiling at the unlucky student about to steal your stuff. That afternoon, Alden rolled toward Hot Lab 7 in a cart and had the peculiar experience of being greeted on his way by several professors and students he didn't recognize at all. Guess I'm famous. Please, don't summon me for your future parties, people. As soon as the doors of the lab opened and the cool air rushed out, he heard a muffled shout from Joe. I'm down here today. You can come in. He was on the floor of the actual laboratory instead of in his office. For the first time, Alden went straight inside. He stopped in the chamber that separated the entryway from the center of the building and looked around at the sanitizing equipment. He had absolutely no clue how to use any of it except for the sink. Joe, do I need to do anything in here? Just put on a pair of boots so you don't track in dirt. There's nothing delicate going on in here right now. A minute later, Alden stepped inside wearing a too tight pair of rubber boots. He headed down a metal staircase, taking in all of the strange equipment with interest. What are we doing down here today? Joe was standing in front of a large display on the wall that was flashing through sciency information so quickly. Alden didn't have a hope of reading it. You are standing there, and I am running a few final simulations on something you will take with you on your way to the lab today. What? Contract, 
Joe reminded him absently, still staring at the display. Oh, right. Sorry. They reconfirmed the private contract, and Joe said, it's a bomb. Of course it is. Alden sighed. Why am I taking a bomb with me today? Do you really want to know? Are you blowing up the lab so that the corporation can't have the rest of your stuff? I'm strategically tidying a few sections it. You'll need to take two bombs, actually, and deliver them to then. One today. One tomorrow. They're quite unusual and magically potent, and I don't want them to strain your skill too much. Then A.R. was the leader at the lab. She'd be one of the last two people evacuated. Great. Now I'm complicit in blowing up buildings. It's just some light remodeling, really, Joe said. He glanced over at Alden. So you'll do it? Oh, wait, Alden realized. That's right. I don't have to. The agreement was that he would pick up people and supplies, not carry bombs over there. He'd been about to say yes without even thinking about it. Joe was too easy to get along with. Even now, he was patiently going about his business without applying any additional pressure. And he did help Alden out with things that were well outside of their agreement. The Mishnan, the party, even the Fangs earlier today. It felt like they were almost friends lately, even though that couldn't be an accurate description of the relationship. Joe was old and powerful and openly engaged in illegal stuff. And he was a wizard. An individual private contract they formed might be fair to both parties. But the real underlying dynamic was so unbalanced between them, it probably couldn't ever be made truly right. Maybe there was no reason to overanalyze every little thing, though. I'll take it, Alden said. That's nice of you. Actually, it's spiteful. It made me really angry that the Yipal Corporation sent a vow to rescue their own people and made them leave everyone else behind. Joe shook his head. Even your spite is nice, he said in a slightly admonishing tone. Sorry, can I ask questions now? Joe waved his permission and walked over to feed his vat of eels. Who is the primary? Ah, so he introduced himself to you. He shouldn't really have done that. But even if he's aware of how it draws attention and complicates things, I doubt he cares much. So it is a title. Why haven't I ever heard it before? If he's someone important, I should have, right? You know, this isn't skill instruction, which is what our lessons are supposed to be about. Alden paused. I mean, you don't have to answer. I know I don't have to answer. What did he say to you last night? When Stuart H. said his father wanted to meet you, I thought he was either mistaken or trying to give you some sort of misguided compliment. The people who were aware of the man's arrival at the party were frankly alarmed. He's not someone who does a lot of socializing, and they were afraid he might be offended by the nature of the festivities. He held my hands. Joe almost dropped the shaker can full of eel food he was sprinkling into the vat, and he turned around sputtering. Why? His sister told him to. The professor stared. I'm sure you're leaving something out. He asked me really personal questions. It was. I thought it was some kind of lie detector test, 
and he was going to want to know about what had happened with the Mishnan. Or he was going to ask if I intended to betray Stuart's trust, but I don't think that was it. In fact, he more or less said he wouldn't do anything to me if I did tell on his son. Don't. I've got ever so many wonderful things going on because of that excellent mishap. So it was just about me, I think. Joe looked troubled. He must have been using some talent I'm not aware of to examine you. I'm afraid I can't answer your question. He said I should go home and live well because one day we'd meet again. Alden rubbed the back of his neck. It kind of worried me. Joe's eyes widened and he spun back around to face the eels so quickly that Alden didn't even have time to interpret the expression. Joe? I think, truly, that answering your questions about the primary is not the best use of our limited time together. Let's return to our regularly scheduled skill lesson. Now you're kind of worrying me. Touch the triangle of absolute secrecy, please. Alden stared at his back. We already reconfirmed the contract for today. Ah, I would like to clarify a point. Today's lesson is going to be special, you see. And I would like you to confirm specifically that you will not, through any means or by any permutation of interpretation, intentionally reveal the information I'm about to disclose to you with anyone else of any species without my permission. Ever. Surprised but intensely curious, Alden thought through the wording. That's way too strict, isn't it? It means even if I hear the information from someone other than you at some point, I still can't ever repeat it, or even act on it in a way that I thought would allow it to become known. Yes, that's right. Anything I say that you're already aware of is yours to do with as you please, but any new information I reveal falls under this agreement. Also, you will not use this knowledge to advise or instruct another person in a fashion that would allow them to take advantage of it. Ah, uh, do I even want to know whatever it is? Joe was silent for a minute. He was still staring down at the eels. Finally, he said, I'm not sure. However, it will undeniably benefit your skill development, which is what I promise to help you do. Obviously, I'm not going to say no. He'd never stop wondering what he'd missed out on learning if he did. Something on a table along the far wall dinged. My bomb is done. Joe's tone was cheerful. Let me just box it up, and then we can have a proper seat in the office for the rest of this discussion. You had ice all this time? And you didn't tell me? Alden said accusingly as he took a seat in one of the armchairs that looked down on the lab. Under his shirt, the tattoo was burning in a way it never had before. He had felt the gremlin watching the contract modification with interest, but it hadn't objected, so he guessed it was fine. But Joe must have really meant it when he did whatever it was he did with his magic to set it in place. You always refuse my drinks. Joe dropped a few cylindrical pieces of ice into a cup of dark blue tea. That's because they're always hot. I didn't even know Artanans drank chilled beverages until I served a couple last night. Usually not in winter. This is winter? Yes, though it's always mild here. They have a pleasant climate. You didn't realize? 
It just never occurred to me that it might be, he said as he accepted the tea. It tasted floral, but it wasn't awful. Joe sat in the chair beside him. He took one sip from his own steaming cup, then without any further ceremony, said, Lesson 1. I knew there had to be a lesson one. Alden cried. I was thinking of how much I should tell you and how to frame it for you. I was going to use it as the finale of our classes, but then it occurred to me that you might have follow-up questions. And I wouldn't be doing my sincere best if I just dropped the information on you then sent you back home. Thanks, Alden said. Really, that's thoughtful of you. Joe rolled one eye at him. Lesson one, you should never accept another skill or spell from the system. He sipped his tea again. The steam curling from the cup was fogging the lens of his smart monocle. Beside him, Alden sat motionless. Beads of condensation were forming on the glass in his hand. You're not saying anything, Joe noted. I'm waiting for you to explain the joke. The professor's smile was tight. Do you really think I swore you to eternal secrecy just so that I could deliver one? Alden didn't, but he still couldn't process the advice he'd been given. I don't understand. I know you don't, Joe said simply. But nonetheless, the lesson is the same. In my opinion, someone in your situation should refuse to accept skills and spell impressions from the system, or from other sources, should they be offered. The entire benefit of being an avowed is collecting new skills and spells and foundation points. You should limit the number of foundational improvements you accept, too. I don't think you have to entirely reject them, but be frugal. Try to keep your physical and mental enhancements within the realm of reason for your class, age, and rank. My class is rabbit, and my rank is B, Alden said, raising his voice without meaning to. What am I supposed to do with one weird-ass skill, one shitty little spell, and hardly any superhuman abilities? One spell? Joe said in an interested voice. His eye flicked behind the lens. Then he laughed. You never affixed your second. Did you even need my advice? I haven't affixed it because I couldn't find a spell I liked on the list. And it was important to me to be careful and make the most of it. I was going to study all of them when I got back home. It was strange to feel threatened by advice, but Alden did. What the professor was saying was unheard of, incomprehensible, and unwanted. Is it even possible to refuse skill and spell rewards, he demanded. I couldn't refuse to get a skill in the first place. The system was all something, something thank you for your service. If you don't choose in a few months everything will be randomly affixed for you against your will. Enjoy. I'm not that nice, you know, Joe said, raising an eyebrow at him. I won't bother elucidating any further if you keep flinging teenage emotions at me like I've personally done you some injury. Alden looked away from him. His grip tightened on the cold glass. Joe spoke after a moment of silence. It's astonishing. They really didn't explain a thing to you, did they? I don't know what you mean, Alden said stiffly. Whichever one of my colleagues told you to pick that class, and that skill. Alden stopped breathing. 
I suppose it could have been another avowed, but there shouldn't be any on Earth at this early stage of your planet's development who would know enough to give you that kind of advice. It must have been an Artanan official, but I cannot fathom how you would have come to know one well enough for them to make such a suggestion, without any sort of protective contract in place no less. I just picked it because it sounded cool. Alden spoke steadily, but he didn't trust himself to turn around. No, you didn't, Joe said in a thoughtful tone. You're not the kind of person who thinks being a rye beat sounds cool. For a while, I wasn't sure, because you do have a couple of qualities that suit the job. You're comfortable around other species and open-minded about vast cultural gulfs, for example. But you find the aspects of the class that most humans regard as perks tedious, and you highly value assignments you deem morally worthwhile. The professor paused, then added, It's only happenstance that you got one of those from me, and you have to know that. No human who preferred rescue missions to parties would pick rabbit, or a skill called let met take your luggage. I looked up the initial English description just to be absolutely sure there wasn't some clue, and I can imagine no scenario in which someone with your personality would have selected it from the multitude of available options, unless you were advised to do it by someone you trusted. Alden frantically tried to come up with a believable reason to have chosen the class and the skill, and he couldn't. Even if he said he wanted money, it would sound like a lie. There were rabbit skills known to be good for that. He'd picked a complete unknown. Why is Joe paying that much attention to me anyway? He's not supposed to be so freaking curious that he psychoanalyzes every little thing. You don't have to look so nervous. Any Artanen who knows enough to recommend the skill is either my equal or my superior, and they have a strong disrespect for certain rules. I'm hardly going to report someone like that. I'm just surprised that they gave you something with such a specific kind of value, but they apparently didn't offer you their personal protection or want you to know how to use it. It's baffling. It would look that way if you assumed it was an Artanen instead of Gorgon, trying to deliver advice without being punished by his magic chains. At this point, the only thing Alden could do was steer the conversation away from how he'd gotten the advice in the first place. Why can't I accept more skills and spells? When I level up and they're offered, am I really just supposed to refuse to affix them? It sounded like madness and also depressing. The contract only forces affixations on avowed in uniquely dangerous cases or as a last resort. I'm sure you noticed it goes to great lengths to cajole people into accepting it semi-freely instead, and it's almost always successful. Every version of the system walks a tightrope, trying to maintain a certain amount of control over its planet without absolutely bleeding resources, and it only grows more complicated with every passing generation. Nearly 2,000 years ago, the first version of the contract was designed as something beautifully simple and effective. However, that's changed. Effective at what? Alden asked. Managing a problem that can never be truly solved, Joe said vaguely. That's not a good topic for the two of us to delve into tonight. 
But do you remember what I said about the way Artanans generally viewed avowed? Beasts of burden, existential threats, children that should be bossed around, or gifts from the holy universe. It was a hard conversation to forget. I'm sure I said children in need of instruction, but your version will do. The initial idea of selecting avowed from resource worlds was a product of minds who would view your existence as a great gift. For our planets, we only had the mother and Artona two back then, and your own. It was, and is, an arrogant point of view. One centered on Artanan needs and our assumptions about what other species should value. He shrugged. But that particular point of view is the only one of the common four that assumes avowed should both have extraordinary power and be given all the tools they need to use it as a matter of course. Alden frowned at his tea. It was turning aqua as the ice melted. Are you saying the secret to extraordinary power is refusing to accept skills? Because I'm confused. That's because you're not letting me finish. There was an initial set of around 300 skills, designed with the fervent passion and care of those who believed they were on a holy mission to save existence itself. The designers proposed that delivering these skills to avowed and facilitating their use should be the entire point of the contract. But the creation and implementation of a stable, global agglomerate spell that could do everything the contract does was, and is to this day, the largest magical undertaking in Artanan history. Those dreamers who wanted a certain type of avowed couldn't do it themselves. It was an endeavor that required the cooperation of nearly a third of the magic-capable population. Alden wondered how many wizards that actually was. Artanans were, as far as anyone knew, the most numerous highly intelligent species in the universe. The Triplanets today had a population of nearly 35 billion. Even 2,000 years ago, a third of all wizards had to be a staggering number. Do human schools ever force you to work on your educational assignments with partners? Joe asked. Group projects, said Alden, surprised. Of course. Aren't they perfectly horrible? It's rare to get a group of even four or five people to function cohesively. I'm sure it's the same for humans. We're unbelievably similar. Imagine a planet-wide group project that everyone agreed must be completed and then imagine that nobody wanted to complete it in the same way. The avowed our gifts people didn't get their way, I guess? Oh, they got their way. And so did absolutely everybody else. Which means that nobody got their way. And there is still today an exhausting, never-ending battle waged at the very pinnacle of wizarding society about how exactly the contracts should be managed. He sighed. It's embarrassing. Our resource worlds imagine we're so clever. Even the ones that loathe us think we're competently evil. And I suppose we have managed an absolutely shocking level of success given the infighting involved. But virtually everything about the current systems are a result of negotiations between different Artanan philosophies. They've got strong beating hearts we all more or less agree on, but they've been enfleshed and clothed by a thousand different committees. Is that why some of the talent names and descriptions are so? Obscure on your planet, said Joe. 
Yes, it's not as though they couldn't be explicitly described. But every time someone designs an interesting new skill for Avowed, someone else comes along and says, if you give them that, they will hurt themselves. And yet another person is shouting, they will kill us all. And some idiot is always off in the corner trying to convince his friends that all Avowed should look like supermodels, or have their brains turned off when they're not in use, or be able to chew through boulders with their teeth. That's terrifying. Alden was startled to realize that he actually preferred the idea of cohesive artinans with dark intentions to flailing politicians, who might screw up his planet in a hundred different ways at any given moment. At least evil overlords would probably want Avowed to be alive and useful. Well, try not to lose sleep over it. We haven't blown anything up too badly in my lifetime. All of this was just the lead-up to the part that is of interest to you. In this day and age, due to prevailing mindsets and a widespread belief that the universe is not in the immediate danger we once feared, most skills aren't designed to be developed beyond a certain point. They have ceilings. There are different ones for every skill, but it's common for them to top out around levels 4 through 10, as you would think of it. Alden knew that already. Level 10 skill user had a certain connotation of complete mastery. Why? Why what? Why don't you let them go higher? It's not like that. They don't go higher because there is no higher for them. If we focus on the skill-based classes like Rybeat, then skills are, ah, this is hard to explain since you don't have any background knowledge. They're usually designed to rapidly reproduce the effect of a difficult but desirable spell. Alden blinked. That's not something I've ever heard. How much of this conversation has been? Anyway, even if we just take your skill at its most basic level, as an example, there are spells that preserve things. Obviously, it's not like I can't cast them myself. I'm actually quite good at that genre of magic given how useful it is for my job. But knowing the right spell for the right situation and being able to cast it precisely when it's needed isn't nearly as easy or convenient as saying, hey, Alden, go pick that up. So skills are just big, complicated spell impressions? Very similar to that. The main differences are that spell impressions are almost always weaker than equivalently ranked skills, and they tend to be perfect duplicates of a real spell, with the casting instructions impressed onto your being so that you don't actually have to know how magic works and you literally can't screw them up. Skills are often based on spells, but they've been re-engineered to allow the avowed to slowly come to terms with what they are and master what they can do. More flexibility, more complex end results, much steeper learning curve. But when you reach the end of that learning curve, you're done. Whatever the maximum level is, once it's reached, the skill is complete, and you have to select a new one and start building it. Alden had about a thousand questions, but most importantly, do you know what the maximum level for my skill is, then? Joe giggled. It was frightening. It doesn't have one, he said. The original 300 skills all still exist in one version of the system or another. 
The philosophical descendants of the designers make sure they don't get completely excised. I'm not certain if they really believe those skills will save us all, or if it's just a point of pride they can't yield. Alden already knew where this was going, but the professor's next words still sent a frisson of shock through him. Yours is number 112. It was hidden under a shroud of mediocrity by the factions that hoped you would never find it. It would be tragic if you uncovered it only to fall into the next trap that has been laid for you. The trap is taking another skill? Or a spell impression? Or too many foundation points? All of the ways you would commonly wish to increase your power will only slow you down and limit the skill's growth. I've given you all the hints you need to guess why. And you've been a fairly good student. Oh no. The look on Joe's face said this was some kind of pop quiz. And Alden had seen enough of the professor's teaching style to know that if he answered wrong the lesson would likely end at once. He had developed theories, but he considered them half-baked. My ability to do magic... My authority is wrapped up in the skill and the trait I chose, he suggested finally. The skill going up a level is a result of my authority increasing. But if the system always offers rewards for leveling in addition, is it like there's excess authority? Like as I develop let me take your luggage, part of my power is naturally wrapped up with the skill, but part of it's still unbound? That made sense, Alden decided in a headachey way, since he'd finally gotten used to the idea of authority over the past few days. So the rewards the system offers every time I level aren't exactly free gifts, he concluded. It's transforming my unbound authority into a talent, which means when I accept them, the excess authority gets set back to zero. But in exchange I get powers I can actually use. Joe slapped the arm of his chair. Yes. Excellent for a human. Some clarifications as a reward, your unbound authority will never be zero, though it's usually significantly lower for RyBTS than others due to class design. It's why you're only granted talent rewards for leveling, and summoners can't usually offer them to you as payment for services rendered. Another bizarre set of complicating factors sponsored by centuries worth of politics and people's feelings about the different classes. Blah. Don't worry about it. Instead, wonder about what happens if you don't give the system permission to affix its little rewards when it wants to. Eventually it's going to force me to do it, right? The key word there is eventually. It doesn't want to take that route. It's absolutely horrible on the budget, and it's considered morally monstrous by far more Artinans than you would expect. So the system isn't allowed to force an affixation until it's exhausted all other possibilities. Instead, it will let you level the skill and level it again and probably a few more times besides without taking your reward. I haven't actually seen it happen before, but from what I understand, it will resort to outright bribery right before it gives up on getting your permission and violently modifies you. How does it bribe people who refuse to accept any kind of magical improvement? It almost never occurs, but I've heard it usually involves the creation of high-end equipment. 
You asked once about accumulating a large number of refusals. I imagine something like that would be on the table, too. That sounded awesome. Why don't more people do it then? Why don't more people train endlessly in an effort to increase their power and then, at the moment of achievement, refuse to increase their power? I mean, somebody has to have tried it just out of curiosity. Joe shook his head. You have to consider the fact that the first thing that will happen is nothing, and the second, and the third, and only then does the system start to get concerned about the unbound authority creating a dangerous problem for the avowed. What happens? A scale tips. Too much excess authority will unbalance the original skill affixation and damage it, which would result in either a gruesome and agonizing death or something much worse. So maybe don't give the system a hard time just for your own amusement then, Alden thought. So, if I level and refuse my rewards and never take one from a summoner either, eventually I'll get a last-ditch bribe? You don't want the last-ditch bribe. You want the thing that will, I think, come before it. With you, the system will have an additional option. If you're refusing the rewards the Triplanets would prefer you take, it can offer you the next step on the original progression path for your skill. The old one, designed by wizards who assumed you would be training with this one skill for your entire life. What is it? I'm not sure, said Joe. Alden made a sound of protest. I'm not an expert on the original skills. You're lucky I even recognized yours as one. It's not like it has a flashing label beside it when you're summoned. Your abilities show up here, he pointed at his monocle, as sets of useful data for the summoner. It shows me that you have a preservation talent. Most people experienced with the type will note that it's a little unusual. It almost looks like it's poorly made, but it's just based on ancient tastes. No contemporary wizard would design an avowed skill that would let you bring your full authority to bear almost instantaneously. At level one, it makes me too powerful? Joe gave him a flat look. Aren't you optimistic? No. It just lets you exhaust every last bit of what power you naturally have at once. So that the person in charge of lab exams has to make sure you don't accidentally touch the wrong thing, pass out instantaneously, and then explode. Alden felt himself blush. Thanks. It's fine. The students didn't make anything good enough to have that effect anyway. He sounded disappointed. So lesson one, Alden said. Level the skill but don't accept. Any rewards until I get something that looks like the start of a super old skill-specific progression path? Correct. And thus, I think I have more than fulfilled the offer I made you on the first day. Offer? I asked if you wanted me to advance your knowledge of your skill by twenty years compared to your fellow humans. Instead, I have advanced it by several decades and levels of information access according to Artinan's standards. Joe looked terribly pleased with himself. Maybe I am nice after all. You're nice, Alden agreed absently, still a little shell-shocked and worrying over the apparent irregularity of his skill. Trying to figure out how to be an avowed on Earth was hard enough. 
He never once thought he'd have to work out the political ramifications of his skill from a triplanet's perspective. I see why I'm not allowed to talk to people about this. It's a little, am I going to be in some kind of trouble with other Artanans? Just for having the skill? That's why I was so surprised your secret benefactor hasn't done anything to take you off the table. If I were to tell a young avowed to pick a skill like this, I would lock them into a long-term contract the very instant they affixed it. Mostly to keep people from finding out I'd done it, but partly to keep one of my more panicky colleagues from summoning you into the path of a strategically timed bullet. Alden winced. I offered you a long-term largely in jest that first day. I was still trying to figure you out, and I was worried you were some kind of convoluted trick sent by one of my enemies. You were, after all, carrying one of the few talents that would help me with my problem. And you were all wrapped up like a present in that pretty coat that nobody ever buys. It's because most rabbits don't want coats for working in bomb labs, Joe. Finally. He admits it. Alden groaned and downed the rest of his blue tea in one gulp. I wanted the agility stats to complement my movement trait for superhero school. Oh my stars, said Joe. You're going to say something awful. I know it. That's precious. I'm serious about it. That makes it even more precious. I can't believe someone adopted such a precious little rye beet and then abandoned it to the harsh cold realities of the world. What the hell? I'm not a puppy someone left in a box outside the grocery store. I have plans. Admittedly, those plans kept taking a beating, but Alden was sure he could put them back together, in some form. I really will adopt you if you want, Joe said. As soon as I finish wriggling out of some of my problems, it would have been no trouble for me to permanently hire a B-rank before, but it's a bit out of reach just now, maybe a year from now. After I've had enough of a wrist slap to satisfy people, I should be able to successfully challenge the limits on my summoning rights. That's good of you, and I like you, but I really don't want to live here. I want to go home, Alden said firmly. Joe nodded. I thought you'd say that. You should be fine for now. Most people won't have the foggiest idea what the skill is, and they won't care as long as you don't do something insane with it. The ones who do know will almost all think it's happenstance that you ran across it, and they'll assume there's no reason to worry. It's not like it's illegal to have the skill. We're the ones who keep putting it in the pot with everything else after all. It's just a small percentage who will know and dislike it enough to make your life difficult. It will be fine. For now. For now, Joe agreed. A couple of decades from now, on the other hand. Joe, it's not going to take me decades to level it high enough to get the special perks, is it? Alden said in a slightly panicked voice. Because I don't think I have the mentality. I don't know how long it'll take before the system offers it. Five levels, maybe? It's just a guess. Still, five levels could take me years. I mean, I was hoping to do three a year, but I knew that was ambitious of me. One per year was more common. Two was practically a standard for Apex schools. But plenty of people never leveled at all. 
endure, Joe said dryly. At least two years, just sitting around with the exact same package of talents he had now. Well, the skill would still improve as it leveled, but he'd get no new low-rank skills to work with, no spells. He'd be putting in all the work of someone who seriously cared about progressing their powers, but he'd have almost nothing to show for it, and he wouldn't even be able to tell anyone why. If I get into a hero development program, they'll think I'm slacking off. They'll expel me for lack of progress. Do I even want the super mysterious original avowed universe saving power? Well, when he put it that way it was hard to say he didn't. Gah, said Alden, leaping up from his seat. I can't think anymore. Where is the bomb I'm supposed to be delivering? So eager, said Joe. By the way, there is one person I want you to tell about this conversation. Seriously? Alden said in surprise. The triangle of absolute secrecy still feels like you branded it into me, by the way. Who am I supposed to tell? Joe steepled his fingers and stared down at the vat of eels writhing below them in the lab one day. When the primary realizes which skill you have, he's going to make your life absolutely miserable. That sent a chill down Alden's spine. Why? I won't tell you that. But he will eventually realize it if you achieve anything of note with it. And when the time comes, there's the most perfect way of getting back at him. Yes, we have to do it, no matter the cost. Your face looks so scary right now. And the primary is not someone I want to make mad. I'm almost positive I'm going to refuse. Joe ignored him. When you see the endless misery on the horizon, that's the moment. Tell him then. Tell him that you told me this huge Artanen secret? Why? Joe acted like he was scared of the primary, and Alden really wished he wouldn't use the phrase endless misery to describe Alden's own future. Joe looked him in the eye. It will shock him. You want me to tell the primary something that might get you killed because it will shock him? Alden repeated. Are you all right? I don't think he's been shocked since he was a teenager, said Joe. It will be good for him. Yeah, okay. I'll take a moment out of my day when I'm feeling, apparently, very miserable to deliver a shock. To the primary. For you. Thank you, Alden Rybeat, said Joe. I'll entrust you with the message. Even if he takes my head off for it, it will be so very worth it. 